Good morning. I am Ross Mercurimi. I am uh, a supervisor here in San Francisco representing uh, the 5th District, and I have the distinct pleasure and honor uh, in welcoming all of you to this fabulous crowd today uh, to really a watershed moment, a first summit of its kind. Um, and I think everybody, uh, for yourselves and the people who are not able to make it here, give yourselves a round of applause for attending our first San Francisco Safe Communities Reentry Council. Now, I just want to say that I think the first barrier that we should dismantle is the prohibition from bringing coffee in this room. Um, something I'm a little concerned about. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I need my coffee right now. Um, <clears throat> but I think, uh, in particular, in order to, I think, help set the tone, I think, for this, what I think is going to be a very um, sort of mind-intensive day, which I think promises to challenge us, challenge city government, challenge uh, infrastructure and systems as we know it, first acknowledge, I think, some of the, even the more minor breakthroughs that we've already achieved. Let me just show you a copy of the San Francisco Examiner, front page today. City focuses on parolees and bid to reduce crime. Now, the reason why this might probably seem kind of benign or insignificant, but it's huge, and it's huge in many ways, because in our efforts to try to make better sense of how to forward a smart-thinking city like San Francisco, to help reduce the levels of crime that have completely, completely distressed so many pockets of a city that professes to be, I think, of course, progressive in its values, innovative in its ideas and strategies, but yet paralyzed in many sense of the way in trying to break inroads and make inroads in helping those who are returning from the prison system. And the fact is that we haven't been able to do it. I don't think many cities, to the degree that we would, have, that we would hope that they have, have been able to do it. And we have learned that while we try to tackle ways to empower communities, reclaim streets, that that sort of secret that continues to burrow its way underneath, when you have a population of 1,500 to 2,000 formerly incarcerated individuals living in our city in a day-to-day -day level, and yet we know that you can correlate where that population lives in areas that are impoverished or areas where we see crime-impacted communities more pronounced, acute of the fact that there is not sufficient or quality housing, acute to the fact that domestic violence or violence within the community or one's household is more pronounced that law enforcement and social service agencies seem bereft of any kind of recourse to do something better on a systemic level. The fact that we were able to bring together, which you would think would be conventional thinking unto itself, the sheriff's department, the district attorney's office, the public defender, members of the board of supervisors like myself, the executive branch, the mayor, and all you hardworking nonprofit CBOs who have struggled and wrestled with the frustration as to why your messages are not getting heard, the fact we were able to convene a conference for the first time to begin to tackle these issues and then see it in the mainstream press projected in such a way today, I consider that a watershed moment, and so should you. Now, what this does, what this does, it calls us on our vanity. 
San Francisco, like every city who tries to be the top-notch city of the United States, and yes, we have our vanity too, that tries to be the greenest city, that tries to be sort of the most, I think, you know, kind of innovative, cutting-edge, bellwether city that we hope other cities try to pick up the pace. But what this does is that this is an honest reflection today, this summit, is an honest reflection about what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, and what it is we're just not doing at all. And it obligates us. It obligates the uh, intergovernmental task force that we've assembled together and with CBOs that we actually help fund and subsidize and ones that we should that we may not and ones maybe that we shouldn't, that we do. Because what it does is it finally takes a yardstick. It finally asks the questions and tries to demand the answers to make sure that are we being as effective as we possibly can. And it also forces those elected officials who gives lip service to the idea that they want to fight crime but yet have absolutely no idea on how to deal with the insidious variables that continue to keep crime pronounced because they refuse to deal with poverty, they refuse to deal with the institutional racism or the racism that certainly continues to handicap those who come out of the system and cannot get the traction they want in order to reintegrate themselves back into society. Do I think we're going to accomplish this in one single day? Absolutely not. But what I do think is that all of us banded together, and we really do have quite a talent pool of people here who beyond their sincere intentions and motivations are actually willing to marshal resources, marshal the kind of smarts and the kind of vision and focus that we're able to appeal to the common decent denominators of common decency and humanity so that collectively we're working together to make sure that we're making the inroads. Do I think it's going to stop the parolees, ex-offenders, formerly incarcerated coming from San Francisco? No, and that's not even the intention. The intention is, is that if a supervisor like myself wants to be proud of a community and a great diversity of our community that is also a community that wrestles with the economic and social stigmas that keep them down, then it is my responsibility to make sure that those who have been handicapped, especially after they do their time, are also given the same fair chances as we would expect for anyone else. It does not make sense to me. It does not make sense to me, and it would be a dereliction of my duty if I did not call attention to the fact that if, in fact, we like to profess that some remedies in order to stem the tide of the kind of repeat offenses that occur because those cannot get the traction that they want as they try to reintegrate back into community, back into society, back into sort of an employment environment, that if somebody, that if an ex-offender had spent their time and they were able to cultivate all the proper credentials, if they want to go and, and pursue sort of a culinary career, if they received all the kind of credentials that gives them that skill, that gives them that pedigree while they're in the system, and then when they get out of the system, they can't even get a job, maybe if they could, in a restaurant as a dishwasher. Where have we gone wrong? And I think it's important that if, in fact, 
that people have the apprentice skills. They can prove that they have those skills, and they are wanting to do good. Yet if government denies that very intention, then it's government's responsibility to make sure that they open those doors. And that's exactly why we're here today, to pry those doors open now. Now, as I said, this is going to be a long day. We've got incredible panels here, so I commend you for spending as long of the time as you plan to. But I also ask that you should consider this homework. This is not a one-day assignment, and this is just not something for elected officials like myself uh, or Jeff Adachi, our wonderful public defender, who, by the way, his department has shouldered a lot of the organizing and putting this together. You should... Round of applause. And there are many, many, many people here to thank where we have such, a, I think, a unique alliance. And it's important that we have this alliance. But this alliance into itself must also challenge, I think, what um, comes forth today in our discussions and in our action plans. And so that homework, then, must be aimed at the very fact that by the time that the honeymoon of this summit is over, which I give it 24 hours, then so should be where we, so should then we are required to follow through on the steps that we are absolutely intended to make. For example, just to help get this going, um, this past June, I, who sits on the Budget Committee of the Board of Supervisors, with Budget Chair Chris, Supervisor Chris Daly, and others, we did something that was a little out of the norm. What we were able to do is procure $1.2 million, completely targeted for the question and for development of new strategies for reentry itself, that goes beyond the norm of the programs that we already subsidized. But this time, what we did is that by dedicating this amount of money, while, of course, we're trying to wrestle with prominent crime rates right now and certainly distressing homicide rates that have um, sort of besieged San Francisco for almost three years now, we're also trying to turn something that people have continued to deny, but also try to turn it in a positive light. That San Francisco, with, I think, proper resources, city government with proper resources, working in concert with the CBOs, many of you that are here, and able to go ahead and establish the kind of trajectory that we want to say from essentially A to Z when somebody just before they're coming out of the system and just as they're, they're given their $200 and their one-way bus ticket and their requirement of attending maybe one orientation for integration and then we lose them completely right after that. But for A through Z that we actually pick up the pace in that sort of catalog of what is provided for those formerly incarcerated, and make sure San Francisco does its job and does its part in showing that people reintegrate more effectively, more seamlessly into the community. It does not do any good if, in fact, that we continue to gloss over the secrets that continue to destabilize our neighborhoods. It does not do any good, and we should be honest by that. It does not do any good in the fact that we don't want to sort of empower certain communities because those communities into themselves have already been relegated either through the press or the perception in more affluent communities that that's that their problem. 
BS. It's not just one community's problem. It is a citywide problem, and it is a regional problem. And by the time that we start breaking down old stereotypes and demanding more of a systems-wide approach and dealing with, very targeted approach, and dealing with the very factors that continue to exacerbate repeat offenses and reentry, then we're just going to continue to fail. So with that being said, I hope we set the tone as to what we at least hope will come out um, of, I think, a very eventful day today. We very much appreciate everybody being here. Thank you for your commitment, and more importantly, thank you for the good works that you have been doing long before this summit and long after this summit continues, because this has to be considered an alliance. And this summit is that linchpin, I believe, that helps foster that alliance further into the future so that we do not, do not go back on our words that comes out of this conference today. Next, I am actually um, pleased and really, really delighted uh, to recognize an assembly member who represents San Francisco also eloquently. Um, he was also a former supervisor. Um, we are very proud of uh, assembly member Mark Leno and his representation of the 13th district. Um, I believe that it's not just the 13th district that he represents, but he represents all of San Francisco with the, real, with the kind of grace, the kind of compassion, and frankly, with the kind of fortitude and vigor that is exactly what San Francisco demands and wants uh, in Sacramento. Um, Assemblymember Leno has won many, many awards for his work on public safety, many, many awards on his work in trying to certainly help abate poverty, and he's continued to push issues that might seem unpopular uh, to the large mainstream of California's politics, but pushing them for all the right reason to also break down those stereotypes. Um, please welcome Assemblymember Mark Leno. Thank you, Ross Mercurimi, not only for your gracious introduction, but for your eloquent articulation of the subject matter today. Let's show some appreciation to the supervisor. Thank you. And I also want to personally thank Jeff Adachi and all those who worked hard to bring us together today and also recognize that along with our public defender, Board of Supervisors, our Sheriff, our District Attorney here in San Francisco, without a doubt, we have the most progressive law enforcement and criminal justice leaders here in San Francisco than anywhere in the entire state of California, and we are fortunate for that. And the challenge before us is yet very, very daunting. Uh, I applaud the goals of the Council and the Council Summit here to reduce the recidivism rate of the state of California, which is twice the national average, and to facilitate successful re-entry, which will not only provide greater public safety for the state and each of our communities, but also reunite and stabilize our families and our communities. Uh, I think my task here today was give you some sense of the state of affairs relative to criminal justice in our state capital. Uh, I've often been asked what is the most surprising fact of life in Sacramento, and my ready answer is the severity of the partisanship. Of course, having come from San Francisco, I never had to deal with any Republicans before, so it's all <laughs> brand new to me. Uh, but 
Quite honestly, my Republican colleagues are convinced that my Democratic colleagues and I are completely, totally, absolutely out of our minds. They just don't know what we are even talking about. We, of course, think the same of them. The difference being that we're right and they're wrong. But it couldn't be more true than with regard to the issue of criminal justice. I don't know what's in their heads. And I, I do know that they are afraid of their own shadows. And I have to say that that's the case uh, with many in the Democratic caucus as well. And I don't want to uh, speak cavalierly, uh, but I have the great fortune of representing this particular district in this particular city because I do believe it is a more uh, sophisticated electorate and I don't know how it is we're so fortunate here in San Francisco, but we are a lot like-minded and I, I really do believe that we have a lot to teach the rest of the state. So I'm just going to give you a few examples to let you know what we deal with in Sacramento. Now, I had the good fortune of chairing the Public Safety Committee, which deals with issues of criminal justice and the California Penal Code since my first year. So I've just completed my fourth year. I'll be moving on to chairing the Appropriations Committee. Uh, I don't know that we have a replacement yet for the chair of public safety, but uh, I have found it to be enormously uh, important and uh, of a great education for me. So I feel uh, like I've been the lucky one to chair this. Of course, it's, it's a tough committee. And when people learned that I was uh, chair, they asked if I was out of the room when they chose it, because who would volunteer for such a tough assignment? I have really enjoyed it. Uh, Assemblyman Paul Koretz from Los Angeles, West Hollywood area, uh, introduced, introduced a bill a couple years ago, which would have merely very minor bill added to the definition of incarceration in the California Penal Code, which currently reads punishment, to amend it to read punishment and rehabilitation. Now, a simple majority vote on the floor of the assembly is 41. We have 48 Democrats and 32 Republicans. We couldn't get 32 Democrats to vote for that bill. We're just adding the word and rehabilitation to the definition of incarceration in the preamble to the California Penal Code. The California District Attorneys Association opposed it. Crime Victims United opposed it. The list of all law enforcement up and down the state opposing this so frightens my colleagues that they won't use their own good heads to vote for such a thing. So we had to amend it down to incarceration is punishment and successful rehabilitation, rehabil no, successful planning for successful reentry into the community. You could not use the word rehabilitation. So we had to stretch it out using 10 other words uh, to get to the same point. That we could pass, and so, but then I don't think it was signed into law or you know, got held up in the Senate. So we never did make that change. Now, uh, to Governor Schwarzenegger's credit, when he came in a couple years ago, uh, he changed by executive order the name of the Department of Corrections to the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Bravo, Governor, but in the same month, he cut $70 million from the budget in rehabilitation programs, uh, which unfortunately is often the way this governor works. Uh, so a lot of show, not a lot of content. Uh, but I hope that gives you just a slim idea. So 
let's look at this in a positive light. Uh, we're making progress, whereas we couldn't even use the word rehabilitation just a couple years ago. Uh, we are now not only talking about it, but there's actually some leadership around the subject. Our, our caucus, the Democratic caucus, has fully embraced the concept and the implementation of rehabilitation and the funding for such programs as well. Uh, when the governor called for his special session on the prison crisis a couple months ago, uh, which was dropped in the laps of the uh, legislature in just the last weeks of the session, as if we're going to deal with such a daunting problem. And this crisis is enormous, as I'm sure many of you already realize, and uh, could just explode at any moment, uh, if not taken out of our hands altogether by federal court. Uh, the governor and at least a few of my colleagues in the Republican caucus and all of the colleagues in the Democratic caucus are now recognizing that, yes, we are very, very late in investing appropriately in rehabilitation so that we can cut this recidivism rate, so we can get a handle on our mismanagement of the inmate population. Uh, give you another example. Uh, also in the Gray Davis administration, though he was no leader on criminal justice issues at all, uh, as well as in the early months of the Schwarzenegger administration, uh, we were making use here in the state of California of intermediate sanctions. Not unlike most of the states across this country, if one were on parole and failed a drug test, rather than go back into state prison for $35,000 a year, we would put you into drug treatment. Clearly, the problem is a drug addiction. Making use of intermediate sanctions. Uh, there was some debate as to whether these sanctions had been well implemented and were being used effectively. In any case, uh, one morning I woke up, got a call from a reporter. The governor had completely changed his position, dropped all of the intermediate sanctions, and had changed his position 180 degrees. What did I have to say about it? And before I gave my comments, the reporter mentioned that he had just gotten off the phone with Harriet Salarno, the founder of Crime Victims United, woman who has done a lot of amazing work and I think at the same time has also uh, made it more challenging for those of us with more progressive approaches to this issue. Uh, when she was asked about the governor's change in position, very forthrightly responded, did our commercials work that quickly? The fact is she and her group had put commercials on television just four days earlier criticizing the governor for making use of the intermediate sanctions. He was so frightened of her response and of Crime Victims United's response, drop them altogether, and we've never gone back. We do have any number of progressive advocates in Sacramento as well. Bless their hearts, Taxpayers for Improved Public Safety, Coalition for Effective Public Safety, uh, Friends Committee, uh, of course, and the ACLU, uh, always there to help us who are on the Public Safety Committee and in the legislature uh, to back us up and give us a little bit of credibility because, again, uh, our Public Safety Committee, uh, as my Republican colleagues like to refer to it, is the Criminal Protection Committee, and where the shock jocks in Southern California like to mock us by calling us the Pervert Committee. This is, in, you know, this is so very unfortunate because I, I don't think it goes both ways. I do believe that we all, irrespective of partisan identification, all have the same goal, greater public safety in our communities. We approach it from different perspectives. But whereas 
we recognize, if not applaud, uh, and are trying to further uh, educate some of those who are these, quote, uh, law and order, tough on crime folks uh, to see things in a different way because clearly the way we're doing it now ain't working whatsoever for anybody. Uh, they, on the other hand, resort to really adolescent name-calling and character assassination if you dare approach this differently than they. I refer to it as the new McCarthyism. If you don't do it their way, they will go after you and your reputation and try to knock you down altogether. Uh, I'm certain you are all well familiar with the failed statistics to which I refer. Uh, the national recidivism rate, I think by definition, those who will return into the system within, depending upon whose definition, either 18 months or three years, nationally about 33%. Here in California, 66%. The national parole completion rate is 42%. Here in California, 21%. Approximately 50% of those coming out of our state prison system, and keep in mind, 90% of everyone's in is coming out. So I remind my colleagues, it's not whether you want them to come out, folks. It's how we want them to come out. So currently, about 50% are coming out of our system functionally illiterate, 80% with a drug or alcohol problem, about 70% unemployable, 30% will find themselves homeless within a year. And then we wonder why we have a recidivism rate of 66%. We're giving people very few tools to be able to get back on their feet and re-enter their communities and reunite with their families. Now, for all these failed statistics, we are spending by far more of our general fund percentage-wise on corrections than any other state in the country. Just three years ago, when Arnold Schwarzenegger took his office, we were spending 5.4% of our general fund on the Department of Corrections. Today, we're at 8.5%. Out of a $100 billion budget, we're spending about $8.5 billion on corrections and getting these failed results. If Prop 83 is to pass, and unfortunately it has polls over 70%, this is the so-called Jessica's Law, uh, which I won't go into right now, but I might urge you to vote no on uh, November 7th. Uh, has about a half billion dollar annual price tag to it without any new money identified to pay for this. So we'll soon be at 9%. We will be at 10% within a year or so, certainly with the mandates coming from the federal court with our in-prison health care system and then some of the other mandates that will come soon. We will top 10%, 11%. And at some point, I hope people are going to begin to ask, when is enough enough? And when do we realize the track that we're on is just throwing good money after bad and destroying families and destroying communities? I don't know that there's another state in the country that's spending more than 5 or 6% of their general fund on corrections. So we're paying very high costs for ever less effective public safety. With regard to our parole system, the Little Hoover Commission held hearings and published a report a couple years ago, called it a billion-dollar failure, a billion-dollar failure. About 65% of those on parole are seeing their parole officer once every six weeks, 
and even high-risk sex offenders and other high-risk offenders are only seeing their parole officers once every two weeks. Caseloads for these parole officers is completely impossible. Of course, we're the only state in the country that requires ostensibly three years of parole for everybody, irrespective of the nature of the crime, criminal history, or likelihood of reoffense. So we're not using limited resources, though apparently unlimited resources when it comes to corrections, very efficiently whatsoever. When Governor Schwarzenegger took office in 2004, realizing there was at least a problem, if not a crisis, in our Department of Corrections, he put together an independent review panel headed by Governor George Duke Majin, George go to, use a gun, go to jail, Duke Majin, and a group of other tough on crime guys to look at our criminal justice system and our prison system in California and come up with some recommendations. This was part of uh, the governor's uh, reinvention of state government. So Governor Duke Majin and his independent review panel reported back with a very thick report with nearly 300 recommendations. The top priority of his nearly 300 recommendations was that before any other reforms could be put in place, that the inmate population must be reduced. First and foremost, reduce the inmate population. State of Texas, which incarcerates at much higher rates than California, we rank about 17th out of 50 states in incarceration rates, though we're spending twice as much as any other state per general fund uh, on corrections. State of Texas had released 8,000 inmates between 2001 and 2003 at the height of their budget crisis. Through risk assessments, they determined the lowest risk offenders, least likely to reoffend, and released by some months 8,000 inmates. So, again, George Duke-Major's recommendation, reduce the inmate population. At that time, Governor Schwarzenegger held a press conference with George Duke-Major. We had 161,000 inmates, approximately, in our system. That was June of 2004. And the governor announced that by June 2005, we would reduce the inmate population to 147,000. Well, of course, now we've passed June 2006. We're at about 173 thousand inmates in our system going quickly in the opposite direction and the governor's own projections show that we will hit 190,000 and soon 200,000 in our system within the next couple of years and in fact this prison reform proposal that he put forward in his special session which I don't even uh, credit with being reform it's really just a prison building program that uh, should we have followed him down that $6 billion path, which is what it was going to cost us, and built tens of thousands of new beds, that by the time it was all built out, we would have seen our inmate population grow because we weren't dealing with the core problems that need reforming, which you are addressing here today, that we would have still been nearly at 200% capacity after the build-out 10 and 15 years from now. 
so we'd barely be treading water after spending $6 billion and incarcerating tens of thousands of additional Californians and not getting to the core problems of our criminal justice system here in California. In 2001, which was the latest year we were able to uh, find statistics, we had returned 18,000 purely technical violators, failed drug tests, missed parole meetings, and such. So again, if the governor, and we do need to free up some bed space right now uh, because we're so overcrowded, there's literally no space, even if there were the will and the investment in in-custody rehabilitation programs, there's no space in which to do it. Uh, he's talking about shipping tens of thousands of inmates involuntarily out of state to free up beds, uh, which have all sorts of constitutional concerns and problems. We have 18,000 individuals who, rather than being sent back to prison for a technical parole violation, could have been dealt with much more effectively in community treatment programs and not sending them back to Sacramento, again, at $35,000 a year. I want to give you a couple examples of what we've attempted to do uh, through legislative process in the past couple of years and, and where I think and where I feel that there is some hope. And I do believe minds slowly, slowly are beginning to change. Uh, I've told you about one way to deal with those who fail their, uh, who are failing in their parole through these technical violations, through intermediate sanctions. The other side of parole is those who are succeeding. So I authored a bill a couple years ago which had the support of the California Correctional Police Officers Association, the CCPOA, the prison guards, which as you know is a very powerful lobby in Sacramento. And I'll share with you why I think they are evolving in their philosophy currently as well. Our bill would have taken those who were succeeding in their parole for nonviolent, non-serious, non-sex registrant offenders, those who completed 12 full months of successful parole, we would let go. We'd say, you've done it, move forward. You don't have to report to us for the next two years as otherwise would. We would have saved about $70 million annually and the bill called for putting that $70 million into in-custody rehabilitation programs so that we wouldn't have 50% coming out functionally illiterate. We wouldn't have 80% coming out with drug and alcohol problems yet unaddressed. Crime Victims United sent out a floor alert as this was coming up for a vote on the floor of the state assembly. Now, a floor alert is an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper that lobbyists will distribute on the desks of legislators as the vote's coming up. And in it said that this bill would release rapists and murderers and child molesters into our communities. And one of my more thoughtful Republican colleagues raised his microphone very dramatically, took the piece of paper in his hand and said, the Crime Victims United is opposed to this bill. That's good enough for me. It should be good enough for you and slammed down his microphone. We took the vote, and again, I don't know if we had 30 or 31. We needed 41 to get our simple majority. Uh, I, we put the bill on call, which meant I had some time to go around the room and talk to my colleagues and let them know that what was in the Crime Victims United uh, floor alert hit piece uh, was not accurate and that it was worthy of their support. 
couldn't budge many at all. Again, all, most law enforcement was opposed to this, and that was influencing my colleagues' votes heavily. And as soon as the bill had its death on the floor of the assembly, uh, I got a business card passed to me by one of the sergeants from the lobbyist for Crime Victims United saying, Assemblyman Leno, we apologize for the errors in our floor alert after the damage had already been done. So they know exactly what they're doing and how they can continue to exert all of this control over the legislature. Now, why I think that there's some reason for hope, uh, Mikey Menes is the new director for the CCPOA, the California Correctional Police Officers Association. Uh, he is the successor to Don Novi, who was in place when it expanded so dramatically as we built all of these new prisons during the 1980s and 1990s, and of course had to hire so many additional guards, which then increased their ranks and increased their power in Sacramento. Uh, I do believe that Mikey Menes has a more enlightened philosophy. He realizes that in the next 10 or 20 years, we are not going to be building as many prisons as we have, and that what's best for his members, both the guards in the prisons as well as the parole agents, those are his members as well, that he, of course, like any good uh, labor leader, would want to make sure that uh, salaries and benefits will continue to uh, match inflation at least, and that he's more concerned about their health, safety, and welfare on the job because right now it's an untenable situation. And he see, we had a guard killed last year, uh, and so the situation is very tense for them. And so I do believe he understands, and I don't think it was just election year uh, rhetoric, that we do need to invest in rehabilitation programs on the inside, we need to help communities better prepare and help individuals better prepare for their reentry, and that this is going to be better for all of us. Now, they are probably the largest funder to this Crime Victims United group. There are those who would say that Crime Victims United is the warm and fuzzy front for the California Correctional Peace Officers Association. There's indeed a relationship. I think Mike Menace's philosophy on criminal justice at this point has evolved further and faster than his friends and associates at Crime Victims United. But I've been meeting with the Crime Victims United folks, and I think also because of the ever-escalating crisis within the system right now, that with their support, if we could revisit that parole reform bill, for example, that I shared with you just a few minutes ago, really get to what their concerns might be. How can we fine-tune it? Of course, devil's in the details of all of these bills. And get them on board that they hold the key. They hold the key, amazingly, to allowing the legislature to move forward with some significant reform in sentencing and parole. And we can slowly crawl ourselves out of this deep, dark hole in which we find ourselves right now where we're actually just digging deeper and deeper and deeper, getting further from the light of day and getting further from any kind of hope that we can, in fact, give folks the tools they need and they deserve to be able to move forward with their lives. And again, all for much greater public safety and for the benefit of our families and children as well. Shocking fact, and I know I've got to uh, conclude here, 
I've also gotten very involved with issues around our failed foster care system in California. And we are denying our foster kids an education. And we know when kids don't have an education, they're going to find their way into the criminal justice system. It's a direct connection. We know that. 70% of those in our prison system right now have spent time in our foster care system. And so we need to further enlighten folks as to the relationship between the two. And again, there is reason for hope. Uh, you are doing the great work here. Uh, we here in San Francisco, I believe, can be the shining light and the example for the rest of the state. And with the leadership of our public defender and of our district attorney, along with our board of supervisors and our mayor, I really do believe that we can show the state a better way of doing business and keeping our communities that much safer and making sure that the next generation will not repeat that which we have already repeated one generation too many. Thank you very much for your interest today, for being here. And let me just... say that count on me every step of the way, whatever comes from this conference, whatever recommendations, I know education, employment, and housing are the three top recommendations that have already been stated with regard to this conference. Uh, we get laughed at when we talk about those kinds of things in Sacramento, uh, but whatever legislation needs to be moved forward, uh, please count on me to be the author of those ideas. We have a bill which is a reentry advisory committee sitting on the desk of the governor right now. He has until Saturday to either sign it or veto it. It's a committee that would be formed of experts to learn of best practices in other states so that we can have at a state level a reentry council that can advise the legislature as to how we should move forward. So uh, if you have the opportunity, lobby the uh, governor between now and Saturday to sign that bill. We can take a tiny step forward. Again, thank you very much. I'm a recovering addict, and I'm also an ex-offender. And I've not been incarcerated or in any type of legal problem for 20 years. And I've not used a drink or a drug in 19. So I understand the challenges that someone faces in transitioning from not only inside of the walls to outside of the walls, but from inside of that prison up here to the freedom that we can receive once we can replace that old misinformation, not only misinformation, but missed information. Outside the Walls, a national snapshot of community-based prisoner re-entry programs that provide education and employment, a continuum of health care, supportive and transitional housing, address public safety, family services, and faith. The Justice Department's mission is the protection of the public and prevention of crime and we think that the uh, chief responsibility of government is, is public safety and the protection of citizens. 
Well, we found uh, through our Bureau of Justice Statistics that uh, of offenders leaving prison, some 67% repeat offend, recidivate, in other words, within the first uh, two or three years of the time they get out. Now, uh, that is a great danger to society. And at the same time, on the other side of the coin, there's a very good reason why this happens. More than 600,000 people are being released from state and federal prisons each year, four times more than 25 years ago. Crimes for which people have been sent to prison cover a broad spectrum, from nonviolent drug crimes to serious violent felonies. On average, these prisoners will have served two and a half years. Not only are more prisoners returning home than ever before, they are returning less prepared for life outside. The most recent national statistics show that more than two-thirds will be rearrested within three years, and a quarter will be returned to prison for committing new crimes or parole violations. First and foremost, this is a public safety issue. I was an assistant DA during that Massachusetts miracle period where there was an all-time low in crime, and that was because there had been partnerships between the DA's office, the Boston police, the faith-based faith organizations, and the neighborhoods. And I think the lesson that was learned when crime started to spike was that you could have an impact on how you prosecuted crime and keeping crime low, but you still had to deal with the people who got out. And if they got out no better than when they went in, they were still going to immediately return to those communities and have an impact. So it's not a question of whether we should release people from prison. It's a question of, given the fact that thousands and thousands are being released every month, uh, what can we do to make sure that when they come back into society, uh, they're not going to reoffend and they're going to get a job and have housing and get health care and get back on track. In each state, the majority of people released from prison or jail return to just a handful of neighborhoods, which are especially ill-equipped to receive them. Underserved, these communities have high rates of unemployment, little affordable housing, and insufficient health services and drug treatment programs. The racial composition of these urban areas also mirrors the prison and jail populations. They are disproportionately people of color. And if we don't prepare to make adequate places for folks, if we don't prepare to receive them, to, to work with them, to give them meaningful opportunities, I think we, we're going to be in store for a, uh, for a difficult time because they're not going away. These are people who know how to do one thing, but they really haven't had life skills, job skills training. There are literacy or other education issues. There may be drug uh, addiction or at least uh, uh, drug dependency issues, some very serious issues that are obstacles to people who are returning from prison, not to mention the stigma of being an ex-offender. So for us as a society, the question is, how do we uh, provide support and services and supervision for people coming out of prison to help them meet some of those very real, very basic challenges of reintegration. Programs presented in this video illustrate some of the exciting ways that jurisdictions are beginning to think, work, and collaborate around the pressing issue of prisoner reentry. While some of these programs represent promise to the field, many are too young to assess. They were nominated by a select group of experts in the field, including researchers, practitioners, policymakers, and funders who are engaged in the topic. The video highlights collaborative efforts among corrections, law enforcement, faith and secular organizations, presenting their diverse points of view. Interspersed throughout, 
The video also provides the perspectives of victims and victim advocates, as well as those responsible for public safety, including the U.S. Department of Justice and legislative leaders. Focusing on issues such as employment, health, housing, faith, family, and public safety, the programs shown in the video assist people before they are released from prison and immediately after they return to the community. Good morning, everybody. My name is uh, Jeff Adachi. I'm the public defender of the city and county of San Francisco. And I, I first want to thank uh, Supervisor Merrick Remy, as well as Assemblyman uh, Mark Leno, uh, for opening our conference today. As you can tell, there's a lot of work to be done. And I think it can sometimes seem overwhelming or daunting or even hopeless when you hear about what's happening uh, in the state legislature or how laws are being changed or how special interests are either making things happen or not happen. We're here today to talk about what we can do as members of the community, what we can do as people who are committed and dedicated to this cause of helping formerly incarcerated individuals lead productive lives. We know it can happen. We know it's possible. We have the faith. We need the plan, and that's why we're here today to talk about what each of us can do and contribute, because it doesn't come down to a law. It doesn't come down to a conference or a summit. It comes down to what each of us can do individually and as a group to help people as they're coming out of prison, as they're coming out of jail. And that's the challenge that is there for each of us at the end of the conference today. Now, I want to start uh, by talking about where we are now and what we hope to achieve. The San Francisco Safe Communities Reentry Council was started uh, last year uh, in September, convened by Supervisor Ross Mercarini, and he had a very simple idea that we would bring together as many uh, folks who are doing reentry work along with government agencies. And the group has been meeting for a year, and today is really the culmination of those efforts. At the same time, our district attorney uh, and our sheriff uh, began looking at ways in which uh, the county jail population uh, could be provided with better opportunities. And you hear about some of those programs as well. And they started a reentry council. And so today, we're pulling both councils together so we have one united council speaking with one voice. And we are here to not only share our findings with you, but also to ask you to join us to improve on what we've created. So the United Reentry Council, the two reentry councils, our purpose, our mission, and it's very important that we all share the same mission. We can all have different ideas as to how the mission should be achieved, but it's important that we start from the same place. And the mission that we came up with was to promote the safe and successful return of formerly incarcerated individuals to our community by developing a comprehensive support system that reduces recidivism and promotes public safety. Very simple message and mission behind us. But it's so important that people understand that it's not only about helping former prisoners. That's a big piece of it. 
But the other part that we get, the other outcome that is achieved is that we have a safer community, a community that's not plagued by violence, a community that's not plagued by shootings, by providing opportunities, in this case to formerly incarcerated individuals. And so as we proceed today, please keep this mission in mind. Now there is a program booklet uh, that is available uh, in the front here and for those of you that are watching this on uh, television, uh, you can go to www.sfgov.org backslash pd. That's www.sfgov.org backslash pd and download uh, a copy of the program booklet. There are a number of, of uh, excellent articles uh, in that booklet as well as uh, biographies for each of the speakers and panelists that you'll be hearing from today. Uh, there are two articles in particular I want to mention. Uh, one is called What Works in Prisoner Reentry, Reviewing and Questioning the Evidence. Uh, the other is called Evidence-Based Adult Corrections Programs, What Works and What Doesn't. As we go forward today, it's very important that we know what's happening in different places. A lot of times we tend to just focus on what's in front of us, what's happening here in San Francisco. This is a problem that is a national problem. And we need to recognize that and also look to other jurisdictions to see what they are doing. And when you read these reports, I think that your assumptions may be challenged. At least mine were. Because when I started reading this, a lot of things that I thought were true turned out to be not true. A lot of things that I believed worked turned out not to work. One of the studies actually looked at 291 jurisdictions to see what was working and what wasn't working. So I encourage you uh, to look at that. We also have a handbook that was created uh, today of all of the reentry services uh, in San Francisco that are currently available. And that's also available uh, online. So you can download that and we have copies uh, in the front. I also want to mention an LA Times article that's in the booklet. Uh, this is a very historic, very historic uh, event that occurred. The San Francisco Super, uh, Supervisor, Board of Supervisors voted uh, to ban the box on employment applications. And this to the city. And these are uh, when a person applies for a job in city employment. Uh, in the past, the first thing that they were asked is, have you been convicted of a crime? And now that question is not asked except uh, you know, when uh, the person is accepted for an interview and only in certain cases. That's very significant. So there's an article from the LA Times about that as well. So I encourage you uh, to look at that. We also want to look at what our objectives are. And there are three objectives. There are many ways that we can get to these objectives, obviously, but these are the three things that the council has identified. To assist formerly incarcerated individuals in obtaining housing, health, education, and employment services. Now, obviously, there are other needs as well, but these were the major needs that we identified after talking with parolees. To provide therapeutic support, not only to formerly incarcerated individuals, but also to their families on the outside. To educate, empower, and train formerly incarcerated individuals to become productive members of society. And so these are the objectives that we have set forth. Now with that, I would like to uh, invite our uh, first uh, uh, panel uh, this morning. And our panel is going to be focused on uh, where reentry is now, what the challenges are, and we're going to start 
with just an overview of what the facts are. And, and these are the issues that uh, the panel is going to address. So very quickly, let me, let me give you a snapshot of where we are. We're trying to solve a problem here. In order to do that, we have to make sure that we have the facts. In reentry in California, the total number of prisoners, as you heard, is about 165,000, and that number is going up. In terms of the number of prisoners returning to the community, if you look at 1980, you had 11,758 prisoners returning each year. 2005, 113,000. Parolees and recidivism, the current recidivism rate, 70%. Number of parole violations each year, 115,000. About 75% of these are what they call technical violations, going back for drug use, not reporting to a parole officer. The percentage of parole violators in 1978 was 8%. In 2004, 80%. Paroles and reentry in San Francisco. We have 1,555 regular parolees who live in San Francisco at any given time. We have 458 who are returned to custody, 446 parolees at large that are there were warrants out for them, and 125 pending parole violations. And you, you get a sense of this is what a snapshot of one day looks like. The other thing that's very interesting is when you look at the communities where the parolees live, and we'll see this in a minute, they all live in uh, a small number of communities, and that's the Tenderloin, South of Market, Baby Hunters Point, Western Edition, Mission, in Sunnydale. For example, one-third of the 1,500 parolees live in either Babies Hunters Point or Portrillo Hill. And this should not be surprising. Actually, if you look at the mission, for example, and the Department of Corrections actually has it plotted out where the parolees live. You'll see that they pretty much live on a, in a two-block radius. Why is that? Because those are the only places most parolees can afford to live. Challenges and barriers. Unemployment, 70-80%. Substance abuse, 85%. Illiteracy, 50%. Homelessness, 10%. Lack of survival skills, 60-90%. to 90%. Severe mental illness, 15%. And these are also the same for California. Our services panel, uh, which uh, will occur this afternoon, will address these issues. In terms of gender, we have 89% men, in San Francisco, it's 92% men. For California, it's 11% female. In San Francisco, it's 8% female. In terms of race and ethnicity, 32% are white or Caucasian, 25% are black, 38% are Latino, and 5% are other. Demographic information, the median age is 36. Offenses, crimes against the person, that's like assault, battery, 26%. Property crimes, 30%. Drugs, 31%. Now think about that, 31%, a third of the people who are in prison are there for drug offenses, and 13% other. So this gives us a starting place to begin our dis discussion uh, today, and we have just a superb uh, uh, panel uh, that's going to be uh, discussing uh, where we are and where we need to go in terms of reentry. So I'm now going to ask the uh, panelists to 
uh, please take the stage. Good morning once again. I'm going to begin by uh, introducing uh, each of our uh, esteemed uh, uh, panelists and telling you just a little bit about their backgrounds. Again, uh, their extended uh, biographies and they're, they're uh, very accomplished individuals who have done an incredible amount of work in the area of reform and reentry are, are available uh, in the program booklets and again by going to www.sfgov.org backslash pd you can download uh, the program uh, in the bios. Uh, I'd first like to introduce uh, Terry Anders. Terry Anders is a former parolee. In 1989 Terry was facing 140 years in prison for bank robbery in federal court. Miraculously, he obtained a reduced sentence, and he not only turned his life around and has been drug-free since that time, but he started an employment service training program which trained formerly incarcerated individuals to become iron workers. In 2003, he started his own company, Anders and Anders, which is a job placement and referral provider. Our next panelist is Dr. Barry Crisberg. Dr. Crisberg is a nationally known researcher and expert on juvenile justice and criminal justice reform. He has been utilized as an expert, both as a witness and researcher, by the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation in both criminal and juvenile uh, rehabilitation. He's conducted many studies in California and around the country. He is the president of the National Council on Crime and Delinquency, uh, where he has served in a capacity for 14 years. I see our, our, our esteemed district attorney, uh, Kamala Harris, and uh, thank you for, for being here. Kamala Harris is the first African-American woman to be elected uh, district attorney in California and the first woman to be elected district attorney in San Francisco. She was elected in 2003. And uh, District Attorney Harris uh, has been a strong supporter of programs that offer rehabilit uh, rehabilitative opportunities to persons who are charged with drug offenses, mental health. And she started really a, a model program that's called Back on Track. And she's going to talk about that. And it helps people who are charged with low level drug offenses obtain wraparound services, including employment, education, housing. She has also developed community-based violence response teams and actually does work in the community uh, to help uh, victims of crime and people who are at risk of being either victims of crime or involved in criminal activities. 
She was recently elected to the National District uh, Attorneys Association uh, Board of Directors, and she's uh, chairing uh, the reentry committee. They actually have a reentry committee for the. We do now. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, Ross Mercurini, who you heard from earlier. Again, I, I want to thank Ross because it was really Ross who pulled this together and had this idea of, uh, of focusing on reentry. And uh, together with the district attorney's uh, reentry uh, council, it, it, th you know, those two forces coming together uh, were responsible for you know, setting uh, this agenda that we're going to be addressing today. And Ross, along with Supervisor Chris Daly and other members of the Budget Committee, also appropriated uh, funding. And so this is a program that's already uh, already in motion and, and going forward. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Thank you. Supervisor Mercurini. Uh, Art uh, Faro is the acting chief of the Adult Probation Department. Uh, he's been in probation, uh, working in probation for uh, since 1985, first in Ventura County uh, and then in San Diego uh, before coming here to San Francisco in uh, 1989. He's worked in every capacity uh, in the uh, probation uh, department and now supervises the work of all the probation officers and uh, support staff. Uh, thanks for being here, Art. Uh, Shirley Poe is the regional uh, parole administrator for uh, uh, region, uh, region 2, which includes Oakland and San Francisco. So she's in charge of parole for the entire uh, Bay Area. She has over 29 years of experience working in, in criminal justice. That's really amazing. And has worked as a state probation officer, as a parole agent, has also served uh, as a hearing officer on the uh, parole board. And in 2003, Shirley has taken on the responsibility of creating a new reform plan um, around parole uh, for the Department of Corrections. So thank you for, for being here, Shirley. Um, Sheriff Mike, Mike Hennessy was elected in uh, 1979. Yeah, I was in high school then, 1979. <laughs> 25 years. So was I, 25 Jim. years. I, I was in high school then, too. <laughs> but so in, in, in all seriousness, uh, you know, he's established himself as really one of the leaders of both innovative and compassionate programs. Um, his program, RSVP, Resolve to Stop the Violence, was featured on Oprah Winfrey. And this is a program that reaches out to persons who are charged with violent offenses, which almost no one, you know, was, was willing to deal with. And what he was able to do is create a program that not only empowered folks, but brought them education, brought them employment, and brought them therapeutic counseling and anger management. He's also started uh, a school isn't this a novel idea, a school uh, for uh, people in jail? And you can actually attend the school. It's called the Five Key, uh, Five Key School while you're in custody. And you can continue on the site that they have out of custody. This is an incredible uh, program. And so uh, with the support of the Reentry Council, uh, Sheriff Hennessy has designed a new program known as the No Violence Alliance to help returning prisoners integrate into society. So thank you very much, uh, Sheriff Hennessy. Um, our our uh, last introduction is Michael Bean. Michael is a, is a personal hero of mine. He is uh, a lawyer who has brought major civil rights lawsuits against state and federal corrections. When you read about all the lawsuits that have been filed, whether it was the Valdivia case, which provided for lawyers uh, at parole hearings 
and uh, also um, change the the time constraints uh, that parole hearings have to be held. Michael Bean was the lead counsel uh, in that case. He has also brought lawsuits challenging health care in the prison system, which resulted in a federal judge taking over uh, health care in the Department of Corrections. And thank you very much for, for being here, uh, Michael. So I'm going to start uh, with some specific questions uh, for each, each, each of our panelists. And you will have an opportunity to ask uh, some questions uh, at the end of the panel. So I'm going to start with our, our district attorney, uh, Kamala Harris. And if, if you could start off by, by telling us, you know, because most people think of the prosecutor as someone that's going to put them in jail, not help them when they get out. And your view uh, is different in the sense that, I mean, you are uh, enforcing the laws and prosecuting individuals who are charged with crime. At the same time, you believe that uh, there should be programs available to help people turn their lives around. Can, can you tell us about your philosophy and uh, perhaps why it's so uncommon? Sure. I mean, I'll share with you all, um, and you all, I'm sure you know, are a very different audience than the audience I speak with when I went to the National District Attorneys Association annual meeting. Um, but I'm going to talk with you a little bit about this issue the way I talked with them. And it was in this context. DAs, elected DAs, are, are the chief law enforcement officer of their jurisdiction. And our primary responsibility is, therefore, to keep our community safe. So when we think about the plan and our responsibility for keeping our community safe, certainly traditionally we think about it in the context of locking up people who harm other people. And often you'll hear DAs talk about it in the context of locking up people for as long as you can. But if you consider that nationally, nationally the statistics show that only about 20% of serious and violent crime results in an arrest. If as the chief law enforcement officer, you are only thinking and planning for a safe community in the context of locking people up for as long as you can, you are necessarily falling short of your responsibilities. Because a vast majority of the crime does not even hit your desk in the first place. So for that reason, is it not a legitimate, if not imperative, responsibility of the district attorney to have a plan not only for effective prosecution of serious and violent crime, but an effective and real plan for crime prevention? Is it not a, the right thing to do in the context not of what we want to do for poor people or marginalized people or people who because we, we want to do good work. Let's not even talk about all that. Just in the context of public safety, is it not the responsibility of law enforcement to engage in a meaningful discussion and plan around crime prevention? So then in that context, let's talk about the work that DAs do and the very unique carrot and stick that we have. Um, I often say, you know, I, the, the mother or the auntie or the grandmother can encourage some young person to go to school get a job, be responsible. I can encourage that same young person to go to school, get a job, be responsible, or go to jail. And that's a very unique incentive. <laughs> and so then what do we do about that? Okay, what do we do with that dynamic? What we should be doing is we should be thinking about reentry. 
Okay, reentry is a relatively new criminal justice concept. I know you've heard a lot about it. I, I give great thanks to Supervisor Mercurimi and our public defender, Jeff Adachi, for putting the summit together and bringing us all together. Reentry is a concept that is, is it's really, a, it makes perfect sense, right? We know statistically when folks come out of the system, they go right back in. So what's our plan? Not in terms of necessarily thinking about rehabilitation. Again, you guys are DAs from around the country, you know, from Biloxi, Mississippi, and places like that. Um, I, I'm not going to talk to you about what it's right to do in terms of necessarily rehabilitation. Let's just talk about reducing the fact that a known individual will commit another crime against you if we don't do something about it to prevent it from happening. Public safety. So let's talk about that. And then that's how and in that spirit that we designed out of my office back on track, which is a program where we have focused on really some of the gateway crime among adults, which is drug sellers. Okay, so and we're looking at the 18 through 24 year old population. And the way we've designed this program is to say that we are going to take them who have in San Francisco a recidivism rate of 47 percent. And we're going to look at what we can do to re-enter them into the community in a way they can be productive. So long story short, that individual gets picked up for selling drugs. That individual is arrested. That individual is charged by my office because I would like to suggest as the prosecutor on the panel, that we should design these programs with an expectation that it's not only the right thing to do, but that we're going to require folks who benefit from these plans to be accountable, to be accountable to themselves and be accountable to their community and take responsibility for themselves and their conduct. So in Back on Track, we designed it in a way that, yes, they'll be charged. Yes, they're going to have to plead guilty because they did commit that offense, but we'll delay sentencing which means that the conviction has not occurred. And then they can voluntarily agree to be in Back on Track. Back on Track is a program where with our partner Goodwill, they go to Goodwill. We create a life plan for them with their help, which includes what's your educational status? What is your housing status? What are you doing in terms of your parenting? Because a lot of these young folks are parents. What are we doing in terms of helping you to parent your children, including getting involved in your children's education? A great partner in Back on Track is the Department of Child Support. Why? Because a lot of these young folks have kids and they owe money for child support. And in a lot of the situations, reality is that the mom is saying, you can't see this child until you pay child support. So everybody is losing in that dynamic. So Karen Roy, the Department of Child Support Services in San Francisco, is a partner in Back on Track to say, let's look at your plan and mitigate your payments if you're in this program look at perhaps eliminating your arrears so that you can get back on track with your child support payments and be the responsible parent that you want to be. Wells Fargo came in and gave us checking accounts for the participants because we expect them to have jobs and pay their bills. The Academy of Art University, call them up. Will you give us some scholarships? Sure. So we have a person, for example, in Back on Track who was picked up for selling drugs in the Bayview. She pled guilty for selling drugs. She got in Back on Track. She now has her GED, and last year she, she completed last semester at the Academy of Art University with a 3.8. So that's about, and as far as I'm concerned, why am I doing it as DA? It's not because I was raised in Berkeley by parents who marched in the Civil Rights Movement. It's not because I went to Howard University or because I'm a Democrat. I'm doing this because I'm a DA, and I believe in smart public safety. And to do these kinds of programs is about part smart public safety. Thank you very much.
I'd next like to go to uh, Sheriff um, Michael Hennessy, and if you could uh, tell us what do you see as the, the primary role of the Sheriff's Department in reentry? And this is obviously an issue you've been involved with uh, for, for some time. And just so people understand the distinction, um, Sheriff Hennessy runs the county jails, uh, not the state prison system. That's true. Right. Thank you, Jeff. Um, well, obviously, uh, people who are arrested on parole violations uh, are held in the county jail. And I noticed on the chart up there it said there are about 125 people facing parole evocation in San Francisco at any one time. They're all in the county jail. Um, so we do have a, a, a significant interaction with people being released from custody uh, on parole. Um, in general, San Francisco has about 2,000 people in jail every day. Um, virtually all of them get out, come back into our communities. And over the years, we've developed a number of, of programs designed to make their uh, reentry uh, better. And these services, for the most part, are available to whether the person is facing state, state charges or whether they're facing uh, local charges only. Uh, we have in-custody programs, which I really won't go into because we're talking about reentry here. But uh, for, in terms of reentry, over the years, uh, we've developed a number of programs. And specifically, uh, we have three different drop-in centers that are, uh, we guide people coming out of our jail to go to, but which are the services are available to any person, uh, any ex-offender, any person coming out of state prison as well. So I'd like to really focus on those three different um, reentry centers or, or service centers that we have. One is located at 70 Oak Grove. Oak Grove is a little alley street about a block and a half um, uh, from the Hall of Justice on just off of uh, Bryant Street. And at 70 Oak Grove, uh, it originally was a program we called PREP, Post-Release Education Program, and it focused on having service counselors there, people who, who did job development, people who referred people to drug treatment program, and uh, programs such as that. Uh, in the past uh, two years, we've also added uh, an, an, uh, an out-of-jail component to our high school. As Jeff pointed out, we have started a, uh, got permission to have a charter high school uh, in our San Francisco County jails, and we recognize that people are not in, in jail, uh, many people are not in jail long enough to finish a high school education, so we have established a wing of our uh, Five Keys Charter High School in our uh, prep center as well. So a person who does not have a high school degree is uh, welcome to come down and, and uh, enter our high school. Uh, we have, we have uh, rolling semesters every month that start, and it's free. And uh, we recognize that if a person does not have a high school degree, there are going to be many job opportunities that they're just not even eligible to walk through the door for. So um, I would encourage uh, any of you service providers uh, to send your clients who don't have a high school degree to 70 Oak Grove, and we can get them in our high school. And they have to meet um, California high school standards. They have to go to school a certain number of hours a day. Um, and they have to pass the famous California exit exam. Uh, in the past uh, two and a half years, we've had about 60 people graduate with their high school degree. And um, in a couple of months, we will have another 15 or 20 graduate with their high school degree. But those services are available to anyone coming out of our jail or any, any uh, ex-offender here in San Francisco coming out of state prison. Uh, at that that center. We also have, as I say, those other services. We have a job developer uh, and we have um, uh, counselors who uh, do a whole service of uh, services for people who are ex-offenders and face all the problems that ex-offenders have. A second service center we have um, is at uh, 120-14th Street, which is actually our sheriff's training building. But in that, in that building, we also have uh, survivor services available. Um, these services were primarily set up originally 
to serve the victims of uh, the crimes of the people who are held in our county jail and specifically in our anti-violence counseling program, RSVP. Uh, but we've expanded those services to be able to provide uh, services to any victim of crime. And, in fact, many ex-offenders uh, are victims of crime. Uh, and many ex-offenders, particularly women, are coming back into um, abusive uh, relationships. And so we do have uh, services there for uh, crime victims. And uh, it may be a family member. It may be uh, a spouse or a loved one. Or it may be the ex-offender himself or herself. And we provide services there uh, on a wide variety wide variety of, uh, of types. And then thirdly, um, at, uh, on Bryant Street, at 930 Bryant Street, the old work furlough building, uh, we've just recently opened a women's resource center. Uh, we recognize that women ex-offenders uh, oftentimes kind of get lost in the, in the mix. Uh, the numbers bear it out that they are anywhere from 13 to, to 20 percent of the uh, population of the uh, uh, prison and jail population, and oftentimes uh, the sort of male-dominated services uh, uh, frighten women away, or women don't feel as, as wanted and, and appreciated and, and feel that their needs are going to be heard. And so we've opened up a women's resource center specifically for ex-offenders at 930 Bryant Street. Um, and it, again, is open not only to people coming out of the county jail, but it's open to um, women coming out of state prison as well or women who just have a criminal history. Uh, we, uh, again, have job development there. We, have, we will have health services there. We don't yet, but we are working with the health department to have health services there. But we have job development there. We have uh, counseling and referrals um, of, all, of all types uh, geared specifically by women counselors for women ex-offenders. And uh, Jeff uh, pointed out that we've recently started a program uh, called NOVA, the No Violence Alliance. Uh, we were given sort of a challenge by the Board of Supervisors to address violence in our community and given uh, a, a bunch of money. Um, and so we put together a concept where we were going to uh, invite people who had been in custody for violent crimes to be involved in a series of, of uh, opportunities. For example, uh, certainly anti-violence counseling would be a mandatory part of it, but we also provide housing. Uh, we also provide uh, the high school opportunity. We also provide um, uh, services uh, such as uh, counseling, mentoring, and, and other, uh, other components of, of the types of support that people need. Uh, this program uh, has gone through the whole uh, RFP and bidding out process, and we've, we've uh, um, partnered with about a half a dozen community-based organizations to provide these services, bringing them together, oftentimes competitors in these, these matters, bringing them together to work uh, on this one unified um, program, and it'll start in October next month uh, with the, the services actually being developed. But this is one of the first times that we've had the opportunity to have funding to provide housing, uh, which is a, a significant component and challenge uh, for many of the people uh, coming out of uh, state prison or out of uh, the county jail. Um, and um, those are, the, those are the, the key services that the San Francisco Sheriff's Department uh, currently presents. And um, if I can editorialize here first, if, since I have the microphone, I don't know if Jess can ask me another question or not. Um, I want to editorialize a, another point. And that is in San Francisco, if you look at U.S. Census uh, data, uh, African Americans in San Francisco are about 8% of the population. That's about, um, about 56,000 if you're looking at the census. At, at the census. 
if you look at the census figures, um, males and females in, in San Francisco rank about 50-50. So if you take the 56,000 African Americans divided in half, you're looking at uh, 28,000 African American males. Um, children, in other words, people under 18, uh, compose about 15% of the general population. And if that would translate into the African American community, you end up coming down to being about 20,000 African-American males uh, in San Francisco. Today there are 1,000 African-American males in the county jail. One out of 20 African-American males in San Francisco is in the county jail today. And you service providers, uh, I would urge you to look at your demographics of your clients and see if you are uh, addressing this issue because uh, it is a devastating uh, has a devastating impact on the African-American community in San Francisco. And uh, among our general interest in reducing crime, reducing jail populations, and providing services to ex-offenders, I, I, I really think we have to make a significant effort to focus in on this community. Thank you. Thank you, Sheriff. Next, I'd like to go to uh, Shirley Pohl, who again is the uh, regional uh, director of the parole programs in the Bay Area. Now, I'm sure you know when you go and speak, uh, sometimes you hear these 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 uh, daunting and gloomy numbers, and you're the one that has to respond to them. And it must be very challenging. And yet, you know, you've seen over your career uh, the ups and downs and sort of the realities of what you're dealing with uh, with the parolee population. Can you talk to us about what you perceive the problem to be with the way the parole system works and um, also give uh, people an, an idea of, of how uh, parole works or how it's supposed to work? Okay, thank you. First of all, let me say that we in the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, we recognize that what we've been doing is not working. Any system that has 165, 69,000 inmates and 116 parolees, we know there's something that we're not doing right. Back in 2003, the legislature mandated that we make changes to the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. We also changed our name. Everyone knows for a long time we were called CDCR, and we were there to punish people. Now we put the R on our name, so we're going to have to show what that R actually means. Well, in 2003, we were looking at what we needed to do to really help prepare inmates for their release onto parole, and then once they were out on to parole, what can we do to provide them the services necessary to help them have a successful parole? So at that time, we identified one of our major problems, which was our reentry. Uh, no pre-parole planning. We lock people up, put them in custody, in prison for years, and some of them are in shoe for years. And then we open the gates and let them out and say, give them $200 and a bus ticket. And basically, in essence, we say good luck to you. 
Now, we know that doesn't work. So we decided that what we had to do was to begin pre-parole, pre-release planning early on. So we took a look at a system that we can implement in the prison that would begin to do that. So we started what we call our parole planning and placement program. And it actually was very slow in implementing. We really started about the end of 2004. And that program works like this. We have a staff of... Uh, parole agents and parole service associates in the prison. Eight months before an inmate is released, now I want to remind you in case somebody's saying, well, my son or daughter or my friend didn't get this service. Initially when the program started, we only had funding and the ability to uh, service first-time releasees and parole violators with a new term. So those were the only people actually getting pre-release plans. So what happens is the parole agent and the parole service associate, they actually have a face-to-face -face interview with the parolee, again, eight months prior to them getting out, and they talk about what their plans are, and they also apply an evidence-based assessment tool, which we call ComStat. And that assessment tool, once they get all the information from the parolee, they look in their C file, they get all their criminal history, then that um, evidence-based tool will give them a risk score, and also it will talk about what their needs are. So no longer do we have to rely solely on an agent subjective, and I'm not saying that negative, I'm saying that's all we had at the time. No longer do we have to rely on their subjective opinions as to what a parolee or an inmate being on to parole actually needs. We have a social worker who's part of that team. The social worker is in the community, and that social worker's job is to begin, once the assessment is done and the needs are determined, that social worker begins to prepare those services necessary for that parolee when he or she comes out into the community. Now, a lot of people have said, well, why didn't you put the social worker in the prison with the team? Well, we need the social worker out here in the community networking with all of you community-based organizations to set up the program prior to the inmate getting out. Because the issue really has to do with there should not be a system where a parolee walks, an inmate walks out of the door, doesn't know what to do, has nowhere to go, has no hope because what happens they revert to what they know and that's surviving so we're trying to cut down on the inmate having to determine what they need to do the day they get out and make sure those services are in place also another component that we uh, determined was necessary you've heard all the statistic about uh, we sent back 118,000 parolees uh, for technical violations. That story is a little deeper than most people tell because they don't know because they're not out there doing that. Some, some of the parolees we sent back for technical parole violations is actually based on public safety. We've attempted to program. They won't program. What on the surface appears to be a simple refusal to go into a drug treatment program is not the whole story. So I just want to make that clear. However, we recognize that we do return too many people back to custody because we did not have the services in the community to assist them. So we started what we call a sanction program. Well, everyone heard that uh, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, my boss actually, uh, decided that the program wasn't working. So we don't have the alternative sanction programs in place currently. However, we decided that we would 
we would take our focus in a little in another direction. We still have some programs. We have what we call the Preventing Preventing uh, Crime Program, and this program actually has a residential multi-service program connected with it. You have one here in San Francisco. Also, we have a in-custody drug treatment program. That is a 60-day program where a parolee goes in custody in Santa, well, let's see, they're going in Santa Clara actually right now. And they can dry out and go through a drug education program. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, they're in custody, but their parole is not suspended. So there's no adverse effect to them. It gives them an opportunity to dry out. It gives them an opportunity to have some drug education. And additionally, we have connected with that drug treatment once they get out. We had that program once before, but the problem with it, we would put them in custody to dry out and then once again open the door and say, don't use again, don't mess up, and we didn't provide any drug treatment. So now the aftercare component, is we've really seen some success with that program. Additionally, when a parolee is released in California, that parolee has to attend our police and corrections team program. It's called PAC. PAC is a pro-orientation meeting designed to connect parolees with community-based organizations. So once that parolee hits the street, they have to attend a PAC program. Normally the programs here in San Francisco, it's every other week. And at the PAC program, we have community-based organizations that talk about their programs, and they begin to connect immediately with the parolee. Even though we have plans in place for parolee. We tell them where to go with the pre-release program. Some of them are very apprehensive because it's outside of their comfort zone. So we found that a lot of them wouldn't attend, but if they come to PAC in an environment they feel comfortable in, in community-based organizations who are there saying, I'm attempting to help you, it actually alleviates some of their anxieties. We have a lot of other programs that we're trying to uh, put in place. We're trying to expand our computer literacy lab program. This allows parolees in the community who need to increase their uh, grade point average or they need to learn how to read, they need to get their GED, then they can attend this program. Currently, there's not one in San Francisco. I'm having dialogue with our programs unit, and we're attempting to get one. We recognize that we have a long way to go in the California Department of Correction. I tell you, everywhere I go, and this has been my story, <laughs> I feel like the girl who came to the party nobody liked. <laughs> and, uh, I don't mean that personally, but I mean in terms of with the Department of Corrections. We really recognize that we haven't done a good job. We're working with community-based organizations to improve. The Department of Corrections really was a closed system. No one really knew about us. When I started 20-some-odd years ago, I would say I was from the parole division. No one really knew about us. And to be honest with you, I think that's the way people liked it for a long time because people wanted to say crime is not in my backyard. And now we have people like yourself and and people that I'm sitting at this table with who come in to us saying, how can we help you? And that's what we need because the Department of Correction cannot do it on our own. We don't have the resources. We don't have the knowledge. We don't have the services. We need all of you as partners, and that's what we're attempting to do. And I hope before I retire that I can come to a meeting and I can talk about all the wonderful things 
that we're doing and have the statistics to back us up. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we, we like you, Shirley, and oh, uh, you. <laughs> we look forward to working with you. Thank you. Uh, next, I, I'd like to uh, uh, call on uh, Dr. Uh, Barry Crisper. And you've done a lot of studies, both on the youth corrections as well as adult corrections over the years. And what programs that you've seen have measurable outcomes? Because that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about looking at what the outcomes are, whether that's somebody having a job, somebody completing a GED, somebody getting a college education. What have you seen? What have you experienced? What do we need? Thanks, Jeff. Um, let me start with the bad news and then the good news. Um, the bad news is most of the research uh, is, is quite discouraging. Uh, Urban Institute did a major study basically showing that there was absolutely no difference between prisoners who were released directly and people who had parole supervision. Countless studies of intensive supervision show no positive results. Uh, I've completed a multi-year study of a juvenile program called the Intensive Aftercare Program. Feds poured millions of dollars into it. It had all the bells and whistles. Uh, in four jurisdictions, there was absolutely no difference between uh, the young people who got the uh, uh, this intensive program and and those who just got the usual. Most recently, I think a lot of people's hearts were broken by uh, a Vera Institute study of Project Greenlight in New York. Again, Greenlight had all the bells and whistles, cognitive, behavioral, whatever, you know, case management. I mean, all the things that you learn about in the schools of social work. And the New York research, very carefully done, showed that actually people directly released from New York prisons did better than the Greenlight clients. Why? I would, I, I would draw two conclusions from this. Uh, I would say don't bet on uh, public employees uh, to be your principal deliverers of service. Uh, if, if what you're going to do is rely upon people who want to work 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, and mostly sit in uh, government offices, it's a loser. Uh, getting outside your comfort zone is a tough thing to do. And in all of these programs, the, the, the principal deliverers of services were state employees, few of whom lived in the neighborhoods or communities that the parolees came from. Secondly, uh, at the risk of offending people, which sometimes I do, I think these programs teach us that the strategy of let them eat therapy doesn't work. Uh, we've depended too much on the idea that uh, parolees are sick and we need to give them therapy, and if only we could get their them to think correctly, which is what all these cognitive behavioral things do, that that would solve their problems. The answer is it doesn't solve their problems. Uh, you know, it may be part of what you do, but it's certainly uh, uh, investing hev heavily in therapists of a variety of type has proven no results. Now, what does the research tell us? The research tells us some very basic things, uh, that people who are succeed uh, are people who get jobs, people who have safe places to live, people who come back into supportive communities, and people who have some kind of stable family relations uh, uh, that they can come back into. Uh, that's what the research on successful people coming out of prison tells us. Uh, now the good news. 
we can see some of these programs. In fact, we can see some excellent programs right in our city. Uh, a short bus ride takes us to Delancey Street, which is one of the most outstanding reentry programs in this country. The research is very positive. It's been positive for years. And if you reflect on Delancey Street, again, Delancey Street residents have a safe place to live. They have a supportive community. The principal people who are working with Delancey Street residents are former or current Delancey Street residents, uh, people who have been there. As I like to say, uh, I've walked in your shoes, now you need to walk in mine, is kind of the, the, the Delancey Street philosophy. Um, so Delancey Street provides all of these things, and while it's an, an amazing program that maybe can't be easily replicated, it gives us a sense of where we need to go. I would add that on a smaller scale, but also very effective, the Center for Young Women's Development is another example of a program uh, which is self-help, guided by people who have been there, and very practical and pragmatic in, in its approach. Um, so I think that's the direction we're going. Now, as, as to uh, a broader direction that I would like to suggest, uh, I'm reminded of uh, former Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill's statement that all politics are local. Well, I, I, I want to say all reentry is local, which is why I applaud the supervisor's initiative in the city and why I think this is the way to go. Because parolees don't drop from, prisoners don't drop from the sky into prisons. They don't go back into outer space. They come from real communities. They go back to real communities. And unless you get those communities engaged and owning the reentry process, uh, you can waste a lot of money on programs, and it's not going to get any place. And I think what's happening here in San Francisco and happening in San Mateo, Santa Barbara, San Diego right now, and other places, is a strategy of mobilizing at the local level. Because, again, when you think about all the things that somebody needs getting out of prison, a place to live, that's a municipal level issue. Jobs, that's the local labor force. Mentors, supportive communities, that's usually the faith community. Health care, local. Um, there's very little that the Department of Corrections can do except fund good programs and maybe get, stay out of people's way. Uh, and, and, and so I don't point fingers. I mean, it's, it's easy to point fingers at the Department of Corrections, but they have an, uh, almost an impossible job. Last but not least, I want to suggest that in this last session, one of the things that we were trying to push very heavily uh, with the support of Senator Mike Machado, uh, is what we called an adult challenge grant program. Some of you know that in the juvenile area, we had a very successful program. The state put out money. Counties uh, bid, won grants, very good research, et cetera. And we had some very successful juvenile reform programs around this state, which some of us think contributed to the decline in the state youth population in part. Uh, we've been advocating that the state put a substantial amount of money in the first year Machado was proposing $25 million, where individual counties could do their own planning, come up with their own priorities of what would work best for them, since the plan for Fresno is not the same plan for San Francisco. And then the state ought to be fu funding effective, smart programs that come from the local level. Uh, that, it seems to me, is, is, is the spirit of... of uh, all reentry is local. And until we get to real local buy-in and participation, uh, 
you know, I, I, I don't know what the Department of Corrections can do. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're managing a unbelievable crisis, third world prison conditions, a riot that might break out at any moment. I mean, they're up to their eyeballs, you know, just trying to, to keep people alive. Uh, I don't think we're going to expect that they're going to provide leadership in, in, in the reentry area more than in a small extent, although there are a lot of good people who want to do the right thing. So, again, my emphasis is local, community, uh, people who have been there and who can really work with offenders because they understand the challenges that they face. Thank you. Next, we're going to uh, ask Art Forrell, the acting chief of the Adult Probation Department, to talk about the role that adult probation plays in reentry and what kind of resources are available through probation. What sort of challenges are, are you facing now? Thank you, Jeff. And uh, I'd like to thank everyone here for basically inviting uh, the Adult Probation Department system to this forum. As you all know, this 171,000 people that are currently incarcerated in the state prison system has to come from somewhere. Unfortunately, they do come from the adult probation system. Every one of those offenders that go into the state prison system must have a sentencing report conducted on each and every one of them. What troubles me as a probation officer for the last 20 years is that those sentencing reports that we've done, even though they contain a lot of meaningful information about that individual, social information, their social status in, in the community, their family statuses, their economic statuses, their educational statuses. We conduct these reports. They have all this information on there about their literacy issues, their mental health issues, their substance abuse issues, and what, do we, what can we do about them on a local level. But unfortunately, as the state has seen it fit, what has happened is the probation systems throughout the state, and there are 360,000 people that are on probation in the state today, have seen it fit to fund other systems, other higher levels of systems, and adult systems throughout the state have sat there and suffered. In our department here on the local level, we have 8,500 people that are currently under the jurisdiction of the adult probation department. 2,000 of which received some type of meaningful services because we have them in domestic violence court. We have them in behavior health court. We have them in drug court. We have them in uh, under the sex offender management programs. We have them in some of our gang offender programs. We have them in the habitual offender programs. But there's still 6,000 people out there who are just sitting on caseloads of 300 folks on up. Where does reentry fall into that whole process? You see it right there. I don't want to see 6,000 people to be that next wave of people going to the state prison system. And somehow what we all have to learn and understand is that the local service system here has to deliver some type of meaningful supervision or meaningful services to that group so that they don't become part of that overall system. I, I'm, I'm proud to say that at least on some levels now with this reentry process, whether it be here at this, on this level, on the county level, or whether it be with the reentry processes with the district attorney, the programs that are being enacted by the Sheriff's Department, the programs, the meaningful programs that some of the courts are doing, that some of those services are reaching to some people. But it can't just be some people. It's got to be all people. And 6,000 people desperately need some type of services so that we can move them away from that track of going to the state prison system and hopefully pro provide, uh, make them go into the path 
of becoming productive people in our communities. So that, that, that's one of the challenges we face. And, you know, frankly, where, where, where it has to be put down to is it has to be put down to that officer that, and that, that caseload. Meaningful services mean exactly what, what it means. I need to spend some time with that person in order for me to redirect, reassess, and re-refer this person to services that you all provide out there in the community. Unfortunately, with 300 people on up, I don't know if that's going to be really feasible or possible. But somehow, some impact needs to be driven into that whole equation because, yes, they do come from the local level system. We have to look at providing meaningful services that's pertinent in San Francisco on a local system. And, you know, I'll just share with you one story that I had to deal with a gentleman at one time or another. He was, a, he was on, a, on a low type of, uh, of offense here in, on probation in our county. He at one time had a union card. He at one time had uh, an, a, a track where he was going to become a productive person in, in society. Unfortunately, he got sidetracked somewhere. So here we are with a person stuck in San Francisco. His union card is, is null and void because he's back due on his dues that he needed to pay. His tools are in hawk because he hawked them in the pawn shop somewhere. His training program is in Hayward. And so what, where can we, what do we need to do with that person? Well, what I personally did with that person was, A, get his tools out of, out of, out of hawk, find some resources to put that person into a much more better situation with his union dues, and then drove him personally all the way out to Hayward so he or she, so that person could get the training so he could get his union card filled and provide some kind of uh, venue for him to get it out of the system. Well, that kind of work is what's really needed. That kind of basic work is what's needed with each and every one of these 6,000 individuals. And my hope is that with collaboration from you all along with this reentry process, we could get there. And that, that's some of the things that we, we are facing as a probation system. Thank you. Our next uh, panelist is, is Terry Anders. And uh, Terry can speak from two places. One, uh, a person who has been through the system and has not only uh, survived but succeeded. And the council thought it was very important that we have the voices of formerly incarcerated people here today, um, not just on the videotapes, but in person. And you'll see on each one of the panels, uh, there are at least two or three formerly incarcerated individuals uh, who will be speaking to you today, some who have just been out for a short period of time. Uh, but, but Terry has, has, has also uh, created a program, and it's sometimes a one-person program, where he's out helping to train uh, parolees uh, to find jobs. And if you call him at 7 o'clock in the morning, guaranteed he'll be picking somebody up for work because he understands that's the kind of support they need. Terry? Thank you. I'd like to uh, acknowledge uh, the chair, Jeff Adachi, and the distinguished uh, panels that I'm working with. Uh, yes, uh, I'm in the Bayview, Hunters Point. And uh, I like to say, you know, uh, I'm right on the razor edge. <laughs> But the uh, reality is not only where I came from, it's where I am today. And uh, where I came from helped shape me to get to where I am today. I do not, uh, you know, I always say, like when I go down to the uh, parole meeting, you know, last time I was in the criminal justice system, I was looking at 140 years, robbed seven banks. 
But, you know, I don't glorify that. But that was the bedrock that gave me the inspiration to get where I am today. People that uh, helped support me, Walden House, there was a federal, there was a federal judge, the name I won't, uh, won't name, but uh, she saw me as a person who uh, was in trouble. And really, literally. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah. No, not, not, in the, not in the figurative sense of what I had did, but actually how I got to be where I was. And for that, you know, I write that lady to this day. And I've been clean 17 years. Yeah. I'm a uh, member of the Iron Workers Union Local 377 here in San Francisco. Uh, I, I've retired. I've been a member for 30 years. So I have a pretty unique track record with the organized labor. And I believe in the ability of work. You know, because like I, you know, share with, with uh, some of the uh, clients that I uh, deal with, in order to deal with the system, you got to get out of the system. And uh, I have this organization that actually make an effort to help support the men and women, because they are my special population, men and women in and out of prison, and men and women in and out of drug addiction. Why? Because I was one of them many, many times. <laughs> so, so, so I know what it takes to get out of that system. And so I make an effort to case manage the opportunities about, you know what, I'm going to help get you this job. Or I'm going to help try to get you where you're trying to go. And if they are in a halfway house, if they have just got out of prison and they call me and ask me if I can help them, I always say yes. I will help you. And that's what I do. And you know what, that gives me a good feeling to get up in the morning because I remember when I couldn't do that. I remember when I wouldn't do that. And so the population that I work with today, they have a real negative impact on the communities if there ain't somebody out there trying to help change their life in a positive way and let them know that they can do something different in a positive way and help walk them through. Like uh, when the uh, uh, chief probation officer was saying about taking somebody to their apprenticeship class that used to be down in Santa Clara and now it's up in Venetia, or helping a woman get to a safety meeting class with hazmat and then trying to deal with somebody in that group will they give this woman a ride back to San Francisco and then there's no response. I come back and get her when that class is over because you know what? Because I took her there. And I want to make certain that, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the hands-on experience that I deal with as far as making an effort to help support the people in the various communities, especially Bayview, uh, my mission statement is educate to help break the cycle of recidivism through job opportunities. And I'll say that again. Educate to help break the cycle of recidivism through job opportunities. Because if you don't have no money, what are you going to do? If you don't have no money, what are you going to do? All right. So the opportunities that I afford in organized labor with the apprenticeship program, you don't have to know nothing. 
They will teach you and they will pay you while you learn. So, so, so this is why I afford the opportunity to the men and women that I work with. Because a lot of them don't have the job skills. A lot of them don't have the wherewithal about how to get where they're trying to go. And even after they get the job, they still call me. And I'm still available. Still available. Because you know what? It takes more than that. It takes that trust. It takes that person with that understanding. You know what? We're going to do this. Not me, but we're going to do this. See? And that's why I am so glad to be a part of this process today. That's why I'm so glad to be a part of this distinguished panel. Because I remember when I wouldn't do that. When I was on the other side. And I know what to do about breaking that cycle of recidivism and why it's so important. Especially in my community. Especially in the Bayview. Because of the fact, I know that there is some positive and healthy and prosperous individuals willing to take a stand for the people that they're trying to help support. I know that because I'm one of them. Thank you. I think you're going to be very popular after this panel, Terry, and uh, <laughs> we're going to have to clone about 100 of you. Uh, I'd next like to go to uh, Michael Bean, and, and, and Michael has, um, in many cases, I mean, turned his legal talent towards helping the most vulnerable uh, in our society, and, and that is formerly incarcerated individuals and their families. And, you know, California has more lawyers than I think any other state or country, um, but most of the lawyers aren't involved in, in helping the poor. And... Michael Bean has not, not only done that, but he has focused his efforts to really create systematic change uh, in the, in the uh, prison system. Michael? Thank you very much, Jeff. First of all, I'd like to say that I'm one of many lawyers in the uh, Bay Area who's involved in prison reform litigation, uh, parole reform litigation, and uh, <coughs> these, uh, we're in a real mess, as, as we all know here in this room, um, and, and we're in a situation right now where um, the federal courts are left with the responsibility that they have and will, will uh, exercise, but reluctantly. Uh, the federal courts are left with the responsibility to make decisions about how we are treating our citizens, our brothers and sisters and uh, parents and children, who are incarcerated, are we going to treat them like human beings or are we going to treat them like animals? Uh, California's been treating them like animals, and that's affecting reentry. Um, the cases that we've been involved with and, and involved some very basic human rights in prison, uh, do you provide someone with access to a doctor? California does not. Okay, That's why Judge Felton Henderson here in San Francisco um, uh, as again, reluctantly, um, after extensive hearings where California came in and said, we don't know how to do it. We have failed. We agree that we are a failure, said, I have to appoint a receiver uh, to take over the medical care system. Um, this is after years of attempting to work with the state and after years of the state failing. I'm involved in, in a case <clears throat> involving mental health care in the prisons 
We won a judgment in 1995 that the CDC was violating the Constitution and how it provided mental health care. <clears throat> we are only making small steps. And right now, in 2006, we have a long, long way to go <coughs> to fix the problems that were identified in 1995. Um, there's been progress, but we have a long way to go. What does this have to do with reentry services? If people in prison are not provided with basic health care, basic mental health care, if they're not provided the chance to get an education, if they're not provided with job training, then what are they going to do when they get out? Um, Shirley uh, Poe, who I've worked with over the years, is one of many people, and, she, and she's right. People literally come out of the SHU, the Secured Housing Unit, where they've been treated like animals for their lives. They're not allowed out of the cell without chains and two guards sitting there you know, with batons looking at them every single time they come in and out of that cell. Their term's up. Suddenly, they're citizens again, and they're released with $200. And guess what? They fail. Why shouldn't they fail? What have we done for them? So one of the things we're focusing on is in the prison, basic stuff. But let's talk about what we're talking about here, the people who are going to get out, reentry services. Um, the state has made some uh, small, small steps, but has a long, long way to go. What, what are the things we need to do? One, we don't apply for benefits, veterans benefits, Social Security benefits, for people in prison. Other states do. This is not that hard. Okay? People are eligible for benefits. I'm, my work focuses on the people who have the least chance of success. People with serious mental illness, diagnosed. What are we trying to get for them? Some things we've succeeded. We have managed, after years and years, to manage to get the guy a prescription for medication. This was a battle. And 30-day supply and an appointment with a parole outpatient clinic, with a psychiatrist, to renew that medication. This has taken years and years, okay? Um, but we still can't get them, the same person, we can't get them to start their benefits application while they're in prison. So when they get out, they might get on SSI. So what are the chances of succeeding without money, without a place to live, without job training. Um, I'm also involved in this case called Valdivia, which has been designed to reform the parole revocation process, provide attorneys for people in parole revocation, make sure the parole revocation is, is fair. And one of the things that we're most excited about in this process, on the first day that Governor Schwarzenegger took office, he signed a federal court order in Valdivia that agreed not only to provide the attorneys for 100% of the men and women facing parole revocation, but also to provide alternatives to incarceration, remedial sanctions. Um, instead of putting people back in prison for technical parole violation, we would start looking at drug treatment programs, uh, com community-based lock programs, the kind of services that people in this room provide as an alternative to incarceration. Um, I think um, Mr. Leno talked about the Valdivia settlement talks about a reduction in the prison population. At that point, they were talking about closing prisons, 
closing prisons. They were identified a series of prisons that were going to be closed. They actually shut down the Correctional Officer Academy. They shut it down. They stopped hiring guards and training guards. This all happened since Schwarzenegger was elected, okay, because they had this plan. And if they had done that plan, the population would have been reduced, and we would be at a different, different level. Um, it is correct that a group, a victims' rights group ran ads, the administration chickened out, and the program was ended. So that's where we are now. Um, uh, we're now under, we have court orders to try to put these programs back in place, um, and they are slowly being put back in place. But as you know, how hard it is to set up a program and get people to believe in it and to convince parole agents and hearing officers that's okay to not send the guy back to prison, but to put him in this alternative, give him another chance. When we pull the rug out from under these men and women, it's going to be very hard to put it back. So right now we're, we're, we're trying to get people to say it's okay not to slam this guy back into prison each time he doesn't show up for an appointment. It's okay to give him another chance. It's okay to let him stay in the community. Um, but we have a long way to go. Um, I agree with uh, Barry that this is a public sa and everyone else here, this is a public safety issue. We don't really gain any public safety when we put someone back in prison for a technical parole violation. Last year, 50,000 of the new admits in the prison system were for parole violations with a sentence of three and a half months or less. 50,000. I'm going to tell you a story of one of them, then I'll, I'll shut up. But a man named Mr. Williams is a homeless man. He went to prison originally for stealing uh, a bottle of soda from a grocery store. Two years, okay? Um, he paroled uh, three times in 2005. Three times. Um, not to San Francisco, and that's one of the reasons uh, he this horrible story happened. Each time, he's a severely mentally ill man. Um, the system knew he was mentally ill. Um, he would be released with no planning, no benefits. He would get to his county of residence. He'd get in trouble within a day or two. They'd call the parole agent, and they'd bring him back. Um, give him a little services and reception. Let him out again. Same thing would happen. The third time, he came into a system that is getting more so overcrowded that when he came in, they kind of got lost. Uh, he was mentally ill, and he didn't get the right services. He was locked in a cell that was not a health care cell, and this is happening more and more. Our prisons are really, really horrible right now. I mean, they're the worst they can be. Um, people are being housed in things that aren't cells. They're being housed in cages without bathrooms. They're... The guards are doing triple overtime, and everyone is stressed out of their mind. And this man was kind of lost and was put in a cell that he shouldn't have been in. And uh, someone saw that he was suicidal. They said, put him on suicide watch, but he wasn't in a mental health facility. Anyway, he died during that night. Um, no one really knows whether it was a suicide or, or what, but he was dead. And the last parole violation, you know why they put him into prison? He didn't do anything wrong. They said, we're putting him into prison for mental health care. We can't find any services in the community. 
That's what it says on his parole violation. So I charge, it's, and it wasn't the parole agent's fault, and it wasn't the prison system's fault. I think it's all of our fault as a society. What are we supposed to do with these people who are the most vulnerable? What are we doing when we run a great program? Do we really accept the mentally ill in that program? A lot of the drug treatment programs don't accept people who are mentally ill. Um, what are we doing for that population? That's the population that has the highest recidivism rate. They fail more than anyone else. In prison, they cost not $35,000, they cost close to $100,000 to take care of a mentally ill person in prison. Let's say we took ten dollars or $20,000 and gave it to some of you guys. <laughs> Could you develop a program for house these people, make sure they got their medications, help them get their benefits? If we did that, there is, there, we've identified 20% of the population in the California prison system today that have serious mental illness. Same 20% are in, on parole. Those people can stay out of prison if there are programs in the community that help them. I think parole looks, is looking for those programs. And if they don't find them, they have no other choice but to bring those people back. So we need, we need great ideas. We need people that are willing to take care of this very difficult population. Thank you. I'm going to now ask uh, Supervisor Ross Mercarimi uh, to talk about what the impact uh, has been on our communities here in San Francisco and what can we do to all work together uh, to address some of the, the issues that have been raised uh, this morning. Thank you, Jeff. And I want to say how honored it is to be up on the dais here with all the distinguished panelists and scholars uh, who have been working so hard on this question of public safety and recidivism. As I said in my opening remarks, certainly as San Francisco um, grapples, I think, with uh, staggering and uh, sustained spikes of crime rates, especially violent crime, um, there is another sort of um, more violent uh, but yet more visible um, sort of stream that I think that we have yet to recognize, and that's the violence of, I think, indifference and inaction, and the complacency that I believe that many municipalities um, really suffer from because I think of the over-reliance that they place on the state government or the federal government um, to address, I think, these questions about those who are being incarcerated and what is to become of them once they exit from the prison system. There is clearly a very disproportionate ratio that while our state, which is demonstrated like Texas, its desire to just continuously to build more prisons and its um, you know, need to incarcerate and continuously uh, to incarcerate, uh, which mirrors sort of the federal strategy, but yet what is not in sync with that is the funds to address the need for those who would be coming out of the prison system before that they come out and certainly as they would integrate back into society. So naturally, that deflects the responsibility onto municipalities. And because of the sheer numbers of parolees, formerly incarcerated, that are coming out of the prison system that come back to the place um, where they 
had once lived or where they decide to live, um, then it becomes the local government's sort of burden to shoulder um, if they are able to, I think, reconcile what was not able to be satisfied by the state um, and be able to um, shore up what wasn't um, necessarily achieved before. And that is a huge, huge weight to put on our local government. And if we don't recognize, I think, the long emergency, and that long emergency is the fact that while newspapers project headlines of violent crime, what has always been the long emergency in San Francisco, and while we see blips of it, there is still the sustained trend of just how many uh, formerly incarcerated people live in San Francisco actually repeat their offenses. The statistic that was mentioned earlier um, which really has some connection and relationship to some degree here in San Francisco about the fact that San Francisco's uh, African-American population is at about 8%. That's not necessarily correct of today's year. It's about 6%. And of all the major cities in the United States, next to the cities that were um, engulfed by Hurricane Katrina, San Francisco is losing its African-American population faster than any other city in the United States. That is, part of, that is part of the long emergency, and you cannot disconnect the reality that when we see the fact that 70% per se of those who are repeating their offenses, of that 70%, it's literally 80% of that category happen to be from the African-American community because it is also of that figure that is the community that is also incarcerated either locally or in statewide of a population emanating from San Francisco. What that does is then catapults the very responsibility or obligation back onto the local government to try to do what the state has obviously admitted that they can't. And so it requires us to innovate the kind of strategies that many of us are talking about and proudly the kind of programs that I certainly support emanating from the sheriff's department and from the public defender and the district attorney and others who are working with all wherewithal applied to this direction. But even when we launched this effort last year to convene this Council of Safe Communities Reentry, what was even more alarming to me was the fact that we didn't even know what the other sort of group was doing. The, right, the old adage of not knowing what the right hand and the left hand was doing on the kind of programs towards reentry. I frankly like the idea of creating a department of reentry here in San Francisco. I think that creating... I think by creating a department such as this is not necessarily, you know, another politician's answer for rearranging the deck chairs, but quite frankly, what I'd like to see is having, you know, a repository that we can actually pinpoint some measurable goals and measurable outcomes that with all the great talent that is associated in this room here today and those who couldn't be here, yet we would be able to know under one roof exactly where from beginning to end cradle to grave along the assembly line process, where it is we succeed and fail and where we need to certainly shore up, I think, our vision in order to make, I think, what we're all here um, hoping to achieve uh, successful. But yet we also have to start with the premise that while even in this country and even in the city, um, what 
you know, we would like to certainly present is a land that uh, provides for infinite possibility. It, our populations are torn by inequality. And unless that, you know, we understand, you know, sort of the racism and classism institutionally in, in particular that uh, continues to exist on many levels, even in cities that are as progressive as San Francisco, then if we don't see that, then we're not sort of connecting, I think, the dots to exactly why we continue to suffer high poverty rates. And if you look at the way they calculate poverty in San Francisco, unless it's a slight tweaking for the cost of living for San Francisco, in the federal government's eyes, it's the same dollar amount as it would for be Mississippi. It doesn't make any sense. And that, in light of the very reality of what we have to live with, plus people are coming out of the prison system, and according to the Little Hoover Commission, for California parolees, only two out of ten actually decide to access services, and of that population, 50% are illiterate, and of that 50% are illiterate, only 10% have decided to only participate in literacy labs, then in a tsunami-like social crisis and economic crisis, it then just comes tumbling down in local government's lab, which is why I like this idea of creating a department of reentry, because what it does is it consolidates everybody who needs to be held accountable. And it allows all of us to use with sort of the fishbowl kind of lens to make sure that those who are accountable are doing their job. It doesn't make sense that the adult probation department per adult probation officer or juvenile probation officer may have anywhere of a caseload between 100 to 200 per officer. What good are they going to do with a caseload like that? We've already hit sort of a paralyzed state. And what good is it if we're passing laws in the local government that really might seem simple and meaningful, but yet really doesn't effectuate the intended goal of like trying to get our people hired in sort of areas of employment where there is crime-impacted communities that correlate sort of with the impoverishment of a community, and yet we're not providing incentives to those employers, well, I think we can get creative about that. I like the idea of us trying to not necessarily always rely on, you know, the strong works of goodwill or of other agencies to help place people, but where's the local government's responsibility in saying, you want to set up business in San Francisco? Well, we'd like you to hire some people who were formerly incarcerated. And provide incentives that I think that would actually help make people feel positive in all ends. In fact, recently, several months ago, I visited our state employment offices, the EDD, and I asked them this question about something that I've been very curious about. And that is, is that there's actually bonding, a surety bonding, that is provided for for employers who would hire somebody who's formerly incarcerated. So I looked at the inventory, just out of curiosity, actually how many surety bonds had been um, solicited by employers in 2006. Now we're in the uh, coming to the uh, 10th month of 2006, and in San Francisco, five were all just five. Now five in an, in in a city where we have. 
15 plus hundred parolees, any thousands of others of probationers, and when we look in kind of an unemployment rate, especially in areas that correlate with high crime in itself, something has failed in the system. So I said, okay, let's quit relying on EDD. Maybe perhaps in San Francisco we'll pick up the pace, look for some mechanism that allows so that the city tries to incentivize to employers that you'll hire this person who's formerly incarcerated, and if you're a little apprehensive, then we'll also try to find a mechanism that gives you that assuring guarantee so that you don't feel that that risk is only unilaterally shouldered. And those are the kind of programs... And those are the kind of programs that I believe that together with everything that's been shared up here is exactly why I think that we can make the inroads. But to make those inroads is to speak honestly about the socioeconomic conditions of the very cities we live in and those conditions that also, of course, are going to compound the handicaps of those who are coming out of the prison system and knowing the high walls that they have to face. Thank you very much. Okay, we, we, have to, we have time for about four uh, questions, and keep in mind we'll have a networking opportunity later. Now, when I say questions, we have an open mic here. When I say questions, I mean questions, not speeches, not autobiographies, uh, just questions. And so, again, we only have time for about four or five. Before we do that, I'm, I'm going to ask if any of the panelists have any comments um, that they'd want to uh, make. Uh, D.A. Harris. Thank you, uh, Jeff. I think that it's important. There's a lot, been a lot of talk about the prison system, and um, and I and I do believe Barry that there is a role for for CDCR uh, to step up, and in particular, recognizing that reentry really begins at the point that someone is sentenced for the crime. Reentry should begin at the point that we are sentencing them to state prison, and creating a plan at that moment that will include a partnership with CDCR in terms of the plan during the time they're incarcerated that will be consistent with the plan we will have after they're released. Uh, so that's one point I'd like to make. The second point is that let us please also remember that the other point that Barry made, and I think many people have made, it is local in terms of our ability to be effective. We've got so many resources, natural resources, at the local level that really make reentry real. And for that reason, please keep in mind the, the, the strength and significance of having meaningful reentry programs around those who have not yet been sent to state prison but have been sent to the county jail, who have been arrested or convicted of felonies and perhaps have not been sentenced to any time but maybe credit for time served. And what we can do, again, at a local level, given the carrot and stick that we have in the criminal justice system, to create incentives for, for positive behaviors. Uh, we do have programs available out of the mayor's office which have been building and we're building on around the issue of workforce development and, and creating uh, partnerships and, and promises and contracts with the private sector around jobs. And back on track, we've been able to do that. And with the San Francisco Reentry Council, we have done that. The San Francisco Chamber of Commerce, for example, is a partner, as is the San Francisco Labor Council. And they have all made commitments to get the back-on-track participants' jobs. So I think it's important that we know in this room that there is a reason to be optimistic, 
because good work is happening. And part of, I think, the reason for convening is to build on that and to become even more collaborative in the way we get that work done. It also bears noting that there's a real responsibility, and I see Judge Donaldson here, there's a real responsibility and role for the courts to play in reentry. And in that regard, in Back on Track, for example, we set up a court, the Back on Track Court, and I think you all would be happy to know that Judge Delton Henderson is one of the judges who reviews the progress of each of the participants. And, you know, we all want to please Judge Henderson. And, um, and so there are incentives that are being created through the court system with judges who are volunteering to be a part of this process of making reentry meaningful. Okay, now we're going to go to uh, questions again. We only have a limited amount of time, so please be respectful and uh, state your name. And, um, you know, if you're with a group or organization, what that association is, um, and your question to the panel. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Good morning. My name is Felicia Jones, and I am a case manager and facilitator at the San Francisco Sheriff's Department, <coughs> Rose to Recovery. And first of all, let me say thank you for all of you for attending the summit. I think it's very well needed. One of my questions is this. Within um, Rose to Recovery, I am one of the case managers and facilitators, but within the jail, I also work with young people between the ages of 18 to 30, in which I developed a mentoring group called Discovering Your True Selves. And Discovering Your True Selves are these individuals, mainly 18 to 26, who really identify themselves in feel that their life is based upon money, sex, drugs, guns, and rap. And in other words, they identify, I am a thug. I am a dope dealer. I am a beast. I'm a shooter. And in all of this, where exactly do they fit in? I, I don't know of any resources because what happens is, you know, under the leadership of Michael Hennessy and George Durand and um, Floyd Johnson, who has allowed me to develop this group in the way in which I see that it's needed, when they come to me and we talk, because it is an open forum and I let them talk the way they need to talk in order for them to identify with who they are, who they are and what needs to be changed, where in this um, continuum are they? Because I don't see any resources that really open the doors to the thug, to the dope dealer, to the rapper, to the shooter. And, you know, I, I, I really need to know because I'm working with them. I'm making some strides with them inside the jail. But what happens is when okay, they tell uh, me, Felicia, me, we need this me, outside, me, where should I refer them? Let me give the panel an opportunity to respond to your question. Um, well, initially, I would say um, this new program we're going to start called NOVA, which is going to start next month, uh, is specifically uh, geared towards people who have been charged with crimes of violence. Now, not maybe everyone in your group uh, has, char has been charged with or has a history of crime of violence, but it's going to be very full service. It's going to have uh, supportive housing, case management, mm -hmm. uh, RSVP-type counseling on the outside, uh, and that, that is one resource. Um, Okay, now let me interrupt you for a minute, Sheriff. And I'm, I'm definitely okay, excuse me. indebted We're going to have to do... Okay, a, I just want to say long, one thing. Excuse me, there's a long line of people behind you. We've yes. got to be fair. Okay, Jeff, Everybody. I just want to say one thing. And this is to go back to what Mr. Chrisberg has said, and that in NOVA, are there going to be people who look just like them who, can, who they can identify with? Yes. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. My name... My name is Sybil Saddle, and I'm with the Homeboys Hotline. And I want to know, 
when um, Clinton was in office, he made a, a law that if you've been convicted of a drug offense at least three times, you could not get a dime to go to school. And I know it's on a financial app- application. Ask, have you been convicted of a felony? Well, how's a person supposed to turn their life around if nobody's going to give them a chance? Because we live in a society that judge you by your past. They don't know what the future is, but they know what your past is. And how does a person change their life? It takes money to go to college. I'm a witness. I owe the government over $100,000, and I ain't never spent a day behind bars. So where are they going to get the money to go? If, if I could address that point, actually, uh, that was formerly the law, and I believe it was uh, George W. Bush who changed that and made a person charged, I mean, who was convicted of a felony ineligible to receive educational loans. Last year, that was reversed. And so that is no longer the law, but there still are incredible uh, disadvantages that come along with the felony conviction. And my office has a clean slate program, which helps, that's a public defender's office, clean slate program, which helps people clear their records. And so you can get your record cleared. It's called an expungement for the purposes of employment and for education. Uh, just, uh, just one other one other tactic related to that, and I give credit to Supervisor Tom Amiano. Uh, as well on this, and that is, is that if you apply for a job in city government within San Francisco, they have erased that box that used to be on the application form asking if you had ever been, you know, a, you know, an offender before if you've been incarcerated. So that now has been erased uh, from the job application stage. Thank you. Next question, please. Yes, hello, and thank you for everyone who's participating in the panel and here. My name is Joanne Warwick. I've served before as a parolee defense attorney. And my concern in in providing all these programs is that if we don't get a handle on the extremely high number of revocations to begin with, we're going to have a hard time getting some people into the programs. So my question is to all of you and everyone in the council, if we could try and focus on how can the local community, which has responsibility for people returning, step into the stage of placement of the parole hold. And for those of you who don't know what a parole hold is, it means uh, a parole officer, when someone is cited for a violation or catches a new case, places a parole hold. And so even if a judge would let a person out on bail, that person cannot bail out. And then the person will be incarcerated for probably 35 days minimum, if not more. And if they had a job, they're likely going to lose it. And that's a big problem there. And I think Michael Bean and others have pointed out that if there were a real risk assessment at that stage where a representative from the local community could come in and advocate for the parolee and for the community, I think we could prevent some of these uh, revocations. And and just to tell you, and, and, and Ms. Poe, I'm glad that you're here and you recognize that there's time for change. I think we should parole. I think we should survey the parole officers on what they need because they have an overwhelming job and the, and the resources haven't been there. However, one thing I think is very important is um, just to give you an example. I did. A uh, I'm going to have to just ask for a question. I, I, I did a parole revocation hearing and I asked the parole officer, "What factors did you consider in placing the parole hold?" Parole officer said, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, I'm talking about California Code of Regulations, Section 2602, factors to be considered, one of which is community relationships, which would be all of these programs here. So that involves training, and I think if he didn't know in the high numbers of revocations, there may be a lot of other people who are not going through the steps they're supposed to be going through. Perhaps if we could consider changing the form to put those factors in there so they would consider it, and, and would you all consider 
some form of negotiating an agreement with parole and CDCR to step in at that moment of the placement of the parole hold to make sure we've examined all the possibilities. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, do, you do you want to address that? Currently. Morning. My name is oh, I'm William sorry. I, I think, I think there, uh, one of the panelists wanted to respond to the question asked by the previous. I believe initially your question is whether or not a, com a community-based organization or anyone who wanted to step in and advocate on behalf of the prole at the time a hold is placed, whether or not they can do that and whether or not it is considered. Yes, they can do it. We have it happen all the time. Whether or not it's considered, it depends on all the case factors. Sometimes we don't have any jurisdiction. That hold is placed and it has to go to the Board of Prison Terms. Other times we do, we make decisions, we'll give them a chance in the community, and we'll release the whole. So, yes, we encourage, and there will be times that you want to advocate for someone, and we encourage that. The parole agents are supposed to look at, when a hold is placed, whether or not that person posed a danger to himself, whether or not that person posed a danger to the property of others, or whether or not that person is likely to abscond. So those, those three factors are supposed to be taken in consideration. They're trained in the academy, and most all of them should know that. Okay. Thank you. Is it, Michael, did you want to say anything? Let me just say that in the, under the process of, of the pro-revocation process that we're engaged in now, um, cases should be resolved at the preliminary hearing, something that California didn't have before. Now there's a preliminary hearing that takes place within 10 business days of the hold. At that point, 80% of the cases are now being resolved. At that point, um, the parolee has an attorney, and if that attorney can get access to community resources, and, and that's where that's the point now where we can get people out rapidly. So the, the attorneys, there are attorneys now. Um, they need the information. Uh, the board of Prison Terms has hearing officers, but they don't have the information about these programs that you guys run here. And I think the key is they have to believe that, that there's going to be a public safety benefit for giving this person a chance. And that's why they have to have the evidence that you guys run these programs, that this, this, this man or woman is in this program and is getting services, and they should be given another chance. So there is an opportunity now to do that rapidly, and uh, hopefully the system will work better. Okay, we only have time for one more question in this panel. However, we will have the opportunity uh, for questions uh, in the other two panels. So, again, my apologies. Good morning. Sir? Um, I'd just like to uh, thank the esteemed panel for just showing up. You know, it shows that they care, at least. Um, my name is William Garth. Um, I'm the client at the 890 facility at uh, Hayes Street in, Phil, um, in uh, San Francisco. I just wanted to pose a question to uh, Mr. Terry Anders. Um, I've only been there for a short time, but when I'm ready to re-enter back into society, I'd like to know, do you have a business card, and could I have one? <laughs> yes, brother. Uh, I do have business cards, and I'll be more than willing to uh, share that with you. Thank you very much. Okay. I, I think we have time just for one more. You are the next person. My name is Eli Crawford, and I'm a professional, which to say... Oh, uh, convict, because I didn't spend all my life in prison. I wrote uh, the district attorney, uh, Camilla Harris, concerning this violence. That's what I'm concerned with. I haven't heard anybody mention anything about these crack babies <coughs> doing anything, because that's who's killing. Mm -hmm. 
there's these crack babies that's doing all this killing. Nobody has mentioned it or doing anything about it. I just got finished doing 25 years. I just completed my parole. 29 and a half years. <laughs> I used to work for Michael Henson down here at Prep. And I was crossed out on fake people who don't really have a desire to make change. Michael, Michael Henson has a desire to make change. You know? The thing it, it really bothers me is because I'm looking at these muscles. They still come to me. I don't even have a job. You know, we need sometimes for willing to go in these pits. <clears throat> for not afraid to go in these pits and talk to these kids. Talk to these older OGs, so called OGs. It ain't no OGs. Because if you're old, you're be like Eli Crawford. You'll go down up under there. Get up under that rock and holler. But we ain't hollering. And that's what I just want to bring it to attention. Because it's hurting me to my heart. You know what? My wife that lost her son, her grandson, to this virus. Everybody, yeah, it was some good things up here today. But we already know this here. Everything that's been said here, we know it. What are we going to do about it? That's the answer right there. What are we going to do about it? Because I'm willing. I'm willing to get anywhere you want to put me. Because I don't have no fear. They just took all the fear out of me a long time ago. I got somebody like Dr. Jones. Like that. So I just wanted to bring him here today. Terry know me. Thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. <clears throat> thank you very much. And, and on that um, note of challenge and optimism, uh, we're going to break for lunch. We will be serving lunch here in the front. Both of the rooms on both sides of the auditorium uh, are available. Uh, to sit in, so please move to one of the rooms and network. Let's give one round of applause to our panelists here. And we'll be back here. We will be back here at 1 p.m. Okay, we're going to get started with our afternoon session. We're going to get started with our afternoon sense. Again, my name is Jeff Adachi. I'm the public defender here in the city and county of San Francisco, and welcome back uh, to our reentry summit. And we have two excellent, excellent panels that you're going to hear from this afternoon. But before we do that, we have a special treat for you, and that is a performance uh, by the Medea Project. And this is a performed by the name of Angela Wilson. And when it comes to expressing the struggle, the oppression, the experience, and ultimate redemption of formerly incarcerated individuals, art and artistic expression plays such a critical role. And to express that is 
Rodessa Jones, who uh, is, again, somebody who is a cultural icon in this city. She started uh, the Medea Project, which you may have heard of, and works with uh, formerly incarcerated individuals to help them express their art and their beliefs and their politics. And we're so excited uh, to have uh, Angela performing. But to uh, introduce uh, Angela and her performance, Rodessa Jones. Thank you. On y'all, I love it. Come on, give me some more. Thank you. Thank you. I am Rodessa Jones, and I am the director and founder of the Medea Project, Theater for Incarcerated Women, which is housed at County Jail Number 8. I met Angie Wilson, oh, close to a decade ago while she was serving time at the county. And she is truly... Uh, her presence, the work, her life really expresses what we are about. And it's, the Medea Project is about getting uh, women who are incarcerated to examine their behavior through the creative process, to get them to find words to describe what happened when their life went off track. Using theater, theater saved my life. As an African-American girl at 16, I had a baby, just missed the dance with dangerous men and drugs because of theater. But coming into the, uh, the jails, I met Angie, and Angie got it. Because we're not an easy group. It's about uh, women having to stand up and explain why you think you're here. Not what you think the police or the judge wants you to say, but why do you think you're here? And how do you take responsibility? Because, you know, it, it involves drugs, uh, a culture, eco, uh, so socioeconomics, um, a bad parenting, but it's also a benign neglect on the part of the culture sometimes. And I'm so grateful to be here this afternoon because this uh, reentry summit is so special. And as Martha Graham, the great choreographer, would say, people from California believe anything's possible. So right now I want to introduce Angela Wilson, who's going to do a piece entitled Cosmic Joke. And it's her piece talking about her re-entry into the culture. I am her director. She is my cosmic daughter. Idris Akamore is here. He is the director of Cultural Odyssey. So we see ourselves as her artistic parents. So please give Angela Wilson a warm welcome. And she's going to tell you more about herself inside of the piece. Thank you. September 27th, 2006. Life is a strange turn of events, a cosmic joke. I'm currently working with what used to be the enemy. It's the police. I hated the police. None of them, as far as I was concerned, had any compassion or could possibly have a family. Power to the people! Shit! 
when they get here. That's why I was always paranoid that the police were coming or plotting a way that I would kick their ass when they got there. You know, of course they always won. But let me tell you the whole story. Okay, back in 97, I was in jail again after being busted in the bank with someone else's checks. Hello, miss. Yes, I actually am Jawong Kim. <laughs> the next thing I knew, the whole bank was cleared out and security had me locked inside. Of course, I found myself in the back of a police car. cement cell kick and go with five other women who were also kick and go and we were all vomiting and shitting in one toilet of course eventually I did go before the judge and for this shenanigan he gave me one year in the county jail after six months of divine jail cuisine that would be some uh, cup of noodle and Throw in some bologna and pork rinds. Or my very favorite, the tamale. This is what you do. You crush up some corn chips. You add some water. You throw in some county cheese. And you place it on top of a coffee pot to simmer into a fine feast. I waddled to the meeting room where I had been summoned by Deputy Bailey. Good morning, Miss Wilson. You have been chosen to be released early and sent to SWAP. If you don't know what SWAP is, that's San Francisco County's work alternative jail program where the duration of your sentence will be served. You will show up at SWAP from 7.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. Monday through Friday to sweep the streets. Three failures to report will result in a warrant, and when you're captured, you will be returned to custody. <laughs> Do you agree, Miss Wilson? You're gonna let me out of here. Yes, 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 yes. I agree. <laughs> Bye, Sally. See ya, girl. Dang, none of y'all bitches gonna see me up in here. Again. Now, mind you, even though I had no place to live or any money, I fully intended on maintaining some semblance of order. But the minute that they let me out of there, I strutted down to the Tenderloin, where I had lived within a three-block radius for the last four years, only leaving to steal or go to jail. Voila, there's Brian. Hey, Brian. I have been fantasizing about you. With those baby blues and that nice combat. Come here, boy. A decision had been made. We were going to get high and have sex. In that order. 
I shot a big fat hit of speed in my neck. Okay. I want you to go. I want you to go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead and get get your ass away from me. I was so high that I couldn't sit still or shut up long enough to let him touch me. And you know, I think it's the first time that drugs saved me, because I found out later that voila, Brian was infected with herpes and Hep C, both of which he caught from having sex with a drag queen. <laughs> Those straight guys. But I digress. Okay, so the next morning. I show up at Swap, tweaked out. <laughs> okay, but I, 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 I'm fine. And, well, I'm fine. And there's notice because well, because <laughs> because I'm fine. And well, cops are stupid, right? Wrong. Big drama. Contraband, drug tested, rolled up, returned to custody. Oh, your fault. I get you pigs. Leave me alone. There I was, back in the slammer, those fuckers. Hey, Sally. Hey, girl. You know, it never occurred to me to be embarrassed. I had just left two days ago, and so. I finished out that time, and they let me out. And for the next two years, I continued my illustrious career of crime and drugs until I just got so tired. I mean, really, what's the point in getting high if you're still going to feel? So I worked closely with the Madea Project, and I went into Walden House, a drug treatment program, where I graduated in 2000. Yay! <laughs> Okay, and this is the greatest part of the story. Okay, so in 2001, get this. I got hired at the SWAT building and the sheriff's department, SWAT prep, as their intake coordinator. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm rubbing elbows with Deputy Bailey. And now when I come to work in the morning, I'm greeted by a whole brigade of uniforms, all with guns. Good morning, and I really do mean it. Thank God that none of them recognized me. <laughs> Or do they? Okay, let's give it up again for 
Angie Wilson on the Medea Project. Today we also celebrate uh, a new beginning for uh, one of the members of the Ranchy Council who with uh, Dr. Daryl Davis runs the Senior Ex-Offenders Program uh, here in San Francisco. And Frank T. Williams, who has been doing ranchy work for many, many years, has just published a book. And so we've asked him to perform one of the poems from his book, and I think this is the first reading uh, that he's done. So let's give it up for Frank Williams. Thank you. Uh, my name is Frank Thomas Williams, and I work inside the county jails, even though we have a nonprofit outside called the Senior Expender Program. This was inspired from seeing so many of our youths and our seniors incarcerated. It's called My Body's Too Heavy to Hang from the Tree. My body's too heavy to hang from the tree. My mind is too deep to be brainwashed against humanity. My shoulders are too strong to give up on life behind issues. My arms are too strong, my legs are too strong, my desires are too strong to give up on you and me. For I'm one of the seeds created to be. For I'm one of the ones set forth to awaken dead eyes, to motivate forsaken souls, and to share knowledge with those who are lost. Open the minds and encourage the vulnerable, the abandoned, and the despondent, so that they will rise. Rise above their issues. Rise above the surface of social ills. Rise above the agenda of a worn-out paradigm of conditioned beliefs, of conditioned ideologies that causes one to be left without confusion and disbelief, you see, because my body's too heavy to hang from a tree. My body's too heavy to hang from a tree, and the design of my mind is proportional. A protagonist has best in this conquest that was never optional, so I stand tall and I protest using education and elocution to refute the genocide and execution from the topologies of schemes such as medication, frustration, and alienation. Subliminal message is important to eliminate those who have it assimilated, so I speak out. So I speak out, you see, because our bodies are too heavy to hang from trees. My body's too heavy to hang from a tree, and you cannot assassinate the truth, and the truth cannot be killed. My mind became heavy as I learned to unlock the doors to ignorance. My mind became enlightened as I learned that life could be lived harmoniously. My mind became uplifted as I found that there is no need for poverty and that there is no place for envy and that greed is one of the tools used to enslave and consume the souls of restless beings that have so much energy that they lose focus of life's most precious reality, which is you and me. See, life is more than a game of chances. Life is more than do or die circumstance because the ones that stand make it, because life is bigger than any one person issues, issues that have been used to captivate you and mesmerize you and defeat you. And if you can be tricked into giving up, shut down, isolating, and medicating, then you too can be inspired to elevate yourself from the masses of fools who are out there cloning themselves. Then you too can emulate those who withstood the fiery flame of bias, discrimination, contradiction in the torture chambers. You can reach a lofty place in the next life, but in this life, you should fight for the cause and freedom for us all, for every light should shine. And the reality of life is to live, live in the glow, and reap the benefits provided by you by your maker, for your maker did not make a mistake. All there is 
It's for you. See, my body is too heavy to hang from a tree. And I bow down only the one who has a power greater than me. And from life interpretations, I've gained knowledge, strength, and determination to succeed, you see, because my body is too heavy to hang from a tree. Thank you. Frank's book is called Knowledge and Point of Views. Isn't that something? Yes, yes. <laughs> okay. And I understand uh, Sharon Williams from the Senior Ex Offender Program will have these books available. Thank you very much. Um, thank you. Uh, uh, we're going to now move the tables up for our next panel. Um, while we're doing that, I did want to acknowledge all of the uh, hardworking volunteers uh, who made this happen. This is a complete volunteer effort, and I'm asking all the members of the council and people who worked on this event to stand up and take a bow. Thank you. Okay, it'll just be about 60 seconds so we can move the tables up. Thank you. The Delancey Street Foundation is a residential education program established in 1971 to provide job training, peer counseling, shelter, food, and other services to individuals who were formerly incarcerated and who were former substance abusers. In 1991, with guidance from local builders and craftsmen, the residents themselves completed the building of this 325,000 square foot, 177 unit complex with heated pool, screening room, and auditorium. Charles Williams is an intake coordinator at Delancey Street. All the residents that started like I did came in and sat on the bench and asked for help and went through the interview process and decided to make a minimum of a two-year commitment and they're here working as residents but primarily helping the next person that comes in. It's all based on an each one teach one format. Residents are required to stay with the program for two years, although the average stay is closer to four, and they gain educational, life, and marketable skills. Over 14,000 have successfully graduated from the program and are living independent lives. The foundation has expanded over the years, and about 1,000 residents live in five facilities across the nation. Uh, then the entire organization is run and operated by the residents, so that you're learning from people who've experienced some of the same things as you have. Gerald Miller has been with Delancey Street for 10 years. He says he never worked a day in his life before coming here. 
Now, I'm definitely not the person I was when I came here. And it just started out real basic and real simple, just learning how to get up, go to work on time, how to get along with people through the course of the day, learning some marketable job skills. We have the largest independent moving company in Northern California. We have a three-star restaurant, the Delancey Street restaurant. We have Crossroads Cafe, which is a, and all of these uh, business training schools are run and operated by Delancey Street residents. I think Delancey Street works so well because it takes the people who are part of the problem and gives us a chance to be part of the solution. Delancey Street is self-governed by a board and resident council and is primarily supported through the earnings of its many business ventures. I used to wake up every morning and just look out and say, God, I can't believe here I, I was in San Quentin last week and here I am in Delancey Street and I'm looking around and I'm living in luxury. You know, this is something that you just never completely get used to and it, it just makes you feel grateful in knowing that your life can change if you put a little work to it. Next, I'd like to um, introduce uh, Shirley Melico, who, along with David Moroff, is the co-chair of the Services Committee. The Sapsical uh, Safe Communities Reentry Council has two committees. One is a policy committee, and the other is the Services Committee. So uh, Shirley also is the director of the Northern California Service League, one of the oldest and most respected uh, organizations that provides support to um, individuals in, in county jail and prison. Shirley? And then we're also going to uh, show some slides. Would you like the slides, talking about services in this committee, so we have a brief slideshow of the services that are available in San Francisco. Um, this is a flow chart of parolees on, and their contact upon release. Parolees are directed to report to the parole office on the day of release, the parole officer. Parolees must report to, there's the address 1727 Mission Street or 1110 12th Street. Parole agent conducts an interview to determine parolee needs, and then the parolee is directed or referred to services. The services that are available to the parolees, um, one, parolees are required to attend PAC meeting, which is the Police and Corrections Team Orientation, where service providers present their services to parolees, and that's going on as we speak, in fact. Uh, the PAC service providers include a wide range, the Bay Area Service and Net service network based on which will start again, drug treatment, child support services, Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, Social Security Administration, San Francisco City College, Cornell Corrections, Mission Hiring Hall, Northern California Service League, the Parole Employment Program, Glide, Southeast Community Clinic, Goodwill, Jelani House, Anders and Anders, and anyone else that really wants to be there to serve our parolees. Specialized services also available the Computer Liter Literacy Learning uh, Center, the Substance Abuse Treatment and Recovery Program, STAR, Independent Living Program, Support Living Program, CJCJ, 
special programs for parolees with serious medical disorders, citywide case management, and Southeast Health Clinic. Reentry services, the providers include the Northern California Service League, Senior Ex-Offender Program, Up From Darkness, Faith-Based Organizations, Metropolitan House, All of Us Are None, Center for Young Women's Development, California Prison Focus, Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice, and a lot more, <laughs> I have to say. Um, substance Abuse Treatment, we've got Alcohol and Narcotics Anonymous, Walden House, Delancey Street, Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, Asian American Residential Recovery Services, Prop 36 Services for Parole Violators, Positive Directions, and Jelani House. Educational Services, Project Rebound at San Francisco State University, Second Chance, San Francisco City College, Southeast College, and also Five Keys. Government Services, the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice, Department of Public Health, Department of Health Services, San Francisco Trial Courts, Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, the Police Department, District Attorney's Office, San Francisco Adult Probation, San Francisco Sheriff's Department, and the Public Defender. And Legal and Advocacy Services, the Legal Services for Prisoners with Children, La Raza Central Legal, Public Defender's Office, Clean Slate, Expungement Services, California Prison Focus, the Bay Area Legal Aid, and Asian Law Calcus. And employment, the Parole Employment Program, which is run by the Northern California Service League, EDD, the Department of Vocational Rehabilitation, and Independent Service Providers. Housing is provided through Residential Multi-Service Center, where there's lodging, meals, individual group counseling, parenting skills training, money management and budgeting, life skills training, and medical referrals. That sets the groundwork. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for your interest in reentry and for your interest in a real forgotten population. Uh, as you said, my name is Shirley Melnico, and I'm the executive director of the Northern California Service League. We know the majority of people who are in prison will be released. And there were some slides that were shown earlier this morning. And we said that 85% have significant substance abuse issues, but drug programs work. We know for every dollar spent in a drug treatment, it saves $7 of taxpayer monies. 70 to 90 percent of parolees are unemployed. We also know that an unemployed, uh, sorry, an employed ex-offender is three times less likely to go back to prison than an unemployed one. Clearly, employment is a way to reduce recidivism. And 50 percent are illiterate. Education is an avenue to success. 10% experience homelessness. We do have transitional housing. We do need to have more. And medical and mental health issues may um, affect uh, uh, over 18% of the population have actually diagnosed psychiatric disorders. And the other thing is the prison population is aging, just like the rest of us. Um, California now has 33,000 people over 45 and close to 9,000 people who are over 55 years of age. In 2022, 16% of the population will be over 55 in our prison system at a cost of over $69,000 per person. And that simply doesn't make economic sense. 60 to 90% lack survival skills. 
self-esteem, motivation, communication, and spiritual needs must be addressed. What we have today is a fantastic panel uh, representing the people who actually work with the population, the reentering population, and they will address a lot of issues that I've just mentioned. And we will discuss the, pro the programs and the services that are currently available, and we need to look at how we can coordinate our services more so that we can begin to develop a true win-win solutions. In the interest of time, I'd like to introduce each individual panel member, ask them their question, and give them approximately six minutes to respond. And then if there are questions, we'll take it at the end of the session. Our first speaker is Lorena Trent. To set the for framework for this panel, uh, we're having a person who's formerly incarcerated. She was arrested in 1997. At that point in her life, she spoke primarily Vietnamese and very little English. Lauren was paroled in April of 2006, and uh, she will be speaking for, from a perspective of a recently released parolee, and in addition, she will be speaking as a success story. Lorena? Hi, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Hi. Hi, my name is Lorna Trin, you know, like Lorna Doom Cookies, if you know. <laughs> That's how you remember my names. <laughs> um, please bear with my English, because my English is my second language. And uh, I'm very nervous right now, because this is uh, my first speech in my life in the public. But I'm going to try my best, and it's from my heart. That's what it counts. Okay. I was born and raised when I was in Vietnam. We came to this country when I was 10 years old. And that's when I started to learn ABC in this language, in English language. And life has been good to, to me and to my family. And after that, I was raised up in a middle class of family, like a regular, ordinary Asian kid. Until one day, when I was 20 years old, I make a big mistake in my life. And in that mistake, it take me 10 years of my freedom. And while I was incarcerated, I never been in trouble in my life, not a little juvenile, nothing. All I have is a speed ticket. So, I consider I'm a swear when I was in there. So while I was in there, in, I couldn't uh, hardly speak English because every time I see like, beside Asian people, I got stuttering. I can't even get the word out. So while I was in there, I got bullied, threatened, and take advantage of. So I have to do what I have to do to survive in there. I make myself to gain weight. I make myself to work out. I make myself to learn how to fight back. So it's pretty much like my experience is like I was like a Cinderella when I was in there. That's how I just describe, I don't know what kind of term can I use. 
So also, I did a lot of thinking. I thought about I've been wasting a lot of time in my life, and that's when I understand that I'm too young to be uneducated. So I took advantage as much as I can while I was in there. But unfortunately, in there, all you can have is just a GD diploma. But I have a high school diploma. So they have another program is for college、um, classes, but you need to be five year over of your sentencing, or either under twenty five. So I was at that time I was twenty two or twenty three years old, but my sentencing is not qualified because I have seven year at that time. So I can't go to any college classes. So I took advantage in the vocational classes, and I did accomplish few like upholstery, office services, geometry, milling cabinet, as much as I can. I occupy my time. So finally, my nightmare is gone, and I've been waiting on that day so long, and it was happening in April 30:06. That's on the day I was releasing. I was so nervous. I was so exciting, and I was scared at the same time. I remember the first time when I stepped out of this free world. I had butterfly. I want to throw up. <laughs> oh. Because this is reality. It's just too much, and I always like walk behind my sister. And anything I do. I asked them permission, even though I go to McDonald to get a napkin or use the restroom. Cause the reason why I got used so used to ask permission from the guard, or maybe I got so disciplined, or maybe I still have the prison mentality. Seriously. So I remember another example when I went to Chinatown with my parents. And you know how Chinatown is. It's crazy. It's the you know the、um, the people walk all they want to walk. They they bump into you, and you know that's a no no. When you bump into somebody inside, that's a form of disrespect, and you're calling for a fight. <laughs> so it's like I was like, damn, what's wrong with all these people? <laughs> so I was like, whoo! I was like, oh wow. So it's like you know, I was. My family said I'm paranoid, but I don't consider I'm paranoid. <laughs> but um, when、uh, another、uh, incident is um, it was so much, and it was, and then when the um, the red light was on for a long time, and then my parent Jay walked across the street when it was safe, and I'm still standing in the pavement, and my parent say, "Why are you not crossing?" I say, "Because it's not green light." You know, and then my parents say, "But it's okay." I say, "No, it's not okay with me because I'm not a regular, ordinary kid, a、uh, person, a kid, person. I'm a woman now, because I don't. This is the second chance I realize that is very precious to me. Is because now go back a little bit when I was doing time in there. I've been in four prison. The most California woman prison is five. Once a period of time, I did fought a lot to protect myself. I moved four prisoners. You name it, I've been there. I did my time in acid before 
to prison, maximum, maximum security. I did my time with death row people. I did my time with lifer and also life without. So I've been through a lot as an Asian kid, you know. So they, this is like a reborn to me to come back to this society. And I take very serious of it. I'm not going to do nothing to jeopardize my freedom. So when I first got out, all I have is a set of clothes that I wore on that day. And a $200 of CDC gate money. And if you take a bus, you got out of the pocket of the $200. I just want to correct some of the, they say that, and a bus ticket. No, it's not. So, so I've been there. I've done that. And also, I don't have a California ID. I mean, I have nothing. When I mean nothing, I mean nothing. I was never like that in my life. But I have to accept for the consequences of my life, of my outcome. So now go, go back to the $200. What can you do with the $200 expression in San Francisco? Oh. Everything got raised up. Minimum wage, the gas, and even the tax, too. So, you know, please take a look at that $200, please. <laughs> I encourage whoever has the money to, to make that happen for, like, at least something. And then when I was out here, I have so much question in my life. I went to report to my parole officer. I told my parole officer, I didn't do jaywalk, I didn't do drink. And he laughed at me in a good sense of like. And then I asked him, I, I said, well, when can I see the doctor? Because while I was in there, I housed it with some of the women that, who have uh, positive HIV and hepatitis C because I don't want to bring nothing back to my family. And then I, I need to go to back to college. That's where I recognize, like, it, without education, you're without nothing in life. That's what is it. And I need a job to support myself, to pay for my, my support. I'm 29 years old now. So all he told me, oh, I don't know. And I was like, okay. And it kind of hit me at that time. Because I was lost. I don't know what to do. That's a big gap for me for all this year. You know, back in the day when I was out here, they don't have internet, not email. So it's just a lot of things I have to learn. So I went to uh, a parole officer and then told me that I need to mandate it to go to the uh, PAC meeting. So in the PAC meeting, that's when I find all the sources. So in the PAC meeting is they have... All the basic five need are six now, because I add the $200 in there. <laughs> so the basic five need is housing, food, job, counseling, support, and then education. And to be honest with you, a lot of people really, from my experience in there, because this is my first, my last, and my only, but... Ever since I've been there, like, 10 years, I have so much people in and out. It's a, like, revolving door. It just, like, I heard everything about the parole system. I mean, before I walk out of this door, I already know the whole cha-cha about this. 
all they say that the parole officer is, all they want is report to them, give them a clean test, and go to the PAC meeting. Other than that, you're on your own. So a lot of them, they disbelieve, disappointed, disappointment, and they just give up. Because, to be honest with you, a lot of them, they refer the life, I'm sorry to say that, but this is true. A lot of, most of them, they refer the life in there more than out here because in there, they have a place for them to live. They have food when time to be served. They have clothes to wear, and then they earn the only eight cents if they work, when they work. So while they were in there, they have all the support, and they don't have to think about, oh, what am I going to do next month, or what am I going to do next few months, and that's, that's what it is. That's a reality, seriously. So while I was out there, I went to the PAC meeting. I was the only girl in the, uh, in the Asian female in there, and it was 30 male in there. And some of them, two or three of them, they were falling asleep. You can see the drool off the mouth. <laughs> and then you can see those people, like, they were like, okay, whatever, just get this over it. I'll move on with my life. So with me, because I've been housing, I've been housing with the lifer and dead row, I know how it is that this second chance for me. So I take advantage of, because in the PAC meeting at the end, you need to take three business cards. And then after the three business cards, so those, that's when I met all those people, because I took everybody the business card, and that's when I find out Northern California Service Link, which is uh, Valerie Lau, my counselor. And then I found out se uh, Second Chance, um, Charles, Mr. Charles Morris, which is my mentor, and which is I find out Project Rebounds in State University, Jason Bell, and he's over here too. And which is I find out Southeast Health Center, my doctor, two of my most famous respectful doctor. One of them is uh, Ms. Uh, Wong here, and then the other one is Dr. Hong, and they help me the best they can. And without the courage or without their support beside my family and my friends, I would not be able to come here and speak on the behalf. And another, th another thing, this is the most important I would like to cover, is as a human being, it don't matter you're African-American or Latino or anything, or white, excuse my language, but once we take off our skin, we have the same flesh. And people do make a mistake. And in order to, for you to learn that in that mistake, if we need to learn how to get up from, stand up for our mistake. But who are we going to have that accountability? Who is going to lend the hand out? Like here, if you need help, I'll be there for you. Everybody can talk. But it's the action, though. The reality, though. You know? Prove it. Actions speak louder than words. So that's about it. Thank you.
you, Lorna. That was very touching. Oh. Our next speaker is M Dr. Emily Wang. Dr. Wang completed her training in internal medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Her clinical and research interests are how to engage former prisoners in the healthcare system upon release and how physicians can create systems of care that better support this vulnerable population. Dr. Wang has worked in prison systems throughout California, North Carolina, and Botswana. She has helped co-found Transitions Clinic, which is a post-release clinic for parolees with chronic mental conditions based in the Southeast Health Center in Bayview. In addition to providing primary health care, the clinic links former prisoners to community resources, including mental health services, substance abuse, and case management programs. Now, the question for Dr. Wang is, what medical issues do you commonly find among the reentering population, and what are the challenges in providing this care? Um, so I thought I would just uh, answer this question uh, and taking it back to one of the patients that we, Dr. Hong and I, have seen in Transitions Clinic. Um, and I met Mr. Smith sometime this spring in April. He was recently released from San Quentin. We uh, met him first at the PACT meeting that Lorna and all parolees had attended. And he'd been incarcerated for 10 years in San Quentin. And it was there that he'd been diagnosed with diabetes, hepatitis C, uh, in depression. Uh, Mr. Smith, he's representative of many of the parolees that we've seen in clinic. Um, there, in this population, there's a high prevalence of communicable diseases, HIV, hepatitis C, tuberculosis. Um, there's also a high prevalence of untreated mental illness. And frequently in this population, there's later stages of chronic diseases. So uh, in the Bureau of Justice Statistics uh, that was published uh, in around 2000, nearly one-third of all state prisoners, they report having a physical or uh, physical impairment or mental condition. Um, Two-thirds report having a substance abuse problem, and approximately 18% or so report having a serious mental illness. Uh, in San Francisco, uh, in a pilot study that Transitions Clinic is conducting, what we found is that uh, Approximately 40% of parolees that have been surveyed have a chronic disease upon release for which they're taking medications when they're in prison, so approximately 40%. So in spite of this high burden of disease, uh, the transition from prison health care, where people are constitutionally guaranteed health care, to community care is often lacking and poor. Um, Mr. Smith, in his uh, case, he was given two weeks' worth of medication. So what that amounted for him was a bottle of insulin, no syringes, no machine to measure his uh, blood sugar, and then a two-week supply of Prozac. Uh, no follow-up, and he had no clue where he was going to get his health care. And on average, what we've seen in our clinic is that folks have on the order of three weeks of medication or less upon release. There are very few plans for primary care upon release. Um, and so parolees, when they're released, they're unable to get health care. Um, and they, naturally, they present to the emergency department for basic requests, like refill of medication. Um, they're also seen for non-urgent uh, complaints. And then, worse yet, serious illnesses because they were unable to get health care. Um, in a recent study that was published in Washington State Parolees, and I was astounded by this, um, what it showed was that the risk of death two weeks after release from prison is ten times higher compared to the same population of people the same age. So ten times higher the two weeks after release. 
And it's for this reason that we started Transitions Clinic. Um, it's a post-release clinic at Southeast Health Center, and it's basically to bridge this gap for this very vulnerable, oftentimes unhealthy population. And one of the key features of this clinic is that folks don't have to wait for their three, four months primary care follow-up appointment. They will see us within one to two weeks guaranteed uh, after release, after parole. Um, so regarding the kind of uh, challenges in taking care of this population, apart from their physical health, I would say that there's two primary challenges we've noticed. The first one, I would say, is that there is just no systematic plan in place for medical discharge for patients with chronic medical conditions. So when you can imagine, when, you're, when any of us have been discharged from the hospital in the community, you get uh, a follow-up appointment with your primary care physician, and at the very least, medications sufficient to last you to that uh, primary care appointment. And in my mind, I think that for this patient, he ought to have received the same, a primary care appointment in the community to which he's paroling, and medications that would last him to that point. Um, patients ought to be released with their medical records so that they, uh, the physician that's going to see them knows what happened in prison when they were incarcerated for 10 years. Mr. Smith, in our, in our patient, he's an insulin-dependent diabetic, and he was given a bottle of insulin upon release. And my question is, how is he going to get syringes without a prescription? And how is he going to get a prescription without a doctor? It's just impossible. So that's the first big challenge, I would say. The second is that while I think as a doctor that the provision of health care is critical in this population, that it's just not sufficient to ensuring the health of the folks in our community. Um, and what we've heard today and will continue to hear this afternoon is that former prisoners returning to our communities face nearly insurmountable barriers to reintegrating. And this is on the level of policies that uh, prohibit obtaining food stamps, welfare, public housing. One thing that bothers me particularly as a physician is that if you're incarcerated for over 12 months, that your Medicaid terminates instead of suspends. And so people that had insurance prior to having been incarcerated, upon release, they're without health insurance. And in my mind, I think that these barriers, they prevent former prisoners from accessing urgently needed health care after release. There are a lot of competing needs after release. People are looking, like what Lorna said, people are looking for food, they're looking for shelter, and they're looking for employment. And frequently their health care is a lower priority. And for folks like Mr. Smith, a person who has insulin-dependent diabetes, this can be a life-or-death issue. I guess our question is, who's responsible when he shows up to the emergency department in a diabetic coma? And this happens not infrequently. So in returning to Mr. Smith, when he came to our clinic, we refilled his medication. We gave him a, a machine to test his blood sugar. Uh, he was referred uh, to Narcotics Anonymous, a GED program at City uh, College, uh, and also All of Us or None, a lot of these community providers. Um, sitting here at this table. But when he walked out of the clinic, I mean, he was still homeless, still without a job. And not two weeks after he saw me in clinic, I received a call from the San Francisco Emergen General Emergency Department from a fellow physician there. Um, he'd been picked up by the police after having broken into a car because he didn't have money for food. 
and he was being seen in the emergency department for low blood sugar. And so what gets me about him is that in his case, he had insulin, he had a physician. In fact, he was using his insulin. He had a physician, and what he didn't have was food and shelter. And so um, part of the reason why I'm part of this council and why I'm really committed to our endeavors here is that until San Francisco enacts a comprehensive plan for reentry, like the one that the Safe Community Reentry Council is proposing, which includes the provision of basic, basic fundamental health, fundamental human needs, food, shelter, health care, the needs of our parolees just can't be met. Um, and we're going to continue to perpetuate this gross cycle of return to prison and return to poor health. Thank you, Dr. Wine. That was great. Okay, our next speaker is Frank Williams. Frank Williams is the director of the Senior Ex-Offender Program. Mr. Williams received a bachelor's degree in social work from the San Francisco State University, and he received master's degree in human, humanity and leadership in 2005 from New College of California. He is a certified addiction treatment counselor and a member of the California Association of Alcohol and Drug Educators. Mr. Williams joined the Bayview-Hunters Point Multipurpose Senior Services Center in 2002. He was hired to develop the senior ex-offender program and to get the services out to the older ex-offenders, a special population that is often overlooked. And Mr. Williams is also a very accomplished poet. <laughs> <laughs> Our question to Frank Williams is, how does an individual navigate through the maze of services out there, and how can we make it easier? Thank you, Shirley. First of all, it's a great pleasure to be here, to be on this panel, and uh, that it finally hit San Francisco, <clears throat> that we're doing something. Um, I'm a big advocate for continuing care for our clients, uh, for our people, for the formerly incarcerated. Uh, the Senior Expender Program uh, was developed to address the issues of seniors, men 50 and over and women 45 and over, due to the uh, longevity of incarceration for this population. Um, they increase in age physiologically about 10 to 12, sometime up to 15 years, their chronological age. Uh, dealing with this population, we have uh, addressed issues with men and women coming from California Department of Corrections and also the San Francisco County Jails who suffer from different diagnoses, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, chronic uh, illnesses such as uh, some of the ones that Dr. Wayne described to you earlier, and it is our job to help them with direct services and referral services. So soon they hit our office, and after we get finished doing the intake, we get them hygiene products, and we get them a meal, and we help them with clothing. Um, the basic uh, uh, things that they need was just, you know, described to you, um, but homelessness is one of the biggest issues as well as health that's addressing this population. We have seniors who are at the age of most are repeated offenders. And at that age, they feel as though they have nothing else to give back. Um, it is our job. We go in and we empower them and we motivate them. And senior Expendent Program has collaborated with many different organizations throughout San Francisco. 
um, as far as agencies, human human service agencies. The Northern California Service League and the Sheriff Department was the first uh, to allow us to come in and, and address this special population. Um, working through the mazes is hard for those formerly incarcerated. Uh, they don't have the resources that they need when they are released from uh, incarceration. Thanks to having a sheriff like uh, Michael Hennessy with the San Francisco Sheriff Department, they have programs within the facilities such as Rose to Recovery. Um, we, we have a program in there called In the Chaos in which we work with uh, men who, um, who are going through different challenges with their life and we try to help them before they even come out and hit the streets. Most of the time when these people are released, they hit 6th Street or they hit 16th Street and it's, it's over with. Um, so we, we do intervention and we do education. Um, providing services for this special population is a little bit harder than, than the average adult for the simple reason that a lot of them feel as though, seniors feel as though they're worthless. Uh, they've been kicked around, they've been abused while they was incarcerated. Uh, <clears throat> They've been mishandled, mistreated while incarcerated, uh, and they come out with certain fears. We had one gentleman that was released after doing 25 years in CDC, uh, a Native American, who was released and came to the Senior Extender Program. We helped him. We gave him housing. Thanks to our collaboration with Metropolitan Missionary Baptist Church, we have a unit where we house senior ex-offenders. And we provide him with housing. We provide him with food. Um, we was attempting to provide him with some type of employment, but he didn't want to work. He was like lost, computers scared him, cell phones scared him, life scared him. Uh, he was institutionalized, and that's a word that people kind of not want to mention, but he was institutionalized. Um, he was afraid, and we tried to address his issues, uh, recommended that, suggested that he go to certain groups, and he didn't want to do that. So at one point he relapsed. He went back to drinking on purpose so he can go back to prison. Uh, but we have success stories such as one person sitting over his now. His name is Paul Stewart, who uh, was also a veteran who was homeless, who turned his life around, went through Liberation House and graduated, came to Senior Ex Offender Program, and been doing volunteer work ever since, and was a recipient of the Inner Trenches Awards, in which we give awards to formerly incarcerated people who turn their lives around, um, who gain recognition from local, state, and uh, federal officials, which is uh, one of our signatures of our program. Uh, our program uh, helped break the stigma of formerly incarcerated people. For I myself am a formerly incarcerated person. Uh, I turned my life around and went through school. And now I'm working on a Ph.D. in criminal justice. All right. So, all right. Working with seniors with uh, multiple chronic illnesses such as hepatitis, uh, diabetic, and then they're homeless. I have here statistics from 2005, just from San Francisco County Jail alone. In 2005, in March, there was... 1,213 senior males incarcerated. Um, 455 was totally homeless. 750 of them, 58 of them was living with others, and we all know that that means you're homeless. 
So the total homeless population that was just in the San Francisco County Jail alone for men was 1,213. For women, it was a total of 445. And these uh, seniors, to me, means higher in rank. It used to be called the elderly offender program, but we had to change that automatically uh, because these seniors deserve the dignity and care, and we provide them comprehensive care to help them through their transitioning in life. Uh, we empower them. We try to help them go back to schools, in which some of them are in schools. Some of them are in city college right now as we speak, learning to become a certified addiction treatment specialist, learning to become outreach health workers, uh, learning to become HIV and AIDS specialists uh, so that we can get them to go right back into the community, which that social modeling and that educational piece would help uh, the youngsters that used to look up to them, up to them doing wrong, now they, now they can look up to them doing right. All right. And that's, that's, that's social modeling piece of So we collaborate with many different organizations such as Goodwill and and just about everybody sitting at this table, Metropolitan Fresh Start, everyone is here. So that was one of the missions when they hired me to go out and push this program. We're steady knocking on CDCR door, and I'm glad I'm at the round table with them. Thanks to Jeff Adachi and uh, the Board of Supervisors, Ross Mercurini. And with that, I'm through. Thank you. Thank you very much, Frank. Our next speaker is Wayne Garcia. Wayne is the Director of Criminal Justice Programs in Custody Services for Walden House. He currently supervises five prison programs with a total of 2,278 beds. In addition, he supervises a drug treatment furlough facility and a parolee aftercare residential facility and an outpatient program in Los Angeles. He provides numerous trainings for correctional officers and service providers treatment providers. Mr. Garcia is certified as a drug counselor and is a Walden House graduate and a previous recipient of both the California Youth Authority and the California Department of Corrections. <laughs> you got that good, I was hoping. The question for Wayne is how can programs in the prisons prepare an inmate for, success, for release? Are the programs at Corcoran, Valley State, and Norco mandatory? And if not, how does an inmate seek out your program? Okay, so that's about a four-part question. First of all, it's not mandatory. Uh, the programs that we have, first of all, throughout the system, there's 33 state prisons, and we have 35 substance abuse programs throughout the system. Walden House has five uh, substance abuse programs. All these programs are volunteered, all right, or volunteer by persuasion. Right? <laughs> but the majority of them are, they come in and if they choose to stay, it's volunteer. Do the programs help? Absolutely. Since 1995, when we opened our first California Rehabilitation Center for Women with 180 beds, and now we're up to 294 beds, we've had numerous graduates that come into the San Francisco area and have been employed by Walden House and have gone back. Since we opened our program in 1997 at Corcoran and SATF, at that time with 500 beds, and now we're up to 739, and we just received a new contract with another 739, two yards uh, for the substance abuse uh, uh, program, we have, we've not only had numerous graduates, but we have numerous individuals that now are working in the field in Los Angeles. We had the privilege uh, of three years ago, I had the privilege of going in front of the uh, parole board and uh, when the governor denied someone a, uh, a, part, um, well, a parole, a lifer. That gentleman uh, 
the parole board agreed to releasing the Walden House. That gentleman today is a homeowner, a father, and a Walden House employee. And today, well, matter of fact, Monday, he went back into Walden House at SATF for family support and spoke as a, motiv uh, a motivation. Uh, at our Valley State, so I have a lot of different parts here. At Valley State Prison for Women, we have 506 beds. Does the program work? Absolutely. We're sending many women into San Francisco County, and today quite a few of them have been employed. We're also sending the director of that program into our San Francisco Sisters Project to start working with the women before they get to the prison where we can start a reentry. Does reentry work? Absolutely. You see, most of all, uh, these individuals, the profile doesn't fit the profile. And I'm a prime example of that. I was told in 1969 that I was no good. I'd end up in prison the rest of my life and I couldn't change. Well, you know what? That profile didn't come to pass because today I'm not in prison, but today I go in prison to help people out of prisons. So, today uh, we have over 25. <laughs> today, today we have over 25 individuals just working in our Walden House in Los Angeles in our SASCA programs that are going into the prisons and helping other individuals out. Today in, in San Francisco, we have individuals, and with the program we have at 890, uh, with the pro 50-bed um, facility, we have individuals that are coming up. The bottom line is this. Does change happen? Absolutely. Is the myth a lie? Yes, it is. We do change. And it's all about education, information, and seeing that light in the individuals. We're doing some revolutionary uh, curriculums at our prison programs. At VSPW, we have a gender-specific program uh, designed by Dr. Seventy Covington, and... Uh, and it's Covington, yes. And it's a one-year program that Dr. Nina Messina is uh, overseeing, and it's preparing the women to come into the uh, transition back into the society and take control of their lives and be that mother to their children and, you know, and to give back. At our, at our SATF program, we're doing some revolutionary curriculums. We're doing stages of change, and we're doing motivational interviewing. And the bottom line is it's our, it's our responsibility as clinicians because as I heard these two individuals over here, the first two, you know what, we're still not doing enough, all right? Yeah, we're doing all these great things, but we're still not doing enough, all right? We're at 171,000 individuals locked up in our state prison, all right? I receive individuals every day at our programs throughout uh, California that have dementia. Yes, dementia, 72 years old. I have three individuals right now that are 100% hearing impaired in Los Angeles. I have individuals coming out uh, in wheelchairs. I have individuals that cannot see. And the bottom line is they're going to prison today. Because you see, today you don't have to do much to go to prison. All right? In 1969, when I was first sentenced to the state of California, we had one female prison. Well, today we have four of them. We have a high-security prison at Valley State Prison. But you know what? We're doing something revolutionary there because on D-Yard, we have two programs, Integrity and Destiny, and they're leading women out of that institution. You see, the bottom line is this. We need to come together as a collaboration, not just Walden House, not just the substance abuse program, not the individuals at this table, but we need to come together because we do need to do more. We have a tremendous problem with homelessness. We have a tremendous problem with gangs. All right. We have a tremendous problem with the elderly being locked up and it's going up. I said there was 33 state prisons where well, they're building two more. And it takes the people in this room to come together and it takes the individuals coming out of these substance abuse programs to take a stand. And it takes a commitment from each and every one of us to, you know what, to rise to the occasion to help defeat this horrific times that we're in. Thank you. Thank you. That is very motivational. Our next speaker is Reverend Kinwood DeVore. Wow. 
Reverend DeVore is the director of Metropolitan Fresh Start House, a faith-based residential drug treatment facility for men. He, along with members of the Metropolitan Church of Christ, founded the Metropolitan Fresh Start House over 17 years ago. Reverend DeVore has been involved in counseling addicts and their families for the past 30 years. He has also worked as chaplain at Santa Rita Jail for seven years, and five of those years he served as supervising chaplain with over 300 volunteers. He's been a gospel minister for the past 36 years. Reverend DeVore grew up in San Francisco, attended City College, where he was a track star, and later graduated from the Bay Area School of Religion. Our question for Reverend DeVore is, how can the broader community become receptive to individuals returning home? Being a minister, I hope you don't mind, I want to say a short prayer. Let's pray. Father and our God, we thank you for this opportunity to meet together. We thank you for all of these interested parties, Father. We thank you for all the different levels of government, all the folks that are interested in ameliorating people coming out of prison. We pray, Father, that we open our eyes and continue to open our hearts and listen to the needs of the broken and hurting of our society, that we together can do our best to recover them to mainstream. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The community. What is community? What is community and how do we get our people coming out of jail into the broader spectrum of community? Well, being faith-based and being a minister, I've got to say and I've got to repent, the churches have not done enough. The churches are a microcosm of the community. And if the churches will accept those people, then the community has accepted those people. One of the problems with coming out of jail, families are tired. They were tired of your madness out there. Being a drug addict, families are tired. They were tired of your madness out there. And so you have been disconnected. And the only people that are connected to you are the inmates. And what you do is you come out on vacation and go back home. You see that? And so in order to break that cycle... The church has to stand up and become what it was designed to be. The word for church, the Greek word ekklesia, means called out body of people. Never a place, but a people. A people called out to call others out and into a body, a family of God, a connectedness to where people see you as a person instead of your past and what you've done with it. And so that's the design of the church, folks. And I want to challenge everybody here to challenge your church to be an accepting community, to be a, to, to be a community that turns into a family, a village where people are accepted whenever they come, a, a people with a group designed to invite inmates, drug addicts who are trying to piece their lives back together through these various programs, to let them know that they can be accepted and belong. A connected, a belonging person is less likely to do crime. A person who has found their significance in the whole of society is less likely to do crime. What you're listening to, what you heard all of these folks say, is that people have felt insignificant and have given up on themselves. And somehow we've got to get them back into believing in themselves. And the, and, the, and the greatest people in the world to do that, folks, the people designed to do that, is the churches. And so, 
What do we do at Fresh Start? What do we do in our programs? We help to restore the ability to dream in people. Men without dreams are like dead men waiting to be buried. If I can't see myself as a better person tomorrow, I'm going to die today. And so that's what the churches, the church community, is supposed to do with the incarcerated as they re-enter society. The church should be the first group to accept them and assist the rest of the plug-ins at this table. Once again, I'm honored to be here, folks. And we have a program. Our church is about 70 people. That's all. And we house 32 people. By the end of next month, we'll be housing 82 people. Did you hear what I said? 82 people, folks. And what we do is we restore the ability to dream. Dreaming, folks. Because once you restore the ability to dream, you restore hope. And the word for hope means confident expectation. You find the person with confidence. You find the person who is cured. He goes back into his community and instilled that in others. And so, like the old farmer said, you can count the seeds in an orange, but you can never count the oranges in a seed. And so that seed person that we help today can bless and ameliorate the entire community tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you, Reverend DeVore. Our next speaker is Jason Bell, the director of San Francisco State University Project Rebound. Mr. Bell. Mr. Bell graduated from high school in 1990 and, to quote, found himself a very angry young man with plenty of spare time and a knack for getting by with very little, if any, ambition for positive change, close quote. At the age of 20, he was sentenced to 17 years for the charge of attempted murder. While in prison, he realized his destiny was in his own hands, and he worked toward earning college credits, not an easy task. Upon paroling in 2001, Jason Bell was able to procure his AA degree, and in 2000, that was in 2003, and in 2005, his bachelor's degree in sociology from San Francisco State University. He is an avid, and he really is an avid prisoner rights uh, advocate and works full-time as the director of San Francisco State Project Rebound. Our question for you, Jason, is how does the pursuit of higher education assist the reentering population to deal with immediate requirements like housing, employment, and family stability? First off, I would say our ability to cope definitely has everything to do with our positive, our sense of positive self-regard. Right. And for me, a key component of that was education. I mean, it pretty much saved my life. And, and when I say that, a lot of people might not be able to put it together, but you have to realize that the dynamic that a lot of us are coming from living in these institutions. I mean, for a person to be sitting and spending time in these bullpens and, and these different cages, I mean, our ability to negotiate is we're thinking about the best way to get out of this situation. And if, if you've got a situation where you have five or six people sitting in one room, you're thinking about, can I whoop him? <laughs> this other cat I might have a little, little trouble, trouble with, but this one I think I can whoop him and this other one and this other one, but this cat here looks like he's going to be a problem. Now, see, this, this is the kind of negotiation we're going through within the system. But when I say the educational empowerment piece, 
out here it's a completely different dynamic. It gives you that power to to go into that room with these these this other group of men wearing these suit and t- the suit and tie and to look them in the face and be able to deal with that. That's the kind of empowerment we need out on this side of the wall. So it's a little different, you know, there's a difference there. And I think that education plays a big part. I know it saved my life. And so when I do this, I speak from a personal standpoint. And then I want to speak from a, from the, the standpoint behind the walls, the educational piece now, and the edu- educational piece that's in place for people when they come back to society. Number one, coming back to society, we have a big problem here. I mean, there's no reason that Project Rebound, San Francisco State University, Second Chance at City College, and, and Way Pass at City College are the only things in place in all of California to assist the formerly incarcerated. I mean, at Rebound, we get tons of mail from every prison in California every week. And I'm getting letters. It kills me to get letters from people. And they're asking me, you know, man, I love the program. I hear, I, I, I'm digging that. But do you have anything in Fresno? Do you have anything in San Diego? Do I have a contact? And I have to tell them no. And it's not that I haven't tried. It's just that they're not interested. So, I mean, we have a, a situation here that's fortunate for us. But, it, it, I mean, I would really like to get the support to spread this thing out. And, I mean, I have the support of the ethnic, ethnic Studies Department, Sociology Department on campus, and, and the city of San Francisco is, is completely in on just safe communities. Reentry Council is all the way behind me. But, I mean, one thing, I think we need to take a mantra. Before I leave from here today, a little slogan that many of you may know. We say this on the yard constantly. And it's, and it's familiar to us, but I want to add this. This is going to be the mantra for the, the, the city. Don't just talk about it. Be about it. And I think... So I'm just saying that to say that, I mean, this is a, I'm, I'm so glad to be a part of this because this could be going on around me and I, and I will have no say-so. But please, let's, let's continue to work toward the goals of, of making this thing solid. It's, we're doing good things, but we need to do a little bit more like, like the other brother had said. And that's pretty much all I had to say on it. Thank you, Jason. We now have Damaris Evans from the Public Defender's Office. Damaris has been with the Public Defender. Um, oh, I guess I don't really know exactly how long she's been there. She is a graduate of the University of California, Berkeley, and the Santa Clara University School of Law. Prior to joining the San Francisco Public Defender's Office, she worked for the Orange County Public Defender's Office handling felony preliminary hearing matters. She also worked as a research attorney to civil law and motion judges in Santa Clara County Superior Court. She is currently on the faculty of the University of Phoenix teaching classes in the Criminal Justice Administration Department. Ms. Evans is a supervising attorney of the Clean Slate Program, which assists clients with expungement of criminal convictions sealing and destroying arrest records, obtaining certificates of rehabilitation, and receiving early terminations of probation and reduction of felony convictions to misdemeanors. Our question from Ms. Evans is once an individual is back in the community with a job, home, support, there are still lingering issues regarding civic participation. What does a Californian have to do to clean up his or her record after reentry, and why is it important? Thank you. Um, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Demara Evans, and um, as Shirley indicated, the attorney in charge of the Clean Slate program. 
Is that a little bit better? Yes. Okay, thank you. So once someone re-enters into the community, there's a number of legal remedies that are available to help with restoring certain rights. Um, as it's been mentioned earlier, there's some basic things that are helpful or necessary, um, housing, employment, um, different things like that. So with the Clean Slate program, some of the services that we offer, as she um, surely indicated, is assisting people with expungements, which means getting a conviction dismissed. And a criminal conviction is one of the things that could pose the biggest barriers to all of those different things, employment, licensing, housing, um, even education, finance, finances for your education. So we assist people with getting convictions dismissed from their records so that when they apply for all of those different things, they can legally say that they were not convicted of that crime. We also assist people with getting arrest records sealed and destroyed and all of the other remedies. I do want to talk about um, some of the limitations and some of the needs that are still available, and I want to echo um, what was just said, that um, this program is here in San Francisco, available for any San Francisco cases. However, we're also getting calls all of the time for people throughout the state of California trying to find out how can I get my criminal history record cleared up in Sacramento or in Los Angeles or whatever other county it is. And this is a, um, this is, this relief is available throughout the state of California. Um, however, the, what we do here in San Francisco, thanks to Jeff Adachi, is we help with all phases of that. So all someone has to do is come into our office or even send in the application and we will take care of everything that can be done with their criminal history record, from getting every conviction dismissed, if they're on probation and can get it terminated, getting their probation terminated, getting all the felonies reduced to misdemeanor, for people who have arrest records that could be sealed and destroyed, getting that done, everything that can be done, we would handle that from A to Z for that person. Um, however, that's not duplicated throughout the state of California, even though those same laws that we're using here in San Francisco is available throughout the state of California. So there's definitely a need for this, the services that we're providing here and the relief that's available to be made available to everyone in the, in the, in the state and also for people to know about it. A lot of people don't even know that they can get their criminal history record um, cleared up. So a lot of people are going through applying for jobs, being on their jobs and getting terminated, applying for housing, applying for a lot of different things, and they don't know that they're getting turned down because of a criminal history record, or they don't know that they can get their record um, cleared up. I had a case in court today where a person had been arrested back in 1992. Their case had been dismissed, and we were trying to get their records sealed and destroyed. That's one of the things that's available. Our, our motion was denied outright because there's a two-year statute of limitations to get records sealed. Now, most people, once they get arrested and their case gets dismissed, they, have, they don't know that they may still have a record. They could go for years and not even know that they have that record until they're applying for a job. Any type of job in the finance or banking industry and a lot of schools, and a lot of different social services position. Even if you have an arrest that has re not resulted in a conviction, you can still be denied employment. And a lot of people have no idea about how these records are impacting them because the word just isn't out there. People don't know that this is harming them or they don't know that there's a way for them to get their records cleared up. 
Um, so that's one of the things that we're doing, and it's available. It can be done in any county within the state of California. Um, they can come to the Clean Slate Program for San Francisco records, and also I would refer people to the agencies in the other counties um, that they can go to. However, there's not very many counties, probably on one hand, where um, there's agencies or public defender's office within that county that assist them from A to Z in helping them. So a lot of times people are limited. If they can't hire an attorney, they may not be able to get some of this relief, or, again, they just don't know about it. Some of the other things that are um, eligible for people that are coming out of state prison can get certificates of rehabilitation. We also assist with that. However, um, some of the other things that need to happen are expanding the law in this area. After the Patriot Act and the Homeland Security um, Agency being created, criminal history records are having an impact on people in a way that they have never had before. Um, so right now, for people that are coming out of state prison, they are saddled with that conviction for the rest of their life. There's no way to get a state prison conviction dismissed the way that the law is right now. So some of the things that need to uh, happen is some changes, some pressure, some different things to happen with, legislator, with legislators so that people know that the laws and remedies haven't kept up with the laws in terms of the punishment or the consequences from, um, going to, from being in custody. And so those are some of the other things that we're working with in the Clean Slate program. Why is it helpful? Again, so that people can um, remove those barriers to employment, um, to housing, to all of those other things that, you know, someone wants. And the reason why um, it's such an honor for me to do this and to let people know, again, there's still a lot of barriers. There's still a lot of opposition to this. There's still a lot of agencies and programs in different counties who don't believe that it's really that much resources or effort or, or how much help should be put into this area. And a lot of people don't realize, just like the examples that we have had at the table, that people do want a second chance. People do deserve a second chance. Um, people do not want to remain involved in a criminal lifestyle for the rest of their life. Um, and a lot of times we have people on the other hand, sometimes judges, sometimes legislators, um, prosecutors, who aren't aware of that. So getting the word out to let them know. And I use myself as an example also that I'm a recovering addict, a recovering substance abuser. I have 16 years clean and sober from... And I have 16 years clean and sober from drugs, alcohol, institutions, and, and death, jails, institutions, and death. And Narcotics Anonymous saved my life. So I, I share that story to let people know that just because someone is a drug addict, they're using drugs or they're committing the crimes that we need to commit in order to support our drug ha habit, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be given the opportunity to contribute to society. That doesn't mean that they don't have any skills, any goals, any aspirations, any things that they can use to become a contributing member of society. And when someone is able to use their skills 
to use their abilities and their passion to contribute to society, then it reduces the chances that they might want to go out and commit further crime, that they may have to go break into a car or even want to use drugs or any of those things because they have those goals that the Reverend was talking about. They have dreams and they're able to accomplish their dreams. There's not someone saying, oh, well, since you were in jail, prison, or you were a drug addict, you need to just go sit down. We're not going to help you. We're not going to clear up your record. The law needs to be changed in that area. It needs to keep up with the, with the harm that's been done by the Patriot Act and the Homeland Security Agency. And we need to start seeing more um, opportunities in this area. So that's what's available right now. And those are the remedies that people can take advantage of right now. But it also, there's a lot more that can be done. Great. Thank you very much, Damaris. Our last speaker is John Baskerville, the Director of Health and Social Service Unit for Source to Plowshares. John Baskerville has been with Source to Plowshares, an organization that works specifically with veterans, for the past 12 years. He started his tenure at Swords, helping vets secure much-needed employment services. He eventually moved into the field of providing mental health and social services, which includes housing stabilization, substance abuse counseling, and linkages both to the city, county, and VA-sponsored mental health services. He's a strong advocate for veterans. He has served on numerous committees and panels and has appeared on 60 Minutes as well as on local radio. He recently assumed the position of the Director of Health and Social Services Unit. The question for John Baskerville is, your services to veterans are comprehensive, but what problems do you frequently see that, meet, that remain unaddressed by the community? Well, first of all, thank you very much for allowing me to sit on this panel. I was talking to Dr. DeVore um, before we got up there, and I said, why don't you say a little bit of prayer? And I figured that would have let him get his stuff on because I was really afraid he was going to break out the handkerchief because if he broke out the handkerchief, I mean, he's a black minister. When he broke out the handkerchief, we're going to be here all day long, you know. <laughs> that's my man. That's my brother. I, uh, I'm going to go forward, go back with just a little bit. I, I, um. I started out and uh, came to California from Boston, Massachusetts. Many years ago, I was an air traffic controller. I'm a man of passions, and I was very proud of that position I had. I was actually the youngest air traffic controller, sort of um, journeyman controller in the country, uh, working in an environment where it was just me. And I started having problems, and uh, aside from the fact that I lost an eye during a, during a skirmish and tried to do that job with one eye, the thing that I look back on in retrospect, there was nobody for me to talk to. There was nobody for me to tell the problems that I was having. There was nobody for me in a facility of 550 people with nobody looked like me that I can tell them that I felt that I was a victim of racism, that I was having problems with drugs, that I was having trouble with alcohol, that I was having trouble learning how to grow up to be a man because I was very, very young. I eventually um, lost that job um, due to this eye injury and went through a lot of the things that a lot of people go through. I ended up matriculating down to Martha's Vineyard uh, down in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, where I got, where I got clean. Um, air traffic control was my passion. I've always been a man of passions. And I remember when I got clean, I said, I had a person say to me, well, don't make any major decisions in, in the first year because 
you know, when I found out I was last, I said, oh, God, you know, I'm like a racehorse at the gate. I want to go. You know, I found out I'm last. They said, don't make any major decisions in the first year. And I said, the first decision I'm going to make, if I make it through this first year of recovery, I want to do theater. That's why I thank the lady that did the theater, because theater is one of my passions. And as I was down there, I showed how God works sometime. On the very 365th day of my recovery, a lady walked up to me and said, I'm doing a play. I need a black person. Would you like to be in it? <laughs> Tell me there's not a God. Now, I don't know if anybody saw the movie Jaws, but in the very first scene of Jaws, when the very first person gets eaten up by the big shark, the lady with the big floppy hat, her name is Leaf Fierro. And what she actually walked up to me and says, you're a black man. I says, okay. You know, <laughs> the play did not work out, but I went on to do about half a dozen plays with uh, Lee, and, um, and um, I always enjoyed that part of my life. I've always had to have a passion. I came to California, not sure exactly what I wanted to do, and I ended up at Swords, and there I found my passion, and my passion is veterans. And before I got on, go on, are there any people in the audience here who have served in the military? Could they please raise their hand? Could you please give them a round of applause? It's for you that I exist. And I think that, think that Terry and Frank and Dr. DeVore can, can understand what I say. There's people say to me, Johnny, you always seem like you're, you're upset. Well, I'm not upset. I'm just passionate. You say, yeah, Johnny, but you went into that meeting and you ate them alive. You know, I said, <laughs> I said well, maybe I am a, a little bit angry. You know, I'm angry because of the stories I hear. I'm angry because of the stories I hear of our aging veteran population, right. Vietnam veteran, who has served in combat and who, as a consequence of serving in combat, whose lives have just been a mess. I'm angry because of um, uh, what's called McNamara's 100,000, when they lowered the criteria for entering the military. And we had all these young men who had mild to moderate mental health problems, who had developmental disabilities, who they sent over to Vietnam and just served as fodder. Many of them are the 55,000 who are on the wall in Washington, D.C. Do you realize that we have had more Vietnam veterans commit suicide than have died in Vietnam? That's why I'm angry and that's why I'm pissed off. Yes. We... We... Um, We see, we see a lot of we see a lot of veterans um, at Swords to Plowshares. Um, obviously, we have a, a continuum of services within our facility. My unit, which provides health and social services, um, um, has a uh, has a unique relationship that's uh, that's unique in the in the in the whole country. Um, my unit is funded by the uh, Department of uh, Health, um, Department of Public Health, now Community Behavioral Health Services to provide outpatient mental health peer-supported services for veterans. What we do is we do community stabilization, and we try to uh, reduce the, uh, the impact of veterans on the uh, mental health system and the uh, hospital system in San Francisco. That's one of our missions, is we try to direct veterans um, to the VA system of care. Um, we provide housing and stabilization, uh, counseling, um, you name it, we do it. Um, we consider ourselves gunslingers. If there's a way to solve the problem, we attempt to solve the problem. Excuse me. 
I've done this a lot, but even when I do it, my voice shakes and I get nervous. But somebody just said that that's just God shaking the truth out of you. So. <laughs> All right. We have a we have a legal component that has been on the front lines of uh, of uh, providing assistance with veterans to uh, access their uh, their uh, VA health care um, compensation in a form of uh, service connected disability and pensions. Um, sorts of plowshares was conceptualized in 1974, and that's the, one of the first things that we did. We had a veterans population that was uh, disenfranchised from the VA, and the organization was started by three or four veterans who felt that the idea of vets helping veterans um, was the key. I think uh, one, of the, one of the differences that we look at, we look at the Vietnam veteran and the veteran from World War II. You know, we had these, these heroes and these veterans of World War II you know, they left as a unit, and they were able to come home as a unit on these boats, this nice slow boat where everybody got to talk. Everybody got to decompress. They got to talk about their, their losses. They got to cry amongst men who went through the same thing with them. The men in Vietnam and the men and women who are serving this present conflict, everything's so fast. One minute you're in a huge ship storm, and the next minute you're back home. There's no way to decompress. Um, but anyways... Um, our legal unit was at the forefront of, uh, of getting one of the, some of the first claims for uh, veterans-related uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, we were at the forefront of uh, the case to get veterans compensation for Agent Orange. Agent Orange was the chemical that was used to defoliate the forests in, um, in Vietnam. Um, veterans to this day still um, suffer from the, um, from the effects of Agent Orange in the forms of uh, eczema on their skins and uh, um, type 2 diabetes and uh, heart problems, you name it. It was just a horrible, horrible, horrible chemical. We have, a, uh, we have a transitional treatment program on Treasure Island, which a lot of veterans who are incarcerated are able to enter that program. I call it transitional treatment because it's a little bit of a hybrid program. It's actually funded through HUD and uh, VA grant per diem, so the length of the program is two years. So there's quite a bit of time for a veteran to to, uh, to get the needed uh, treatment uh, that he needs. Uh, within that program, there's also what's called a VA-funded uh, special needs program. Um, one, of the, one of the big problems with the VA is um, in San Francisco is a lot of the uh, residential services have been shut down. Uh, there was a study that was done about eight years ago that said that there was no difference between residential treatment and an outpatient basis and no difference between on substance abuse treatment on an outpatient basis and on a residential basis. So as a consequence of that, the VA closed the uh, residential programs at Fort Miley. Um, and uh, they also closed the residential dual diagnosis programs. Well, we were able to recently get funded to have 20 beds for residential treatment for veterans um, at our program at Treasure Island. Now, this is important because one of the things that we try to do is to link veterans with uh, community-based um, dual diagnosis residential programs. Well, the problem with that is there is a gatekeeper, and many times in the past and even currently what will happen is because the system is at capacity, when we will try to make a referral to one of those programs, the person who is manning the gate will say, oh, no, 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 he's a veteran, send him to the VA. Well, that would be all right. If there was a uh, if there was a duplication of services, but there's just little 20 beds there. There's not a lot of beds. 
So we've always had a problem with that. Um, we actually went to uh, Dr. Bob Sabai and, uh, many years ago and said this is not fair for a man or for a woman who has served their country and put their life on the line. If anybody has the right to have two sets of health care, it should be a veteran, and they should not be denied services. Dr. Zavai said, take it easy, Johnny, take it easy. He wrote a letter, and this letter exists today. It's a living document. And every couple of years, I have to get him to reissue the letter because the people who man the gates for these um, programs, to get into these programs, well, they change, and they don't know. And they're trying to fit, um, you know, 20 people in three or four beds. And the first thing they do is try to triage of people. And they look at a person and see they're a vet. They say, well, get rid of them and send them to the VA. So this is a living, working document, and it's a fight. We continuously have to fight. That's one of the barriers that we have in accessing health care services. One of the other um, problems that we face is this thing that's happening. It's called the fleeing felons law. It's continuing. It's a, it's a huge stone in my shoe. And what this law says is that if you have an open felony on the books, and what they periodically do, they go through the NCIC computer and they go through the uh, Social Security numbers, and they match up the Social Security number. And if you have an open felony anywhere in the country, well, what will happen is the VA will cut off your um, financial assistance, which has all type of ramifications. But what they also do is they deny you health care. So you can no longer access any VA services at all. And many times we've discovered that it's a mistake. The person has already cleared the warrant. They've already done the time, and it's just a clerical error. And it just plays hell trying to get it um, um, straightened out. Housing. Man, housing, San Francisco housing. Where do you find housing? You know, we're living in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a continuing struggle. Um, uh, the mayor's uh, Housing First program um, has its upsides, and it uh, obviously has its downsides. One of the biggest losses to me as a direct service provider was the loss of a man's place shelter. Now, a lot of people looked at a man's place shelter and said, oh, man, it was just a shelter. But you know what? It was a shelter that was clean. It was well-lighted. It had, it had good on-site support services. There were people there that were on the same page that was trying to get clean, and it was helpful. It was a place to launch from to do other things. You could launch from there to go on employment. You could launch from there to go into a program. You could be there in case you were applying for SSI or VA pension and you had a, a place that I could find you. With the current system we have now, it makes my job very, very difficult. So the barriers that my veterans face are not dissimilar to the barriers that all the other providers have spoken about. And then there are, then there are some extra ones. Um, prison. Prison is a gladiator school. And what, other, what better, the original gladiator school, quite frankly, is the military. We instill in our children a set of moral codes. And, and one of the things is not to kill. 
And I think what happens is we take these young men and women and we wipe the slate clean and we re-imprint on them a different set of values. And then we send them off to these far-off countries and they kill. And they do things that are totally foreign to them. And then we send them back home and we don't help them heal. We do it... um, just like the lady from um, Corrections was talking about, we send them $200 and send them out the gate. In many instances, that's what happens with these young men and women who are over there fighting now. There are 140,000 men and women over there fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan now. They're OEF and OFI veterans. It's called the Global War on Terror. Each one of them I support. Each one of them I will support when they get back. We are going to have a whole new crop of veterans who are going to need our services. They are going to replace the Vietnam veterans in the system. Um, 1.5 million men and women have rotated through there to date during two or three tours. The flavor of Vietnam and the flavor over there are very, very similar. We're creating a whole new crop of veterans who are going to be occupying the prison system. We need to be prepared for them. We need to be here to support them. I hope you will be there to support them because Swords to Plowshares will definitely be there to support them. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, we have uh, run out of time and have gone over, in fact, into the other panel. I would just like to give, give this panel a really big round of applause for their compassion and excellent presentation. Thank you very much. Okay, we're just going to take a, uh, a ten-minute break. Be back at three or five. We got a great panel, a great panel coming up. So please, please come back. Final panel, and then we'll have a sum up. I. We're going to have a, a, a sum up um, and hopefully some time for a few questions. And thank you for your patience. I, I do want to uh, acknowledge uh, uh, the volunteers that we've had here from the uh, Rose home. I think they'll be with them in just a minute, but you'll see them. They're wearing the rose-colored T-shirts, and they work with families in need. And... Uh, And they've done a great job of, uh, of helping us today. I also, oh, you just missed your, your cue here to take a bow. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I also want to acknowledge uh, Gwen Strain, who uh, started this, uh, this program. She was formerly homeless and has now, uh, as a businesswoman, created a wonderful uh, home uh, for women here in the Baby Hunters Point in San Francisco. Thank you, Gwen. I also want to acknowledge Ms. Iris Whiney. She's the Deputy Chief of the United States Probation Office. Thank you very much for being here. We're very honored to have you. For our third panel, we are going to begin with a video presentation, and then we'll go directly into the panel.
Daniel has been in and out of prison for the last 30 years of his life. While in the Maryland House of Corrections, he found out about the Maryland Reentry Partnership and saw it as a way of helping him break the cycle of recidivism. Like I said, I come home with the intent of not going back, but then not being able to get employment, and then you become depressed, stressed out, and then you go back to your old habitat and old things that you know well. The Maryland Reentry Partnership is a public-private partnership made up of several agencies that work together to provide a network of support for returning prisoners. Key partners include the Enterprise Foundation, the Maryland Department of Corrections, the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice, Parole and Probation, the Baltimore Police Department, and local community development corporations. The initiative targets three communities that will receive about 60% of the 13,000 offenders being released into Baltimore City this year. The program begins in prison and includes an exit orientation. Transition is, out, is, is inevitable. Everybody is sitting on, that other, on the side of the room facing me. The transition is inevitable. You're getting out of here. You know, that's inevitable. Transition with change is a choice. Here in the state of Maryland, I believe our recidivism rate is, a, is around 50 or so percent, um, meaning that most of the people who walk out of our prisons, they go back. The question is why? Um, so we wanted to try something new. Of course, there are lots of folks who come out and they're under state-imposed supervision, but the agents can do but so much. And a lot of these guys, they're in and out of prison. It's sort of a revolving door. If we could put something in place in their communities to assist them with not just their reentry from prison back into the community, but a, a reintegration into their community, into their families in a positive way, then we're banking that they'll be less likely to commit more crimes. Upon release, reentry participants are connected with services, including substance abuse treatment, housing, health services, and vocational and educational training. In addition to traditional supervision provided by the Department of Parole and Probation, community-based case managers and advocates are assigned and work closely with clients to extend the reach of supervision and to aid in their reintegration. We're part of law enforcement, in effect, so I think the trust level is different um, with the community advocate and with the community case manager, and that really helps the agent um, in, in areas where they can't reach somebody. You know, if, 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 an, if an offender fails to report for a few um, uh, appointments, mm -hmm. the case manager can just, the, the agent can pick up the phone and call the case manager and say, you know, can you help me find this person? I pick the guys up from the gate when they're released, um, take them home, or if they're going to transitional housing, I'll take them there. But in the process, I find out, you know, what exactly do they need. And if they need, like, an ID, things we take for granted, you know, that's my job to get it for them. Social Security card, birth certificate, um, take them to the clinic, take them to the doctors. Well, a lot of times they just need somebody to talk to, to ride around and talk with, and that'd be me. I'm a recovering addict, and I'm also an ex-offender. So I understand the challenges that someone faces in transitioning from not only inside of the walls to outside of the walls, but from inside of that prison up here to the freedom that we can receive once we can replace that old misinformation, not only misinformation, but missed information. Tyrell Williams is 22 years old and has already spent three years of his life locked up. Through his involvement and commitment to the Maryland Reentry Partnership, 
He is working toward his GED and is in a floor technician training program. I sat around and heard what they was talking about, and I liked what they was talking about, about the roadblocks that you got to face when you go out there and know how to, when the temptation hits you, when, when you step on the bricks, when you step on the real ground. You know, there's a, a lot of temptations that hit you, and if you don't pick up on it and, you know, see where your place at, you'll be lost. These guys are resources, man. They are some intelligent individuals. And if we can just challenge that intelligence and, and use the intelligence to be part of a rebuilding, revitalizing part of this community, then the possibilities are enormous. The division benefits because um, if we're able to link these guys to services, and that's less folks who are coming back into prison. The division of parole and probation benefits because their agents have astronomical caseloads. Um, and if an agent can work with a case manager in the community, that case manager nine times out of ten has more contact on a day-to-day -day basis with the clients and can report to the agent and share. The client, of course, benefits because he's getting access to services that he may not have had an opportunity to access. And he's also getting support that he may not have necessarily had. first part of our mission is, of course, uh, public safety. You know, we have to keep uh, inmates confined uh, where they can't do any harm. We have to do that in you know, a humane and dignified way. We have to provide prisons that are safe you know, for our staff and employees to, to work in. But the second part, um, an equally important part of our, our mission, is to prepare inmates to go back home. I can do my part inside the fence, and I can do my part uh, to develop the cooperation and do all the things we can to make this flow and make it easy and make it painless. But without that handoff, without people in the community doing their part and being involved, then the process just won't work. I think people are beginning to understand in a different light, in part because of the budget crisis. We have to figure out better ways than just building more prisons because we don't have the money to do that. But also when it comes to public safety, you know, ironically, you can promote public safety by changing the way you punish criminals. And, uh, and I think even many crime victims organizations around the country are starting to understand the connection, especially as it relates to nonviolent offenses. To lead our last panel, Crafting Solutions for San Francisco is Linda Connolly. Linda has been a longtime advocate for prison reform and reentry. Uh, she, for many years, ran an agency uh, known as Milestones uh, here in San Francisco, and now is the executive director of uh, LCA. Uh, Linda? Thank you, Jeff. And thank you, all of you, for staying. And it's late, and it's been a long day, and I'm really, you know, it shows a lot of, of how important this whole issue of reentry is. And as Jeff said, I have worked in the field 32 years, a long time, and one of the most discouraging things has been the disconnect between what's going on at the state level, the federal level, cities and counties. We have people working in mental health, substance abuse, employment, and they're not, they weren't dialoguing with each other. And we have scarce resources, and we weren't utilizing those resources in the best way that we could. And so the intent of this panel three is to really talk about those bridges and how we can connect those different those groups together and really use those resources in the right way and make change. And I'm hoping that, you know, we're seeing Maryland and we're seeing other states that are doing these great reentry partnerships. I hope that what we're doing in San Francisco is going to be on tape one day for another state and another city and county that's looking at it. And that's very exciting to see. Um, another disconnect that I, I want to just briefly mention is the disconnect with our neighborhoods. 
Um, we can talk about putting great programs, residential programs, outpatient programs together, but no one wants to have that program next door, and the whole NIMBY issue is absolutely huge. Um, we have to deal with it at a state level, but certainly in San Francisco at the local level, we have to engage our communities. And I think that's why one reason this summit is so exciting is that we can demonstrate to the communities the huge barriers that face parolees and people coming out of jail and prison and that we can have success. If we put the programs together and give people the tools they need, we absolutely can have success in public safety. So we have to be on the same page, and this is just a fantastic start. And again, I'm going to thank Jeff Adachi because he is tireless as an advocate. He's tireless with what he's done in putting this together. And I also want to thank David Moroff, who's done, who put together this program and this summit. And let's give them a great hand, please. <laughs> and the last thing before turning over to the panel, um, you know, this takes political will. And what Mark Leno was saying this morning was a bit discouraging. Um, because of the way the politicians in Sacramento and certainly the United States are looking at this whole issue. And it's up to us to really work with them and to continue to educate because when the political will is there, we're going to see change. And we're seeing that in San Francisco with all the key stakeholders that are here right now and, to, and working on this reentry initiative in San Francisco. So it's really great to see that. We're going to start, um, our, our panel is bridging, Building Bridges, Crafting a Plan for San Francisco. And we're very honored to have with us um, Del Sales Owen, who is the new, deputy, uh, the new director of the Division of Community Partnerships for the California Department of Corrections and um, Rehabilitation. This department never existed until two years ago, uh, and it's absolutely key if we're going to be able to have the state partner in lo and with the locals and get to know what we're doing, we can get to know what the state's doing and start, start building some programs. So Del um, started, uh, was appointed by Governor Schwarzenegger in July of 2005. Prior to uh, this position, she worked with the California Drug and Alcohol Programs and was key in implementing Prop 36, uh, which, as we all know, was uh, in lieu of incarceration for drug offenders. It put them into drug treatment programs. And then prior to that, she worked for 24 years with the Department of Social Services for the state. So she has a wealth of experience and a wealth of knowledge, and we are thrilled to have you. Thank you, Del. Okay, so I have a couple of, sorry, I've got to have the questions to ask you. Okay, um, how has the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation prepared to shift its focus um, towards planning for reentry while people are incarcerated? And what rehabilitative, rehabilitative programs are they going to be utilizing? Well, thank you very much. Let, let me start by saying it's a real honor to be here today. I am so impressed by the uh, spirit of cooperation, uh, the uh, the folks that have come here from the community, as well as all of the uh, government uh, and uh, political um, uh, leaders that are at the table. Um, I'm from Sacramento, and uh, usually when you say you're from Sacramento and you're here to help, you get a giggle. <laughs> but um, I, I'm very pleased to be in the position that I'm in in um, Sacramento this new division of community partnerships within the new Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation is a tremendous opportunity for me and for the department to do some things that we've not done before. Uh, we added the R, uh, rehabilitation, to our name. In addition to doing that, we created a whole new structure in the department. 
before everything that had to do with program was basically under the purview of custody. And so the custody uh, decisions that got made sometimes did not take into consideration the programming uh, issues and, and, and concerns. With this reorganization, there was the creation of a separate chief deputy secretary over programs and one for institutions. And so they are equal sitting at the table in the decision-making process. I am fortunate enough to report to the chief deputy secretary of programs. And uh, our commitment is to bringing into our institution programming to a level that it has never been before. Uh, we have put together a strategy or a set of strategies for recidivism reduction. Uh, we're very pleased that in this year's budget, we have $52.8 million dedicated to recidivism reduction strategies. And we've organized them in such a way that we recognize the continuum uh, uh, that occurs when people come into our system. And the first uh, part of that continuum, which everyone has talked about here, is with the community at the time of sentencing. What are we doing and should we be doing more uh, at the Department of Corrections and in the community around building that reentry plan right from the beginning? And I'm going to talk um, a little bit more later about a pilot that we're doing uh, around this upfront assessment and starting reentry there. But the uh, second part is the institution. We recognize that in the last several years, a lot of our programs have been shut down. A lot of our education programs and vocational programs have been uh, reduced. And we are using part of the funding, uh, that $52.8 million, to restore many of those programs that have gone away. Another thing that happened in the institutions is that uh, about three years ago, we had a community resource manager in every institution. And what that manager did was to build bridges between the community and the institution to resolve issues, to figure out ways that the institutions could add value to the communities and also to be the gateway for the community to come in and help those uh, inmates that wanted to participate in AA and NA. All of those positions went away in the institutions. And when we held our um, uh, community collaborative last year and we asked uh, the community stakeholders what is it that we could do to at least gain some of the ground that we had gained before and they said bring back the community resource managers so part of this uh, 52.8 million dollars is bringing back uh, in three sites the we're calling them now community partnership managers and they will be that bridge between the institution and the community. We're going to ask them to do something a little different than they did in the past. Not only work with the community in terms of getting uh, volunteers to come inside the institution, but also to work with those community-based organizations that are really helping to prepare uh, for those in, uh, individuals who are returning into the community. And so that is going to be a, a big piece of what we do as part of that package. We also uh, are looking at the concept of structured reentry. And so we have uh, some funding dedicated for re uh, 
structured reentry. And one example I'd like to give you in, in terms of what we've planned is addresses an issue that someone talked about earlier today. The fact that many times uh, people don't apply for their benefits until after they've been released. And what we've done in this year's budget is we've put in $2.8 million to launch an effort so that there are social workers inside the institution pre-release that are actually there to assist in applying for benefits so that that can be secured before the uh, individuals are released to the community. Uh, and lastly, uh, community reintegration is how very timely uh, it was to have this uh, Maryland uh, tape talk about uh, the importance of community reintegration. Uh, there is only so much that uh, the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation can do on its own. This is really a shared responsibility. And as someone said earlier today, one of our biggest challenges is to make sure we're not a barrier here at CDCR to that happening. And that is part of the charge of my office, is to make sure that we're not a barrier uh, my, the secretary that uh, appointed me to this position uh, used to tell me uh, all the time, he says, you know, we're hard to help. And, uh, and that's what I heard from the community, is that we are so big, we are so complex. Uh, we've got 33 institutions. There are uh, over 60,000 employees. There are so many doors to knock on to be told that you've, not, you've knocked on the wrong door. Part of my job in the Division of Community Partnerships is to make sure that there is no wrong door, that you knock on the door of the Division of Community Partnerships, and that is the gateway to getting to whoever you need to get to within the department if your purpose is to assist in the reintegration of uh, offenders back into the community. So the, the structural changes and organizational changes and our current year recidivism reduction strategy is uh, a big step towards uh, making a change in the way that we do the delivery of reentry services. Great, Del, thank you. And can you also talk a little bit about SB 618? Jackie Spear, I think in 2004, sponsored that bill. Um, San Francisco has applied for a grant um, with that, and Dell's office is overseeing that. So if you could just give the group an overview, we'd appreciate it. SB 618, a very exciting piece of uh, legislation. It would allow for three counties in the state of California to actually take over the responsibility for doing the uh, reception center activities that are uh, performed now by CDCR. And what that means is that normally we do a number of screenings and assessments once uh, an inmate arrives to our reception centers. And that those assessments can take anywhere from 90 to 120 days, largely because of our numbers and our overcrowding. Uh, individuals end up sitting, waiting for long periods of time to be moved into the general population. And what that means is while they're sitting in a reception center, they are not getting access to programming. And so it is a lost opportunity uh, to meet their needs. Additionally, if they are returned uh, uh, from parole, uh, we also have an issue with they are returned for uh, a short period of incarceration. They sit in reception for two months. Then they get moved to an institution. 
Uh, they only have two months left. They don't have time to really program. And so what they've really experienced is a great disruption in whatever they had started when they were on parole. So we've got a situation where we have an opportunity with 618 to change the way we handle our assessments. In the 618 model, what would happen is that at the time of sentencing, the court would have probation as part of their sentencing report, do a full assessment of the individual's needs, uh, reducing a lot of the duplication that happens now. Uh, many times that report already gets prepared by probation, and, uh, and then we start the process all over again in the reception center. In a 618 model, we would take that report. It would be the uh, document that would determine what kinds of services would be, would be provided in the institution and bypassing a lot of the weight that occurs in the reception center. So in San Diego, who is the first county that uh, is actually started to do the development? They predict that with this change, instead of 120 days sitting in the reception center, they can complete this whole process in 28 days and actually get the person into the general population and start the programming immediately. So that is the, the beauty of that particular model. Uh, we started with San Diego first uh, because this was new for us. We'd never transferred the responsibility for assessment to a local before, and we wanted to make sure that not only was the county ready and uh, San Diego was way ahead of the game. Their reentry roundtable had been meeting for two years, and so they were really primed and ready to do this. And so it meant that CDCR had to get primed and ready to do this. And I was very pleased to see the level of cooperation coming from our uh, parole uh, offices, also from the institution, our classification. Everyone is sitting at the table. I remember uh, one of the first meetings, I was just tremendously uh, impressed by the fact that there were CDCR employees from substance abuse, from health care, and uh, from parole, and from classifications that had probably not sat in the same room together either. And so here they were sitting in the room with each other, sitting in the room with the uh, county sheriffs, the district attorney, and also the community working on a plan to actually do this transition. We are in the process of soliciting uh, other counties um, to come in and do SB 618. Uh, our proposal is that they will complete an application uh, and then we will make a decision in December and they would start their planning in January and we would uh, hope to have funding in place for them to begin the program in July of 2007. Now, originally we thought um, we would just have to uh, uh, we have a couple of counties that might want to do this, and, uh, and the decision-making process would be very simple about how this would go. Uh, we decided to send out a letter of interest to see how many counties would be interested in one of these two remaining slots, and we found that we had six counties, and San Francisco is one of them. And so we're going to pick one uh, county from the uh, north part of the state and one county from the uh, south, southern part of the state uh, to be the second counties in, in all of this. And so we're very excited about the level of interest uh, that we've gotten from counties uh, in doing this. 
Over and above 618, uh, I'm, I'm very excited that we have counties that are just generally interested in working with us around reentry. They may not necessarily want to take over the uh, front end assessment responsibilities that we handle now, but they do want to have a, a partnership with us. And there is one other initiative that I wanted to just briefly mention that I'm pretty excited about, and that's the Federal Prisoners Reentry Initiative. Uh, one of the things that my office did was we uh, took a look at all of the uh, grants that were available for, uh, from the federal government, and there were, were uh, probably about $10 million in various grants that are available to states to do uh, projects in the area of reentry. Well, we applied for the Federal Prisoners Reentry Initiative, and we were successful in getting a grant of $1.8 million. And the wonderful thing about that is we have four local grantees um, that got funding from the Department of Labor to do reentry. And their grant is used to provide all of the services associated re with reentry. But the federal government recognizes that they can't provide services to people they can't access. Their goal is to start pre-release planning with these individuals before uh, they come out, which means that they have to work with us to gain access to those individuals. The, the federal government recognized that that may take a little bit of doing on the state's part, so they made the grants available to the state to do things to help, in fact, make that connection and make that linkage between the community-based organizations that are providing services and uh, the institutions. So we're looking at what kind of staffing do we need to have social work staffing within the institutions and in pre-release to build that bridge and build that connection to the community. So I'm very excited about uh, our opportunity to do that. And um, we have four um, sites. One is in San Diego, one is in Fresno, one is in Sacramento, and the fourth is in Oakland. And uh, I mentioned earlier that we were setting up the community partnership managers and the institutions. We're trying to set them up in institutions that will be fairly closely linked to those community-based organizations that um, are participating in the federal grant. Uh, this will have a, a, a side benefit for San Francisco in as much as the community partnership manager is going to be San Quentin for the uh, Bay Area. So I think that will provide an extra linkage for, um, for San Francisco in terms of that connection to uh, San Quentin. Thank you, Dale, very much. Appreciate it. Our next speaker is Michael O'Yang. Michael um, began his career at the Department of Corrections. It was Corrections at that time in 1986 as a correctional officer at San Quentin. And after doing systems analysis, he then went on to the Parole and Community Services Division. And he's had a series of promotions there and, and is now the unit supervisor at the Daily City. Um, he this summer was acting uh, West Bay administrator and was in San Francisco and he was really uh, critical to our reentry council because we were just forming at that point. There were a lot of issues with the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation and we really appreciated Michael's help with that. So Michael, a couple of a question for you. We've talked a little bit on the other panels about some of the programs that uh, parole is already doing. Where do you perceive a lack of care or access that causes problems for parolees, and what can we do to build those linkages to address the issues? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. I'm honored to be here. 
Um, <clears throat> to answer the question, I think effective communication uh, within CDC is, is absolutely number one. Uh, we need to we need to learn to to talk to the parolees as well as their families and and uh, and uh, and the communities at large. Um, as a parole agent, every case that I've experienced uh, that was a success case, uh, I was able to effectively communicate with the families as well as the parolee and reach them and, and work with them and uh, nurture them and uh, bring them to a point of success. Um, I think building trust also is also very important in this goal. Uh, they need to trust us not to lock them up, and we need to trust them not to violate. I also believe education is uh, very important. We need to bridge the gap of education. Uh, we need to engage them in, and excite them in, in, uh, in learning, and we need to also excite them in uh, learning about work, and we need to excite them about staying clean. Uh, we also need to educate our agents as well. We need to provide better training and and uh, and how to communicate with uh, with parolees and and uh, how to effectively deal with them in the community. Uh, we also need to train and and teach uh, the community itself on what our mission is and what our mission is not. Uh, I also believe in liaisoning with uh, local leaders here in San Francisco, as well as the city leadership and uh, the city council, the board of supervisors, and uh, community action groups. And together we can effectively manage the parolee population in their neighborhoods. We can together identify issues and collaboratively work towards a successful resolution. Thank you. Great, Michael. Thank you. You're so right about that communication and working with the parole agents and the parolees together. Our next presenter is uh, Judge Herbert Donaldson. And Judge Donaldson has worked in the San Francisco courts since 1983. And he purportedly retired in 1999, but he's been uh, sitting on special assignments since then. And in 2003, um, he initiated the Behavioral Health Court, which has been highly successful in San Francisco and still going today. He's a big advocate for the alternative collaborative courts, and he has, has agreed to volunteer and work with our reentry council on what we're calling the Second Chance Court, which will be um, a court for parole violators in lieu of going back to prison and jail for a nonviolent technical offense. They would be allowed to go into a reentry court. It's a big initiative for us. Um, prior to that, Judge Donaldson was a proprietor of the coffee business. Uh, and he was also um, a practicing attorney and served honorably in the United States Navy. Judge Donaldson, um, based on your experience with the alternative courts, what lessons can you teach us um, about an emerging second chance court, and what are the crucial design elements that we need to make sure we incorporate? Well, before I answer that question, first let me say that we are sending far too many people who have been convicted of nonviolent crimes to state prison. And, and we, are, we are sending far too many people who have been convicted of nonviolent crimes and are mentally ill to state prison where they are poorly equipped to treat them. I, I worked with 
the Behavioral Health Court in San Francisco for three years. Uh, and one of the things which I recognized then and now, and I think must be true of any re-entry or second chance court, is that there has to be a team effort. In other words, there has to be collaboration between all the people who are connected with that court and the agencies that are giving support to that court. There must be a strong mental health component. We, were, we are lucky in San Francisco to have citywide uh, be our mental health component as one of our resource people. And, and I want to recognize Kathleen Connolly, who is here somewhere, and who works at Citywide. I want to also recognize Jennifer Johnson, who's put in three-plus years working part-time and managed to uh, represent the, well, some 60 to 100 people at a time in the Behavioral Health Court. That takes a lot of work. Now, we have to recognize in a court such as is proposed here, there has to be a common goal. And the common goal is certainly rehabilitation and the public safety. So there have to be guidelines as to who is, uh, who is entered into the court. Uh, but these guidelines should also be flexible. They shouldn't be uh, hard and fast because there are always exceptions because in any court such as this, we're dealing with people, and each person is an individual. We have to serve everybody's interest, and therefore the usual court adversarial position has to be abandoned. It has to be a cooperative uh, matter. Although somebody representing the people, in, our, in the case of BHC, it's the, it's the uh, district attorney, uh, and of course and somebody representing the people, who are in that court, uh, mostly it's, it's uh, Jennifer Johnson with, from the Public Defender's Office, they have to learn to work together and not to work at uh, opposite uh, ends. And I have to say they very successfully have learned how to do that. Additionally, the person who leads that court has to learn to listen to the, the people who are part of that team. Uh, it's not a matter in which the judge who is in that court uh, can be arbitrary. It has to be a cooperative effort so that there is general consensus. A, a court such as is proposed here has to have something to offer to the individual who is going to be part of that court. In other words, they have to receive something because, of course, it will be voluntary. Uh, a parolee doesn't have to except something like this, they have to be convinced that they're going to get something out of it, and they will get something out of it. They're going to, they're going to get some stability. They're going to get some guidance, and uh, for a while they'll be coming back to court probably every couple of weeks, not for punitive reasons, but just to ascertain how they are progressing. In other words, they have to know that they are actually cared for, there has to be some reward for, for being in this court, and I think that can be worked out. 
one of the rewards, of course, is that they're going to be, have access to a lot of the agencies that they wouldn't know how to access on their own. It's, it's one thing to, to give a list of agencies that they can apply to, but you and I, the average person, when we go to some of these agencies, we don't know what to do, and, and we don't know how to answer their questions. We don't even know how to find them. And how do we expect people who have been in prison to suddenly be aware of where all these people are located, what they should be asking for, and, and what they should be saying, these magic words, to get what they need? Uh, in other words, we all have to collaborate because we all have the same goal, that is, we want people in this court to succeed. Now, we can't expect 100% success. We don't have 100% success in our BHC, but you will be amazed at how people will react if they are treated right, if they're treated like individuals, like they're like they are a person of worth. Uh, that's my that's the preliminary suggestion. You know, I could talk for an hour on on what this kind of court should have, but I'll I'll suffice with that. Well, thank you. Appreciate it, guys. Margie Candelaria is um, a housing specialist for the criminal justice population, and she is with MD Consulting, does pre-sentence consulting and training, and she was instrumental in setting up one of the substance abuse programs with Valley State Prison. She currently has seven homes um, for the criminal justice population for people that are re-entering after prison and jail, and she's had a very high success rate of reducing recidivism, substance abuse, and the spread of HIV-AIDS. Margie, we're really pleased to have you with us, and I have a question for you. What services do you most frequently call upon to assist a re-entering individual, and how can our communities and institutions improve or cooperate to assist parolees? How's everybody doing? My name is Margie, and uh, I kind of want to, you know, the judge said something like really that really got through to my awareness, and I believe that's the key to what um, it is that we do and that's treating people as if they're already there, treating people as if they are of value so they will feel valued, which in turn will cha uh, change behavior in a lot of our population. I have created in my journey, my path has taken a lot of different roads. I was instrumental in doing a lot of training the STAR teachers and cognitive skills processes, the pre-release teachers, um, the first activation of the first women's substance abuse program working with OSAP and Walden House and Department of Corrections in setting that up. And I think that the first thing that's really important, we talked about communication, you know, and in that communication consistency with that, because it's like if you go to a training or you go to a conference in another country, you have an interpreter there. If the, if the language is Chinese, you have an interpreter that is speaking Chinese so that, to help us to understand. My husband just went to Russia to a conference, and they had interpreters there to interpret what he was talking about. And I think that that's the very same thing with our population. How do we talk about create community partnerships where we have people in there that are interpreting to our population? Because a lot of the principles and a lot of the beliefs that our population holds to be the truth consistently gets them back in homeless shelters, battered women's shelters, penitentiaries, county jails. I started, I, I work with um, 
criminal justice and men and women. I do all the assessments in the East Bay. My coworkers are here, Seneca, Hector, Big O. We've struggled with this population. I believe it's one of the hardest populations to work with, people that are coming out of prison who are living with HIV and AIDS and the principles that they're living by and they believe about themselves, that they're worthless, no one's ever going to change, why even bother, why even get up and try, that they're hopeless. Um, I created some houses. Um, I've trained with the Federal Bureau of Prisons, all that we implemented code programs, breaking barriers, and a lot of different other cognitive skills programs from Leavenworth to Lompoc to Kansas City, um, in a lot of different areas. And what I found in my journey and on my path was there was a lot of curriculum that was for everybody as a whole. And all the curriculum always had an S with it and a line for she. And as we know, as I know, that it's very specific. Women have very specific and complex issues that have earned their seat in the Department of Corrections. So um, I created my first house on a hope, on a vision that I wanted to work with women. My houses are named Deb's Place in memory of my sister who died in prison from a heroin overdose. That's a whole other issue of things that might need to happen. I believe that there should be detox in prison. I, should believe, that there, I believe that there should be outreach. I believe that um, the PAC programs and the things that the Department of Corrections is creating as a collaborative effort should be duplicated inside of the prisons. I should believe we as a whole need to come into the prisons and we need to have Social Security there. I believe that we need to have someone from GA because when my people were coming fresh out of prison and they've walked on the streets for 24 hours because they don't have any housing and the only thing that they have is a prison ID and then they get into my house, they find their way to Deb's place and number one what they do is that I utilize the internet and I get on DMV, California.gov and I set them up an appointment for DMV. Um, social Security, they can't get Social Security, they can't get access to social services because they don't have an ID. So how do we recreate, you know, we're talking about doing that in the prisons. How do we start right here in the community? How do the community, how do the people in the times of war, people set landmines to keep the enemy away? Who's the better person to come dig up those landmines but the people that have set them? So how do we start within the county jail and inside the county jail system when someone receives a sentence to the Department of Corrections to do the assessment, the needs assessment? right there from the county jail to take that time off when they're sitting over in RC doing all that dead time, not getting their half time off. How do we send people into the county jails when they are uh, get a sentence to the Department of Corrections and they're recruited like Lorna so vividly and eloquently depicted a picture of what happens when somebody goes into the Department of Corrections? What, what is expect, expectation? What happens? They get recruited into the insanity. They don't have a chance to participate in education. They don't have a chance to go participate in the church. So how do we go inside of the county jails and educate? When I first did training for the staff, for the Office of Substance Abuse Programs for staff, and um, went into the administration building and we did, what do you think? Because it, we're all full of hope, right, to go into there, start these substance abuse programs. What do you think that's going to greet you at the other side when you get into these institutions? Oh, people that are open and willing and eager, wrong. See, because inside of our prisons, we form a family system in there inside of the prisons. So I can probably talk all day on those issues. So the things that I do in my house, as I'll talk from experience, I use the community-based organizations that already have their funding in place, that already have programs and they need the numbers and they need the people. 
Um, I think that we need a consistent communication. A lot of my guys or girls come out and they don't have any medication, and that's the reality of it. You know, we try to be the best that we can be, but they come out, triple CMS, diagnosed with mental health issues, schizophrenia, and they don't have any medication on them. They don't have any meds. So what do I do? I get on the telephone. I get on the Internet. I call Tri-Cities because I'm over in Alameda County. I go to Tri-Cities. Um, medical center and they can get in there without any kind of money for six months. They go in there, they get their diagnosis, they get their meds. I use East Bay Community Recovery Project that's in East Bay and um, they get diagnosed again, their mental health issues, their groups and it doesn't take any money. Our people that come out on parole come out with $200 gate money if they're lucky, if they don't live in Northern California and they're in the Southern prison. So they come out with relatively nothing. They come out with no clothes. They don't. There's a place called Wardrobes for Opportunities that I network with them to get them some clothes. They're coming out with some sweats. They're coming out with some. So when they're walking down the streets in the community, do you think that they're going to get invited by anybody that's going down the street to say, hey, come and participate in this or that? I think the gentleman here, the pastor, made a really good point about the churches. How do we involve the churches? I house parolees that nobody else wants in their community, and I'll just put it out like that. How do we address those issues with those parolees that are coming out where nobody else wants to house them because of the crimes that they've committed? And we're getting more laws that are more and more stringent, and pretty soon we're going to have to put them out on ships in the middle of the ocean. You know, how do we integrate them back into society? So for me, I use anything. You know, I'm from the club of no matter what. So anything, I do an assessment when they come in. I do my own assessment on a piece of paper, GED, high school diploma, and then I start directing them to where that they need to go. I keep communication with parole. They hear from me all the time. Well, what about, I thought we were going to, you know, I'm the little pest here. But I continue because I think with consistency that this is how this process works. And I need to mention that I'm also a former consumer with the correctional services. And I was the first woman in the state of California to be sentenced under three strikes throughout and received an alternate sentence to Delancey Street. I got 42 years and four months suspended. So, so I am the person, if all the psychologists were sitting at a table and you were reading the files and said, what do you think that happened to this woman? It would not be a speaker on a panel with criminal justice and community advocates to try to effect change with our population because change is possible. Thank you. Thank you, Margie. A lot of good points and a lot of good questions that we have to address. Our next presenter is Deborah Alvarez Rodriguez, who is president and CEO of Goodwill Industries of San Francisco, San Mateo, and Marin. She runs a dynamic organization. She's a terrific uh, advocate, and we're really happy to have her. Um, Debbie spent 15 years, has had 15 years of executive management experience across uh, the nonprofit, philanthropic, public, and private sectors. She also was head director of San Francisco's uh, Child and Family Services and has worked in healthcare and education. She brings a lot of experience, and we're really happy to have you, Debbie. Question to you is, what role can employers play in the reentry process, and how can we get them engaged? And what are some of the barriers to getting employers involved in reentry, and what steps can we take to address those barriers? Thank you very much. Uh, first, I'd like to just thank Jeff and everybody that worked so hard at uh, putting this, uh, uh, this day together, um, uh, because it's really a very, very important conversation 
uh, that we need to have, and we need to take it beyond the conversation and take it into action. So thank you very much for inviting me. One of the first things I will say to you, and, I, and it's an interesting thing, I, as, as, as CEO of Goodwill, um, most of the time I get invited as an employer. Uh, we run programs, but the reality is I run a social enterprise business with over 500 employees. Uh, 90% of my funding comes from the stores and other businesses we operate here uh, uh, in the Bay Area. And so uh, I have a lot of the same concerns and issues that any other employer that's in the retail, transportation, logistics, and other related services are because that's what I run. I run a retail business. I run transportation business. I run recycling businesses and waste management businesses. Um, and I run uh, uh, transportation and logistics infrastructures out there. And so, as a business, the one first thing I have to say is, invite us. Invite the employer into the conversation. Because most of the time, we're nowhere in the conversation. Okay? And there's a presumption that employers do not want to be a part of this conversation. And I will tell you that those of us who are employers and are facing massive worker shortages in, in, in retail, in transportation and logistics, in construction, we are facing, and those are just some, we are facing massive shortages of employees with the aging of the workforce uh, and, um, uh, and other alternative routes to employment. Those of us that run these businesses are facing a real dilemma. And so the first thing I would say is invite us into the conversation. There are many of us that want to do it. We have advisory councils within Goodwill that Macy sits on at Whole Foods. A whole variety of different businesses uh, come to it. So I'm in conversation with employers practically every single day, sharing, and we share the same woes and the same challenges. So some of the things I'm going to share with you are not unique to Goodwill. They are unique. They are endemic of any business. First thing is invite us. Invite us into the conversation. The second thing is, um, you know, there are a lot of different ways that employers can get involved and really uh, play a role in this conversation and in the, not just the conversation, but in the action. Obviously, everybody talks about, you know, make jobs available, make jobs available. Yes, we have to make jobs available. Absolutely. We have Goodwill hires a, a very high percentage of our employees. Uh, these are our permanent employees that are getting health benefits and promotions and all those other things. Uh, 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 have interfaced with the criminal justice system, and we're very proud of it. They are some of our best employees. Um, but the, the, the key thing to remember here is that um, for a lot of employers out there, they're in a, this, is a, this is a scary proposition. Let me just say that point blank. It is a scary proposition. They're thinking about how do I make the bottom line, how do I reduce my liability, how do I not offend my customers, you name it, okay? So the, the thing I say is when you're thinking about how to engage employers, remember that there are a lot of different ways. And uh, sometimes it's better to start with some of the earlier stages than the later stages. So what ways can we engage employers? Engage us in conversations as advisors. We are all as employers looking for folks with viable skills needed for a particular industry. All too often I see workforce development programs that actually don't engage employers in helping to develop the curriculum, the skills qualification designs, or anything else. So we get, you know, we get a lot of folks in here that have been through lots of job training programs that can't do the job or don't even understand 
that if you're running a retail business, it's not nine to five. It's not, you know, it's a seven day a week job. It's my operation actually runs practically 24 seven because it's not just the stores. I've got production. I've got transportation. I've got all these things. So there's a lot of dynamics. And so the level of skills and the types of skills necessary for a particular industry, it's really important for all the community-based collaborators, including the Department of uh, uh, Corrections, to understand that and invite us in. We have a lot to share. And we'd love to share it because we're desperate for employees, good, skilled workers. I want good, skilled workers. They create value for my company. They, and, and in turn, I will create value back for them. That's the fundamental dynamic. So invite us in. Let us become part of the conversation. Let us help develop and inform some of the programs, the curriculum, the, uh, the job placement dynamics, all of that kind of stuff. We have a lot to be able to share with you about what is really necessary, okay? The other thing is uh, we as employers need to be able to release our employees to be able to participate in job clubs, to become guest speakers, release our employees to be able to go into the prisons and go into the jails and have that conversation with our prospective employees, because these are our future employees, while they're there. And, and, and there are actually employers that are willing to do that. Okay? We're willing to do it at goodwill. We ma it makes good business sense. Okay? Think about it. Employers are sending recruiters out to the colleges. They're sending recruiters out to the high schools. They're sending, believe you me, you make a credible case. They will send, we will send recruiters out into the jails and the prisons and begin to have the conversation. The thing that's very interesting is when you send an employer or an employee from a business and give them the time to go out and be participate in some of these conversations and go into the jails and have real conversations and talk about what it really means to work at Goodwill or Whole Foods or uh, Macy's or any one of these other businesses, they, in turn, are having a conversation, and their impression, it is no longer an unintelligible rap sheet or the fingerprint. You know, we do, you know we, do, we do criminal background checks. We do it only after we want to offer a job to a person, not before. Okay? Why bother to do even, even engage in thinking about a criminal background check before you <coughs> decide you want this person? Because it's about the skills. It's not about what the person has done in their past. It isn't about some of the mistakes they've made. It's about the skills that they have to contribute. It's about the fact that is this person going to be a reliable employee that really uh, has the skills to do this. And that's what, most, that's what we're looking for as employees. It's not any different from anybody else. So, you know, uh, we were happy to participate in Ban the Box. We think it's a great thing that San Francisco has taken the, the, uh, the, the, the you know, do you have a criminal record and stuff off the map. Do it at the end when you're going to actually offer the person a job and then make an individual decision about it. And there are more and more employers that are looking at that option. Send them, but when, when, an, when, a, when a recruiter gets to go in to a prison or a jail or any one of the programs that are represented here and engage in a dialogue, it starts opening up. Some of our best advocates from other companies that we work with were companies that did just that, and they have a very different understanding. You talk about being multilingual. We have got to be multilingual because I will tell you that the conversations that I often end up sitting in are talking over each other and past each other and beyond each other. It requires, it requires uh, the ability to be multilingual, and so we need to do that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, we need to revisit, you know, what are other ways that employers can get it. We need to revisit our actual uh, HR policies and practices. We need to understand that if, uh, if the offense was seven years or longer, 
it isn't valid as an employment criteria anymore. And we, so there are a lot of employers out there that don't understand. So you guys need to educate us as employers and educate our HR departments about what is allowable and what isn't and what is legitimate and what isn't and what is ethical and what isn't. Because we don't know. You think if it's hard for you all to want to talk to each other, think about from someone as an employer. So those are, those are some of the things we can do. And the last thing is we can hire folks, okay? We can hire. Employers can hire folks. Uh, the one thing I always tell folks when I'm in a reentry council meeting or when I'm in a uh, talking to a community-based organization, don't come to an employer and say, do, you know, hire our folks because it's the right thing to do. <laughs> don't do that because the minute you do that, that employer has just walked out the door. They may not have physically walked out the door, but mentally they have walked out the door. What you say is hire our folks because they have skills, they are reliable, they're going to create value for your company, okay? Uh, and you're going to be delighted. They are some of the best workers you're ever going to have. I know that to be true from my workforce. I've got, you know, we handle millions of dollars in cash at Goodwill, okay? We may handle millions of dollars of cash. I've got great former bank robbers that work for me, okay? <laughs> they know cash, and they know how to handle cash, okay? <laughs> And they, are, and they know how to count every penny, okay? Uh, and they're great, you know. I've got, I've got uh, former drug dealers on it. They know community relations, okay? They know customers. They know what the customer wants, okay? And they know how to deliver to the customer, okay? That's who I want working for me, okay? So... So don't talk about it. it's the right thing to do. Talk in the language that an employer can understand, okay? Uh, the last thing is I want to say in terms of barriers, additional barriers is uh, opportunities and barriers is for me as an employer, uh, um, a lot of times the biggest barriers I have are the barriers that my employees are facing at times, whether it's transportation. I have an employee who used to show up at, uh, for his shift at 5.30 in the morning, even though his shift didn't start till 7 o'clock in the morning. Why? Because he was a former uh, uh, gang member. He has not been involved in the gangs at all. He's still living in his community, and he has been targeted. Okay? It is not okay to be a former gang member in certain neighborhoods in this town and, and, and basically demonstrating that there's an alternative, there's an alternative way of life. Okay? So in order for him not to get killed, he would show up at the office at the building at 5.30 in the morning because he could get out. That was how he'd get from his neighborhood to our headquarters on Mission and Van Ness. And then even though his shift would end at about 6 o'clock, he wouldn't leave until about 8.39 o'clock because that was the only way he could get and he'd go a roundabout shift, okay? As an employer, you know, it's very difficult for most employers to take that on, Okay. We did. We basically spent some time understanding and changed his ship. There's, so I've got, it's a 24-7, let him start at 5.30. So he's not sitting around and stuff. But it also meant that we had to work with community-based organizations to help around this situation until ultimately the decision based by that this young man made with his wife and his four kids was that they had to relocate out of the neighborhood because basically the price on his head was so high. Okay. But we need to be able to, so issues of transportation, okay, monolingual, not being able, you know, monolingual speakers, okay, we got a lot of monolingual speakers, okay, we need bilingual 
support services. We need VESEL, vocational ESL programs, okay, and we need to be able to connect to those. We need to be able to connect to uh, a bunch of the, a lot of the wraparound support services as well as an employer, because as an employer, I can't do that. Okay, I can't do that for every single one of my employees. But if I know that this employee of mine is connected to a set of wraparound services out there, okay, it makes it imminently more uh, uh, manageable to do this. I want them, they got to show up on time, they got to show up, they have to have the skills, and they got to show up dressed appropriate for the position, okay? Um, and they, and, and the reality is that that's what my employees do. They're great. I've got some of the best employees around, okay? They're smart, they're talented, they're motivated, okay? Folks coming out of the criminal justice system are far more motivated than my folks that aren't coming out of the criminal justice system that are my employees, okay? So those are really important. But bring the employer to the table, allow us to participate in the conversation, allow us to connect with you once they get hired, okay? It doesn't, it's sort of sometimes what happens is you hire them, and it's sort of like the entire wraparound support system has disappeared, well, it hasn't stopped. The needs that this person is having hasn't stopped. Wage garnishing, one of the biggest reasons for turnover we found at Ickwood Will for a while was the amount, their wages being garnished and how much was being garnished. And it was a no, and it was, a, it was an impossible situation. So we work with child support now, an employer working with child support to say, what can we do here, okay? Because if basically they're earning, you know, they may be earning $15 an hour, okay? But if between taxes and garnishing, they're coming home with two, okay? They can't live, okay? So these are the kinds of things we can do together uh, uh, as, as employers, as community-based organizations, and as, uh, as institutions from the public sector around this. I will tell you that the success stories I have, okay, and you come in and you come in and see my employees, and I got some of the, as I said, I have the hardest working, some of the smartest. They're not just hard workers, they're smart workers. And that's what any employer wants. So what I'm going to do for you is if you know anyone that's looking for a job, we are always recruiting at Goodwill for good employees. So I have my cards here. And Stephanie Kim, who's one of our recruiters from HR, is in the audience. Talk to her. There's Stephanie. She's in the white blouse. Talk to her because uh, we definitely, um, this is what it's about. You know, this is, this is, this is a part of, this is a part of our very talented workforce, and we need to make it up. Thank you, Debbie. That's very heartening. Thank you. Our next presenter is Yvonne Cooks from All of Us or None, and she has over 20 years of experience working in prisons, uh, working on female uh, issues in prison, and worked for the legal services for prisoners and children. And she. Um, had a, excuse me, a BA degree from Columbia, Columbia College, and she spearheaded efforts inside the prison system to bring awareness of the AIDS crisis to women in prison and was a key organizer for black culture workshops for FCI Dublin for 15 years. Yvonne, um, All of Us or None has organized the wonderful Band the Box initiative that we've heard about today, and we really appreciate that. So how did you get this legislation passed? And then what can we do to empower formerly incarcerated people to engage more in policy and law change and get their help? Thank you. I, uh, first of all, I want to appreciate uh, all the organizers of this wonderful summit. And we really need more of this in the community. And I just thanks Jeff 
Adachi for all the wonderful work he does in the community. So, ah, all of us are none. We are representatives of a new civil rights movement. And I really, I, I want to see how many people in the audience are formerly incarcerated. Gosh. Well, you know, all day long, I, I started early this morning, and I have been hearing the word offender all day long. And I am so, you remember when we used to be called Negroes, guys? I'm serious. I had arguments in my family about being, uh, no longer wanting to be called a Negro. So that's one of the things that we did uh, at All of Us or None. We started talking about language and what that means and what people perceive us to be when you hear different words. So we have asked that this social justice, criminal justice movement change the language to formerly incarcerated persons because it more, it's more representative of a person who has a history and not a thing. So um, I appreciate those who have taken on this challenge and we really will keep, you know, just beating down the walls talking about we want to be referred to as people. So if it's formally incarcerated, that's fine, but not as offenders. One of the things that we did initially when uh, just a few of us, uh, Dorsey Nunn, Linda Evans, myself, several of us here in San Francisco, we convened a statewide strategy session in 2002. And that strategy session, for the first time, brought together formerly incarcerated people who knew they had common problems, they knew we had common uh, discriminatory practices in the system that we were dealing with, and we wanted to really make a difference and, and, and tell people we want to speak on our own behalf related to the problems that we are experiencing. So we convened and, and decided, made a lot of decisions that day. One of them was to organize under the banner of All of Us or None. And we have been going strong ever since. Now at that time, that was, uh, gosh, October 2002. I had just been released in July 2002 after having served 20 years in a federal prison. So I knew what we were dealing with inside, and it's still very close to me. What we did, we came together, we organized under the banner of All of Us or None, and wh what we have done since then, we started reaching out into the communities. We did six community peace and justice summits, and in those peace and justice summits, how we organized folks is, our people, people that were formerly incarcerated, they were able for the first time to talk to politicians, to talk to community leaders, and let them know what they were experiencing and the discrimination they were facing on the outside. And this was an incredible, powerful movement for them as well as the, the community leaders. People were listening. They were listening to what we had to say. And as, as a result, 
one of the demands that came out, you know, the housing, social services, all, all these, you know, things that we need. One of the things that came out that we decided to move forward that we thought we could win was ban the box on public and county employment applications. So we used that campaign to start off this movement of policy change and legislative change. And how we did that was just believing that we could do it and working with people like Jeff and, and Ross and, and the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco are incredible human beings that understood where we were coming from. And as, as a result, we banned the box in San Francisco. <laughs> And this same campaign is being pushed out now in Alameda County, in Sacramento, in the city and county of Los Angeles. And we're, we're doing wonderful things. And these are, the, the efforts are coming from formerly incarcerated people. We're, we're just really excited about all of, all of the work. And I just want to thank everyone who has helped in that campaign because there have been many people. We have many allies. You can, well, I can't even begin to name folks. So I just want to say what we are doing is so important because it, it gives us an opportunity to not only speak out about conditions and discrimination that we face, it gives us an opportunity to go on with our lives, and that's important. That's important. Um, the other question, quickly, I know it's been, you know, it's been a long day, and I really appreciate you're hanging in there all day for this. I don't know if I could have done it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, what we can do to empower formerly incarcerated individuals to advocate for needed changes. What other, other, we have collaborated with other organizations and like-minded people, and one of those is the ACLU. The, my Harris with the ACLU, they have put us on billboards all over the city, and I brought some uh, pictures of those billboards that talk about our right to vote, because so many people don't realize that if you're in jail, you still have the right to vote. So this is something that all of us are none, and Legal Services for Prisoners with Children have collaborated with the ACLU, and there's a lawsuit about it. So we're really moving in, in directions that formerly incarcerated people just traditionally have not had the opportunity to do. Now, not that we didn't have the skills. We didn't have the opportunity. Now, the 20 years I spent in prison, not one day that I ever believed the stereotypes that, that were out there about people in prison. I knew I was somebody, and I knew I could make it on the outside. You just need a chance. So I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop here. I'm gonna, I'll pass out these. I'm sorry, brother. So thank you. Thank you for having us. It's, it's all very inspirational for formerly incarcerated people and for everyone, what you're doing. Thank you. 
And our last speaker, not least, of course, is Rico Remedio. Uh, Rico has success, successfully reentered society after serving more than 24 years on a 15-year life sentence. He was released on parole in July of 2005 and entered Walden House. Since then, he's uh, enrolled in San Francisco City College and is currently participating in an internship program with a nonprofit, and he works in the construction trade, and he's really dedicated to helping people stay out of the system. Rico, I have a question for you. Looking back on your experience as a parolee, what would have made your transition easier? And if you could sort of design an ideal reentry plan, what would it be? Well, first of all, I would like to thank you uh, for inviting me to be part of this event. And I'm honored to be here. Uh, you know, I've been in a system where rehabilitation was uh, practiced and changed into a punishment. And I think the system has a long way to bring the rehabilitation back. And uh, I took advantage of that rehabilitation program. You know, I got my high school diploma. I uh, finished two years of college. And... Uh, six years of vocational uh, trade, automotive mechanic. And uh, <clears throat> I've been given, a, uh, I've been found suitable for parole three times. The third time I was let go. And uh, when I knew, what, when I was getting out, you know, I kept, you know, questioning myself, you know, what I'm going to do out here. And uh, I convinced myself that to give back. It's time to give back to the community. There's so many things out here that I can relate to, especially dealing with gangs and drugs. But it's important for me to, uh, to make a solid plan. I knew that in 25 years, things have changed out here. So I'm trying to find a place where I can, you know, stay for a while and and uh, make a slow transition back to society. And I met a gentleman named Lee Boone, who is a spokesperson for uh, Walden House. And uh, I did ask him about my intention and plan, that I need a place, you know. And it wasn't a problem for him. Uh, my first four or five months out here, I was at Walden House. And they provided me with food, clothing, and shelter, which is the three human needs, you know, to survive out here. And they did more. They did more. While I was in a program, they have, uh, uh, they have classes, you know, uh, like, uh, uh, like parenting class, things like that. Uh, class about uh, how to uh, deal with your uh, addiction, things like that. Uh, not only that, but, you know, they trained me how to uh, use the computer. They helped me enroll in school and uh, helped me how to uh, respond to interview and file a you know, job application. And while I was in there, too, uh, I was able to, uh, you know, get my driver's license, California ID, and Social Security uh, card. So when I left the program, you know, you know, I built the foundation to just move on. It wasn't hard for me because, you know, of the things they provided for me. And I think we should have more programs like that out here. You know, and I noticed that, uh, you know, I met a lot of guys in prison in and out because 
when they parole, they parole back to their neighborhood where they can't get help. And I think the first four months of our release is very critical. You know, we need to have foundation. And, uh, and uh, you know, like uh, when I left the program and uh, well, when I was in the program, I started going to different uh, part of the uh, community and, and see what, you know, how I can help or how can I uh, be part of their community. And uh, <clears throat> they kind of, you know, like me just being around, knowing that, you know, how, you know, what I've been through. And, uh, and uh, also the parole uh, office, you know, they, they, they did a lot of good things for me as far as getting me involved with uh, doing community service. Uh, pro agent like uh, Ken Wong and uh, uh, Mitchell, uh, who else? Uh, uh, Chu and my pro agent uh, Jason Bailey is doing real good. You know, I know, you know his responsibility, and I know my roles. You know, and uh, I got a lot of respect for him. You know, he's, he's a good dude. But uh, yeah, uh, you know. To answer the last part of this question, ideal reentry plan, uh, I would say that uh, uh, each uh, prisoners who are getting ready to go out should have an access to get into the uh, transitional uh, housing program because uh, you know they got what we need, you know, to start our life out here. And that's something that uh, uh, it's not enough for everybody, you know. I did, you know, relate that message inside that, you know, you guys need to get into this program. And the problem is uh, I think our parole uh, office does not have enough money to provide uh, for the expense because it costs money to be in a program. You know, I was just very fortunate that Centerpoint program you know, pay for my stays in there. And, uh, you know, it was good. And uh, and another thing, uh, you know, if we really want to uh, reduce the recidivism, and since it's going to take a long time for the CDC to uh, bring rehabilitation back, I think we really need to get involved. You know, people out here in the community need to actually go inside and minister to, to the prisoners. And that's how I turn my life around, you know. And... Uh, you know, I, you know, even though I have this education and vocational trade that, you know, I can be okay out here, you know, I, I have no hope and uh, I have nothing but animosity against people out here, you know. I have this, you know, belief that, man, you know, I'm just a rigid society, you know, nobody wants me, nobody going to respect me. But that was proven wrong when uh, I met a whole bunch of people, uh, you know, this is these people are... Uh, former lawyer, doctors, judge, law enforcement, who bring uh, love inside the prison. And these people represent the community. You know, when I look at these people and realize what they've done to me, you know, like they represent everybody here. So when I got out and look at each person, I remember those people. You know, I, I have nothing but love and respect for them. So if we are really serious about 
helping prisoners and promote uh, safety, public safety, we need to get involved. We need to get involved. That's all I had to say. Thank you. Those were very thoughtful comments, Rico, and very important. And you brought up an issue, and if you'll indulge us one more minute, um, about residential programs and having them available for people. And I mentioned earlier about the difficulty in siting, and Del Sales Owen wanted to just mention something about what CDCR is trying to do for siting. As some of you may be aware, um, we had a special session this year, and we have an issue with overcrowding. And, uh, and we know that we cannot just solely build more prisons to really end the problem that we're uh, facing with. And so part of the proposal that we had was to create uh, secure reentry facilities and that we were going to try to get at least 10 structured reentry facilities in California and that these would be no more than 500 beds. Now, uh, building a facility and siting a facility is very difficult to do. Uh, we wanted it to be in the areas where people actually return. This means that we have to take a different approach to how we go about doing this. And the approach that the department has taken is to do outreach, uh, a request for inf uh, interest to various communities, uh, city councils, and also uh, boards of supervisors and sheriffs to find out who would be interested in working with us around uh, developing one of these structured reentry facilities. Uh, what is different in the way that we plan on approaching it is that it will be a partnership that we will sit down with the community and with the uh, local government and look at together what kinds of services need to be in a structured facility. Uh, we will do our part to bring resources to the table. It will be the kind of facility where a person is released, instead of going straight from that uh, segregated housing unit into the community, that they would go into the structured reentry facility first, spend time to transition, have the service providers be able to come into the uh, institution, uh, the structured reentry facility, and thereby provide that linkage. For those who don't quite make it on the first time and get uh, revoked, they come back to that same structured facility, and uh, actually the continuity between the service provider and the uh, individual would, con uh, would continue. So that is the model that we are trying to uh, move forward, and we realize that we can only do that kind of siting and uh, of facilities in partnership with the uh, local communities and the local government. And so thank you for the opportunity to talk about that. So we are doing outreach to those cities and counties that would be interested in joining us in that effort. Great. And let's thank all the panel three for a very informal discussion. Thank you. Thank you. So that concludes panel three. We, I guess we have time for questions, Jeff. Is that right? Okay. Do we have some questions? Do we have a microphone down here if people want to line up? And please, again, if you'll limit yourself to questions and not statements because we're late here and we need to go. Yes, ma'am. 
Hi. Um, I'm concerned about this structured facility that you're talking about because that means, to, to me, what you're saying is that when we get out, we're not going to get out, really. We're just going to go into another another structure that the California Department of Corrections has awaiting for us. And I think that there's other ways of dealing with the issue than creating a, yet another extension of a prison. Um, I, and I just wondered, like, what is your vision of this continued housing? Um, we're not talking about extending the stay. We would start our pre-release uh, planning. And instead of the pre-release planning occurring uh, on a regular um, general population yard, it would occur back in the community. So you would start your re-entry planning back in the community, working with service providers that are in your community. And so those last, um, those last four to six months would be spent in a place that is very close to home. You could start to rebuild your relationships with family. It would be a lot easier for that transition to occur. Okay, thank you. Hi, my name is Shauna Demons, and I am an advocate and a formerly incarcerated person. And reentry policy is very important to me because it's been very difficult, even though it's been 15 years since I was incarcerated. It still is problematic. And I've sat through all the panels today, and I've heard a lot about projects and programs. I've heard projects, programs so many times. And historically, that's always the answer, but we're still looking at a 70% recidivism rate. So I'm wondering how do we then look at what the real issues are and integrate that into reentry issues of, you know, institutionalized racism, uh, people that are profiled based on the way they look. Like I just had someone tell me I don't look like somebody that's formerly incarcerated. Well, what do they look like? Um, looking at policy issues. We didn't talk enough about policy because my problem is, how do you get over being incarcerated in the United States? Not just California, in the United States. We don't have a policy. You can have 30 years between you and your conviction, and you come up for a job, and there it is. I'm looking at grad school right now, and I have to pick my program based on, am I going to have to tell them this? Is that going to be something that's going to further reject me? I'm already African-American, lesbian, and a woman. So what are we doing about integrating those things into reentry policy? I really think we need to... I like this conversation, and I'm really grateful that we're having it. I think it's super important, and I was excited about coming today, but what I'm not hearing is, like, the real issue. Like, why are we over-incarcerating people? What are some alternatives to incarceration? We're talking about how to re-enter people after we've incarcerated them. How about how to take care of the, the, the structures of society that cause incarceration? That's my Thank question. you. I'd like to just say one thing to that. Um, the Little Hoover Commission is in the process of, of looking at sentencing, and they will be issuing a recommendation, and clearly we need to look at the policy issues, and around sentencing is going to be vitally important. Hi, my name is Sybil Sadler. We live in a society that likes to judge you by your past, and I'm wanting to know, when a person goes and applies for a job, and they go, okay, give us your 10-year history, what do, you, what do you put down? Oh, well, I was on vacation in San Quentin. I, was in, I mean, what do you put down? I mean, we all have made mistakes. Some of us just got caught. Uh, some of us had a mother who could talk us out of it, so we didn't have to get arrested. But what are these people supposed to do? If you continue to condemn them for their past, then you can't, where are they supposed to go? No, I think, let me just say, it's, it's absolutely right what you're saying, which is 
every single job application in any company says, I want to know what you've done for the last 10 years, okay? And, and we know that in our, you know, as an employer, I know that every day I have people that are facing that exact dilemma. Do I lie? <laughs> okay? Or do I tell the truth? And in telling the truth, will that, uh, will that, you know, do I check the box or do I not check the box? Do I put the, you know, that's the thing. We've, you've been great. We've banned the box on, uh, for the county employment. We still have to fill out that job in, in employment uh, situation. So there, there are a couple of things that are really important. The, the reason I say to try to get us as employers into the system, right, into the systems, into the jails, into is once that, if, once that connection happens, okay, as an employer, then, you know, when that job application, first of all, you tell the truth on the job, because I'll tell you on the job application, because invariably, if you get off of the job, most employers are going to do a background check on you. That's a standard fare, and it is ten times worse to have lied than to tell the truth, okay? That's, so that's number one, okay? But number two is that by having more and more employers going into, into and working collaboratively, being part of this table, then you start saying, the, the question is, okay, so you were, in, you were in San Quentin for the last time. What kind of programs? What, one of the things you do is you say, oh, okay, in 1965, I took this and this class, so I did this and this. I was in this kind of training program. Where? San Quentin. But that's all right. The key is I want to know what your training and skills are. Does that mean that all employers are going to love it? No. Does that reality is that, well, 90% of employers or 85% of employers sort of write you off? That, yeah, that is, okay? But, but there, are, there are sectors, there are some employment sectors that are much more open than others, okay? That's number one. Uh, transportation logistics. We started a truck driving academy because transportation and logistics is a lot more openness, even with the Patriot Act, okay? There's still a lot more openness. So there's, there, that's part of it is what's the industries where there's more receptivity? Uh, two is put down what your skills are. Put down what your skills are. And, if, and, and, and where? If you don't, just leave it blank. The key is you want to get them in a conversation with you. I want to see what your skills are. If I see a job application and it looks pretty interesting and I look and say this person's got some skills, uh, they left this information out, I will think maybe they forgot something. But what I will do is I'll call you back. Or someone in my, in my, will call you back. And that's your opportunity to engage in a conversation. So there are some techniques that can be, that are legitimate, they're honest, okay? You're telling the truth, but can work, okay? Um, so those are a couple of things. Um, what are we going to do to stop, you know, uh, the judgment of looking to the past as opposed to looking to the future? I don't know, you know. I, you know, uh, you know. I, I got clean and sober 23 years ago because I was so focused on looking at the past and not looking at the future. I had to finally start looking at the future as myself personally and say, you know what? I can, I can, I can use that. The fact that I was an active user and be ashamed of it, or I can say, what did I get out of that? What did coming on the other side of that get me? And that's what I put out in front of folks. So that's, that's the only thing. Is there's a personal issue and there's an organizational and, and sector and policy issue. And those are the, the one things I can suggest. Okay. Thanks, Debbie. Take two more questions. Uh, hello. My question is, um, well, first of all, I'm a client at Walden House, and I have been incarcerated. And my question is, is what kind of incentives are we offering employers so that they feel more comfortable 
hiring ex-offenders and why can't we spread that more farther out so that it can be more um you know more uh opportunity yeah yeah (laughs) i can talk a little bit about that uh the, the biggest incentive that's been put, and it exists here in California, are their tax credits. There are certain tax credit incentives for employers to hire uh, uh, formerly incarcerated individuals, okay? Um, they have been, generally speaking, not particularly successful. Right. That incentive, which gen- in, in most cases is, a, is something that, you know, employers love tax credits. We love tax credits, you know, uh, but has not been particularly successful, okay? So... Uh, uh, what have been the incentives uh, out there? They're not a whole lot more. You know, as I said, more often than not, all I hear is do it because it's the right thing to do. Well, that's not going to be an incentive on it. You know, the incentives are, you know what? I can provide you with a skilled, competent, responsible worker and workforce that's going to add value to your company. Okay? That's the first thing. I mean, there is so much, even in my, in goodwill, which we have. More than 25 languages spoken. We have incredible, we have every, transgender folks. We have everyone working for us. Okay? There is an endemic racism and endemic uh, uh, prejudice, even within that. And especially when you bring in so many different people with so many different biases out there. So we have to work really hard at just overcoming our own racism and our own attitudes. Okay? So part of it is, you know... Um, uh, I, you know, I'm really trying to encourage in San Francisco to the chamber's been at some conversations and, and they've been at the, but, you know, we have to bring this conversation to the chamber. OK, we have to bring this conversation to the small business associations. OK, we have to bring this conversation and, and, and couch the conversation around. We have skilled, talented people. OK. Uh, because that's the conversation that seems to be had. So I, I, I don't, I, you know, I don't know what else to do. I mean, there are probably a lot more policy experts out there right now. But uh, uh, plus, the other last thing is a lot of employers don't even know about the tax credits. So that's the other issue. So from from the advocacy side, the more you can help elevate uh, uh, that that opportunity to employers, the better it's going to be. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, my name is Edmund Larry. I'm a tenant advocate for mental health in San Francisco, Tenderloin District, where we have 20,000 uh, uh, residents and SRO hotels that single room occupancy. And a lot of things, I haven't been incarcerated, but a lot of us have neighbors, and we know there is something going on. And I, coming here today was a chance to find out about things that I don't know. But I want to remind you this here. I'm a St. June 11 man who went to Arkansas in 2004. Now, what I found out there, I was so shocked after being away 25 years that there were a lot of prisons and places that I had never seen before. But I found out that people were not being put in jail because of drugs. A little stealing at Kmart, fight here, a drink. So what I found out, the prison epidemic is in this country. And I'm looking at the difference in the borders of different states have prisons on just stealing, Kmart, Walmart. And here what I'm saying is that I believe it's time that I hope Proposition 36 money and Proposition 63, which is mental health money for everyone, that we can work together to make this country a better place because I think we should be into education and labor more than 
having more labor coming out of prisons, and it's time for us to get there. And I hope that you will come back and work with the Mental Health Proposition 63 as well as Prop 36. And as you said, Yvonne Cook, sometimes discrimination practice and systems, you see these things, and I think America is, is hollered out now. We must change. Thank you guys for being here today. I think it's time to wrap up with Jeff Adachi, and thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, and thank you for uh, hanging in there for today. And it's hard to believe uh, what transpired here today. Um, tremendous passion, tremendous passion in these four walls. And the people who came here, uh, came here not only to talk, uh, but to create a movement. And that's really what the challenge is before us. Creating a movement means that each of us takes personal responsibility for what we believe needs to happen. It's always easy to point to somebody else and say, they should do it or somebody's doing this to me. But if we're really going to create effective change, it means that all of us, have to internalize what this means to us. Is this something that's important for us to devote so many hours of our work week to, in addition to everything else that we have to do? And are we willing to work with other people? And that's always a challenge. It's difficult. It's hard to work together. We're all coming from different places, different cultures, different languages, different ideas. But at our core, we are all human beings. And formerly incarcerated people are no different. And that is a stigma that we need to remove from society. It's not one that we need to remove from formerly incarcerated people. It's one that we need to remove from society. And maybe that's the unspoken word here when we talk about the perception that exists in the public arena and how that's been created and perpetrated you know, for years and years and years to the extent that we're raised <clears throat> believing that, that we can't change, that a person who does wrong is always going to be wrong. And from the perspective of what we heard today, particularly from the parolees and probationers who came here, it, it took a tremendous amount of courage. Can you imagine being on, on, on public television talking about your life experience? Very difficult to do. And yet, they not only came here with their stories, but they came here really, hopefully, to instill hope in those individuals who, um, you know, were not here today, may see this on television, um, may see uh, hope in the stories that were told here uh, today. Um, I also want to thank the members of the Department of Corrections. It also took courage for them to come here today, um, <laughs> as, as well as, uh, you know, all of the uh, individuals representing programs. I mean, you could be out there helping people and doing what you do each and every day, and that's true of all of you. And I hope that you come out, out of this, this program being inspired um, by what you heard here and that you will redouble your efforts. I do want to uh, acknowledge and thank um, my co-chair, uh, Supervisor Ross Mercurini, and his staff, Shada uh, Dabukio.
uh, people were giving me accolades, and I feel guilty about that because it's my staff who I delegated it to who has done a, a great job, Larry Roberts, Bell Law, Angela Young, who arranged for the lunches uh, today, uh, my mom who made the cookies, <laughs> and, um, and uh, all the folks at the Public Defender's Office uh, who have helped supported uh, this effort. But again, we're just one agency, and uh, I do want to thank all the members of the council uh, for their participation and all of those who are going to join uh, the council. And again, um, if you look at the program booklet, you'll see the information as to how to join uh, the council. Uh, also, uh, we uh, you can go to our, our website at www.sfgov um, uh, backslash pd. And we're also going to have the uh, summit, um, which is going to be um, available online. I want to thank uh, the uh, SFGTV, um, their staff, um, uh, Michael uh, Freeman and his staff <coughs> who've uh, worked with us to uh, televise the summit and also uh, David Glass and the people here at the, at the state building. So as we go forward, um, as, as uh, Supervisor Mercurini said this morning, uh, the challenge is uh, that we need to work together and remember that this is not just a honeymoon. This is such an important event that we were able to bring city leaders joining here together to look at change. Now, all we got to do is do it. The mayor came and spent his lunch hour with us, Mayor Gavin Newsom. That's significant. Assemblyman Leno, Mark Leno, came here to give his keynote statement. That's significant. And so the challenge to us is what we can now do with that momentum. I don't think we can be as naive to think that a week from now, two weeks from now, we're going to see the kind of monumental change that we know is possible and that we believe in. But what we will see in the next six months, thanks to the support that we receive from the Board of Supervisors, are, and these are already in the works, are an investment of over $600,000 in programs that have proven success in reducing uh, recidivism and providing services to formerly incarcerated individual, individuals. What we will see is a parole day treatment center. And we've already obtained funding to start this, and we're hoping that we can create a partnership with the Department of Corrections uh, to be able to enhance a parole day treatment center and night treatment center where parolees can drop in at any time. I think for those of us that operate departments, we have to look within our departments and see how we can improve the way in which we serve formerly incarcerated individuals. We have to look at how we can focus our efforts on serving this uh, particular population, not when they get out, before they get in. The other thing that we have to keep in mind is that we, you know, our purpose here shouldn't be limited to only helping people who are released from prison. We want to reach people before they even get to prison. That's, that's why it's so important that we re reach out to the young people. We reach out to the youth. And Supervisor Mericarini reminded me that we also need to incorporate programs here. And I hate to use the word programs. These are initiatives that we all join together to create to begin reaching young people and in, in, in using, if I can, if, if I can uh, uh, refer to the resource we have in formerly incarcerated individuals. See, that's the answer. The answer is to take Terry 
uh, Anders and Rico and Yvonne and people who have the wisdom and have the strength and know what it's like to be incarcerated, know what it's like to hit the streets, to use their strength and wisdom um, to mentor the next generation of people who may be at risk of entering the criminal justice system or the juvenile justice system. If there's any one lesson that's learned, that's what we need to do. And so I look forward uh, to working with all of you in that effort. We're all equal partners in moving things forward. And in the weeks, the months, the years ahead, because it's got to be a, a sustained effort. It can't be just six months or a year or two years or five years from now. We will make a change, and we will produce a better result and better outcomes uh, for those who are behind bars now. Thank you.